Are you feeling stuck making minimum payments on your credit card debt? SaveWithConrad.com can help, and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Get rid of your credit card debt and lower your monthly payments right now at SaveWithConrad.com. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Bruce that's not a rib she pooted she pooted what a rib no you have me there's no box of gimmicks rumor and innuendo i don't deal in rumor and innuendo was he there i was there i don't give a shit i ain't scared i ain't scared to shut him you bruce Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you, man? What do you always say? Busy as a one arm paper hanger. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, something like that. I'm, I'm hanging paper with one arm. Bruce, I feel like it's time, man. We should just get right into it. Let's talk a little bit about King of the ring. We're right here on the 20 year anniversary. As you and I tape this, when you're listening on the 29th, Yesterday was the 20 year anniversary. What a historic show this is. Am I right, Bruce? Uh, I think it goes down in history probably as Mick Foley's defining night and one that he will never, ever forget. But, you know, even going back, the the last two matches on this show were pretty damn good. And I enjoyed the, I enjoyed going back and watching this one. No doubt about it, man. It's one heck of a card. It is a tremendous pay-per-view. I, I can't recommend it enough. It doesn't get talked about as much because of the one big match. And of course we're going to get there, but there's so much other stuff on here. So if you haven't already go fire up the WWE network one day this week and watch King of the ring 98, as we said, yesterday was the 20 year anniversary. It goes down at the civic arena in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Pittsburgh has always been really a hotbed for wrestling, or at least it feels that way, whether it was you know, WWF or even, you know, WCW and ECW, they had a lot of shows there and some of the, the greats, uh, you know, in our, in, in the industry, whether it's Bruno San Martino or Kurt Angle, a guy I grew up on Shane Douglas, Larry Zabisco is more in your day, but even the guys on TV now, guys like Corey Graves and Elias, they're all from Pittsburgh, but for some reason, I feel like Pittsburgh sort of gets glossed over in wrestling history. Why don't you think Pittsburgh has a bigger reputation? You know, I think that when people were covering 
the Northeast and they were covering wrestling for the magazines, especially back in the day, New York and Madison Square Garden, that was the center and that was the center of the world. And I arguably, I think a lot of people still consider New York the center of the world. So Pittsburgh was kind of also, uh, you had New York, you had Philadelphia, you had Boston and Pittsburgh was kind of on that fourth rung of the ladder, if you will. But it was a strong wrestling market. And as you just mentioned, man, some of the greatest of all time, you know, the great Bruno San Martino hails from Pittsburgh. Kurt Angle is a Pittsburgh native Olympic gold medalist. So it's produced some of the top talent ever in the wrestling business. And it was always a good draw for us all the time. Really? It just feels weird to me that, you know, whenever people talk about big wrestling markets, it feels like even in that state, people talk about Philadelphia more so than Pittsburgh, but what a great history it has. So let's talk about the actual day of event here, because in my research, I found that you guys actually did a party right outside of the building just to create some buzz and some hype. You guys don't do that anymore, but back in the day here in this era, you were trying to, I guess, essentially have like hype parties right outside the building. What can you tell us about those? Well, the idea was to get people there and we were having, I don't want to say that we were having problems, but we were, there became an issue with people coming in and being in their seats when we came on the air. So we would have parties. We would get people there early to get them involved, man. You would have meet and greets. You would have games and just a DJ having a good time outside and you do talent surprise stuff out there, but it was a way to get people to the venue early so that when it was time to fill up the arena, feed them in and get them seated. Well, let's talk about where business is here because you guys have really started to catch fire here. Of course, business has been up for a while, but starting in April, you started to actually win in the ratings war and here we are in June, but let's talk about just where we are financially. Your average attendance in June of 97 was 5,687. Here in June of 98, you're up 68.2% to 9,568 fans on average. Huge jump there. But your gate is way up too. In June of 97, you were averaging around 93,000 at the gate. Here, you're up to 179,000, so a 92% jump. And you weren't selling out very many house shows in June of 97, only like 5.9%. Here, 46.7% of your shows are sold out. Your average uh, television rating on cable is also up 58% from a 1.7 to a 2.7. Business is up no matter where you look. The metrics tell the same story. Business is up. You had been in the company for over 10 years at this point, except for that little hiatus. Is this the hottest it was the entire time you were there up to that point? Yeah. I mean, up to this point, it definitely was. Maybe not so much as in 1987 when I first came in, but... Yeah, this was red fucking hot. Everywhere we went, it was on fire. Stone Cold Steve Austin was the hottest star in the business at the time, and everybody and everything was turned into gold. So it was a really good time. We were on top of the world, and, man, business was good, and it was also during a time that everybody was making money, so everybody was feeling good. You know, obviously, whenever something works like this, it really is a team effort. And when business is up, it's usually not just one thing. And I do find it funny because sometimes when business is down, people like dependent on one guy. But when it's up, you know, everybody wants to spread the credit around. A great example of this is whenever people say, oh, Diesel was the worst drawing champion in history. But like here, when business is really hot, a lot of people are debating. 
Is it Vince Russo? Is it the Mr. McMahon character? Is it the Austin character? Is it all of it together? And I'm curious what your takeaway on that is. If you had to sort of pinpoint one thing above all else, obviously it all contributed. Obviously it was all a factor, but was there one single thing that you could put your finger on and say, well, this is what got us there. Really? Man, Austin was red hot. Austin was, was that guy that was steering the ship and Austin was the one that people were paying money to come out and see. So if you were only going to pin it on, on one guy who was drawing the houses and what was everybody talking about that was new and that was different, it was stone cold, Steve Austin, but make no mistake about it. It was a team effort. It's a team, look, it's team effort. When you lose, it's team effort when you win. So when things are doing the shits, it's not just one thing going wrong or one guy with bad ideas. It's, it's bad ideas. It's bad talent. It's bad management every, you know, and then when it all works together, it's a perfect storm and does well. And that's what was happening here. Let's talk a little bit about some behind the scenes finagling. Let's go back to May and we'll sort of set the stage for our June pay-per-view here in mid-May WCW filed a lawsuit against you guys and the USA network. And this is essentially uh, a countersuit of sorts. I mean, it's almost identical to what you guys sued them for back in 96 here. WCW is asking for $2 million in damages because they're saying that you guys have infringed on their trademarks, much like you sued them for razor and diesel. Well, now they're saying, you know, you've done that when, when you invaded WCW. So we've talked about that invasion angle a little bit here and and we'll table the rest of that talk for another time. But when you find out that after you guys had sort of invaded CNN center and of course the arena in Norfolk, Virginia, and now they're suing, what's your reaction? Well, you know, I think that initially it's like, what the fuck? Um, Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. When you're on top, you know, everybody's going to sue you. And, and WCW was on top and we were suing them. But also they had, you know, they had breached agreements and they were using our trademarks. We were using, you know, old footage. We were using, you know, Hulk Hogan from the time that we had him and that we, we did own those images. We did own that because it was WWE property. So their lawsuit didn't have nearly as much, you know, as far as anything to stand on really. And they were just kind of countersuing because they were getting their ass kicked at the time and didn't know what else to do. So if you're the type of person who's always thinking about new business ideas or wondering what's the next side hustle I should spin up, well, here's a podcast recommendation for you. My first million. The hosts Sean Perry and Sam Parr have each built eight-figure businesses and sold them to Amazon and HubSpot. Each week, they brainstorm business ideas you could start tomorrow. These can be side hustles that make you a few grand a month, a big billion-dollar idea, or anything in between. Take one episode I loved, which was episode 158. That's where Sam and Sean explained how to make millions by buying Michael Jordan's house and turning it into a museum. 
If you love any of our business content we do on the show, I think you would absolutely love this episode. They also chat with founders, celebrities, and billionaires and get them to open up about business ideas they've never shared before. Like you can check out their conversation with Rob Deerdick in episode 224. That's where you'll hear about a guy who has built a $400 million media empire who's been tracking every second of his day for the last decade. So don't waste any more time. Make sure you check out My First Million. That's My First Million on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I do feel like um, it's a little bit like, well, they sued us, so we're suing them type of deal. I mean, more so than it actually being based in reality. Anyway, maybe that's me being a homer. Let's talk about Off the Record which is a TSN show that I got to tell you as a kid in Alabama, I heard about all the time because you guys clearly had a great relationship either with TSN or Landsberg or something caused you guys to book guys all the time on off the record. And you guys did tremendous ratings whenever Brett Hart or Vince McMahon were on there, but it blew it out of the water when Austin was on around this same time. It's the largest rating they ever had on that show up to that point. What can you tell us about the off the record Landsberg relationship with the WWE? Landsberg was their big talk show guy. You know, he was their Bill O'Reilly of sports and TSN was the Canadian network. Carl DeMarco, who was the president of WWE Canada, had a good relationship with them and always wanted to strengthen that. And Landsberg was nice to us. I mean, he would put our guys on. He was fair and it was great exposure for us. So whenever he had a WWE talent on his ratings went up and our exposure went up. And in Canada, it was a, it was a good marriage, but he wasn't an asshole. Let's talk about, um, JYD. This is a bit of a sad news here that we have to cover, but I don't know when we'll talk about JYD again, because you didn't spend a lot of time with him in his WWF run. You came in towards the end. But he passes away in early June. He's killed in a car accident and he's only 45 years old. What can you tell us about your time with the junkyard dog? I don't know when we'll talk about him again. JYD was probably one of the most charismatic stars that ever been around, man. Dog, even in the dressing room, he just commanded the locker room. He commanded it just the way that he carried himself. He was a hell of a football player back in the day. But dog was one of those unique talents that drew money everywhere that he went and he could come in. He could come in in the opening match and he could be over more over than your main event, no matter where the hell you, you want to bring him in. Uh, I was around JYD a lot mid South and JYD left to go to New York and go work for Vince. Bill Watts was beside himself when JYD left, had no idea what to do. And, Bill was of the mindset that JYD was almost irreplaceable, but the only way to replace him was to replace him with another black baby face. And, and it became a, a quest to find that replacement for JYD. We went through Butch Reed, went through Brickhouse Brown, George Wells, Master G. I mean, the list is endless. The, the Sandman or the Snowman and, and everybody. Um, it was brutal. But JYD wasn't just a, a black superstar, man. He was just a superstar. And he was a megastar that Vince wanted bad, and he did pretty damn good for Vince in New York as well. But um, 
incredible, incredible talent that controlled the room, man, and he commanded respect wherever he went. Well, I hope we get to talk about him some more sometime because I feel like he's one of those names that people don't talk about enough now. Let's talk about the June 5th show in Madison Square Garden. You guys had an interesting main event here. Steve Austin is teaming with The Undertaker to take on Kane and Mankind, and they draw 19,506 fans, of which 16,814 paid over $391,000 at the gate. This is the largest gate ever in the United States for a non-pay-per-view event for the WWF. And this is just a random show, man. What can you tell us about the incredible success you're enjoying, especially in the garden, which Vince has always held in high regard? Well, it was just, it was a time where, as I said, for me, I remember coming in in 1987 and all you had to do was put Hulk Hogan's name on a marquee and you would sell out. Everywhere that we went in, in 87 during that time, it was sellouts across the country. So to be back at that at that place again, and no matter where the hell we were going, we were doing great business. And it's always nice when you go in your backyard and you see this kind of a gate and this kind of a response, and the magic is back. You know, it's like all of a sudden you're you're in a slump and then you're back and that was the feeling to be able to do it in your hometown in your home home arena which that's what msg was for vince and it's got to be a big deal to vince because you know three years prior to this he couldn't sniff a sellout he couldn't give away tickets in the garden and now man he's just on top setting records there is an interesting thing that we see here on the june 8th raw we saw george martin from the new york giants and, and um Darnell Autry from the Chicago bears on raw to present Mr. McMahon with the humanitarian of the year award. And Austin shows up with a black tie jeans, no shirt or jacket. And Martin claims that he's representing minority athletes network and said, McMahon gave less money than he promised and his check bounced twice. And his favorite wrestler is Austin. How great is this? You know, it, it, it was nice because these guys got it. And they like to have fun. They were big fans of the business and, and they got it. So they came out and they enjoyed fucking with Vince and being able to just amplify that Mr. McMahon character, which was still brand new and which was really hadn't taken off even the way that we had anticipated later on. So, you know, now we're still sitting there going, is there something here? And we were having fun with it and it worked and it was just guys coming out and getting, getting the joke, if you will. Well, clearly there's something here. I mean, you guys have already had him wrestle Austin on raw, but the fun continues here. Austin's picking his pocket, picking my man's pocket. That is pronouns, pal of $1,200. Then he gives it to the charity and says, McMahon is like the tightest SOB in the WWF. And then of course, undertaker's music plays. And then the Druids bring a casket to the ring, but it winds up being Kane coming out of the casket and mankind coming from the other side of the ring. And then they put Austin in the casket and, and Kane stands on top and he's stuck there. And that's when they do the whole, you know, making the uh, fire shoot out of the, uh, what'd y'all call that? I mean, I know you call it a boom technically, but whenever Kane would like motion his hands down and the fire shoots up out of the ring post, was there a, a name in the industry for that? Well, there was, it's the concussion is the big boom and everything, but it was just, God damn, I don't think we called it anything. God damn it, when he moves his hands out, I want to hear a boom. 
Well, I'm just rattle my boots. I'm just guessing they don't call it a concussion today. Uh, Raw that night did a 4.32. Nitro did a 4.03. The following week, Raw did a 4.3 and Nitro did a 4. On June 22nd, Raw did a 4.3 and Nitro does a 4.1. At this point, you guys are racking up the wins here, back to back to back. Is there any sort of high-fiving when these ratings come in on Tuesday or is it just business as usual? Business as usual, move the fuck on and let's continue to do it. Just keep doing what we're doing right. Let's talk a little bit about the June 15th Raw. Uh, I feel like this is worth mentioning. Shawn Michaels is here for the first time since WrestleMania, and he's here because they're doing the television in San Antonio. And Meltzer would write, the report from those who saw him was that he mentally appeared to be in better shape than in a long time. He had cut his hair, and he was able to sit down and stand upright for periods of time without excruciating pain. Do you remember him showing up here? Because we really haven't seen him since WrestleMania 14 in Boston. Now, granted, that was just a couple of months back, two and a half at this point. But still, a lot of people probably thought the way he left, we're not going to see him for a while. What'd you think? Okay. You ever see the, the paint? You remember the paint, the little Dutch boy? Yeah. Okay. And the haircut that the little Dutch boy had? Yep. Okay. Well, and I distinctly remember this television because it was, it was the first time we had seen Sean in, in quite some time and he had cut his hair and undertaker and I were in the backstage area when he came in and it was like, it, I mean, right at the same time, looked at each other and went, Oh my God, it's a little Dutch boy because he looked just like that kid on the side of the paint with the haircut. But it was, um, it was a different Shawn Michaels than we'd had before. He was in great spirits. I remember the, I even remember the boots he was wearing because they were the boots kind of the, with the sole that he works in now. And he wears them all the time and has them specially made, but it was, he looked good. He looked clean. He looked healthy. And it was, it was not the old rambunctious Sean. This was a new Sean with a smile on his face and saying hello to everybody in a pretty damn good mood. But the biggest thing was the haircut. This episode is being brought to you by Zen nicotine pouches, the simpler way to experience nicotine satisfaction and enjoy lasting change on your terms. Zen nicotine pouches are a fresher, simpler way to enjoy nicotine that's helped millions of people achieve lasting change by offering smoke-free and spit-free satisfaction. I don't know about you, but there's been many times in my life where I needed to make a change, like trying to be healthier, spending less time at work. I knew I needed to make a change, but I just wasn't ready yet. And a lot of smokers and dippers out there can probably relate. Zen understands there isn't just one quote unquote right time to make a change. Everyone's timeline is a little different. Everyone's on their own journey. So whether you feel like you're ready to take that first step towards change, Zen will be there with you with the right strength with the right flavor at the right time. If you're thinking about making a change and you want to learn more today, check out Zen nicotine pouches at ZYN.com. That's Zen.com. That's ZYN.com. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, deal that comes out in the June 8th Observer. Meltzer reports here that USA signed raw for three more years. And we just heard a few days ago that all these years later, 20 years later, in fact, USA has signed them again for five years. Do you remember at this time? I mean, obviously ratings are up. Are you guys still dealing with Bonnie hammer here? 
What was the relationship like after a few years prior? Maybe the ratings weren't where everybody would have liked, but now you guys are riding high. So it feels like the perfect time to get another deal, which is very Vince McMahon like. Yeah, it was. And I think we were, Bonnie, we were definitely dealing with Bonnie at this point, but Bonnie didn't have the kind of power at this point that she would later get at the USA Network. And I think we were dealing with Jeff Zucker. I think that's his name, uh, who was handling everything for USA Network at the time. And it was, it was a coup. It was one of those we wanted to stay on USA Network, but they were doing the same thing then. We were shopping it to other networks and seeing who was interested in USA as the home, and that's where we wanted to be. Let's talk about Over the Edge. Uh, this was in the Observer. The WWF paper, listen, Over the Edge, blew out the circuits because so many people ordered it all at the last minute. So everyone who ordered that show will now be given King of the Ring for free. That's right. I said pay per listen. And there's this weird deal where for a little while you guys experimented with the idea of you can't watch the show, but you can hear it. It's almost like podcasting before podcasting was a thing. Do you even remember hearing about pay per listen? I feel like I did a little pay per pay per listen as a kid on some of those adult channels. Yeah, I can't say that I have ever even heard of pay per listen. This is the first time I've ever even heard that term. So that might have been something they experimented with, but I was not involved in any way, shape, or form. Never even heard about it. Well, I'll tell you this. If nobody's heard about your business, you need to be advertising right here on something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. All you've got to do is drop a line to our fine sales team, heyheyadvertising at gmail.com, and Goldberg is going to hook you up. No, not that Goldberg. He's not going to kick your head into the fifth row. What he is going to do is get your word out about your business, about your promotion, about your offering, about your product or service to hundreds of thousands of listeners. And if you're looking for men, we got men in spades. Do we not, Bruce? Yes, we do. You want to reach men 18 to 54. Well, we've got them right here every single week. And did I hear something about... Goldberg lowering prices. We're not going to talk about that. that. I'm tired of you doing this. You've been talking about doing stuff for free and we're not doing that. Okay. If you want to promote your business, email Hey, Hey, advertising and gmail.com. And seriously, our man Goldberg, our Jewish salesman, he will hook you up. Uh, he's like five foot three. So he's not the real Goldberg. So you're safe and your business is safe promoting it here on something to wrestle. So drop him a line right now. Hey, Hey, advertising at gmail.com. And he'll hook you right up. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the company at this time, because we've got this storyline going with blood falling out of the ceiling and we're trying to make Kane like the top guy. And there is a bit of a mess here that I want to talk about that goes down on the June 22nd raw where Austin's doing a promo challenging Kane. Kane comes out and makes some motion, not like the concussion motion. And this red liquid comes from the cage and it's supposed to look like it's raining blood on Austin. Chat me up about this liquid. And I assume this is the same thing that Gangrel was using. Whose idea was this shit? Bro. What if we gave a giant bloodbath to Stone Cold from the ceiling. Kind of like when Carrie got the bloodbath in the movie. I forget the name, but her name was Carrie. 
And that was that was Vince's idea. He he loved the shit coming down from the ceiling. Whether it was shit, whether it was blood, no matter what the hell it was, he liked shit coming from the ceiling and falling on people's heads. It might have actually been shit because Austin gets hospitalized right after the Houston House show due to a staff infection in his right elbow. So you've probably seen this tape, maybe very recently on the WWE network. And you saw that he had it taped up and you might've wondered what's up with that. Well, allegedly he got a fever up to like 104 degrees. He had to have IVs. I mean, he's hospitalized for a while here and people aren't exactly sure where it's supposed to have happened, but people do think that he had like a bad elbow bruise that happened in either San Antonio or Austin. And by Wednesday, he had a mild fever and things just progressively got worse. What can you tell us about this staff infection and how hit or miss this looked for him? Because he's your top guy. He's the main draw. He's hotter than a cap gun. And here he is. Fucked up. And the fucked up thing about it from our vantage point was, you know, a lot of times when you think of staff, it usually comes from an open wound that gets infected and gets worse from there. And Steve didn't have a cut. He didn't have an open wound. So they think that it was internal, but it was, it was a freak deal. Banged his freaking elbow and it kept getting worse. And all of a sudden you see this red line coming up his arm, which is signifies staph infection. And they got him into the hospital. He wasn't feeling good. And Steve is one of those guys that unless he's, he's dying, he's not going to the freaking hospital. He just, won't go to the hospital unless it's absolutely a necessity. So when he reached 104 degree fever and was in enough pain that made him go to the hospital, he finally went and had to put him on the shelf for a few days while he got some IV, get some fluids in him and get some antibiotics in him to just get this thing under control. But it was a freak deal. And that's why they, they don't really know where it came from other than probably this deep bruise somehow. He missed some smaller house shows like Corpus Christi and Tyler, Texas, but he's scheduled to return in Houston and does work the main event because it's sold out of the compact center and he beat mankind, but he's in such pain that he has to go to the hospital. Like you're saying, which as if that wasn't enough around this same time, the undertaker suffers an ankle injury. And a lot of people believe he cracked it. And there's maybe some bone chips floating around after the June 16th tapings in Austin. So basically you guys need to stay the hell away from Texas. Uh, allegedly this locate that this injury happens on location in what was supposed to be Paul bear's house. And he of course tore that up on the raw that aired on June 22nd, but there's not really a noticeable spot where he was injured. And during the angle, Paul bear also suffers an ankle injury, which is probably when the undertaker's throwing furniture around, maybe something lands on his leg. What can you tell us about? just the bad timing here because undertaker is also off of Corpus Christi and Tyler, but he tries to work Houston, but he's limited so badly, um, that he and Kane just have a very short match ending with a double count out finish. And everybody has to be smartened up at that point that man, something's a miss, but now you've got two guys down seemingly at the exact same time. Well, not just two guys. You got two of your top guys and Oh Yes. Paul trying to get the hell out of the way and got his ankle fucked up from Undertaker throwing shit. And it was, 
it was just one thing after another. And it just was compounding to where you're going, what the hell is next? And it just was a shitty, just shitty timing on everything. Taker's ankle was, was fucked up, but, but Taker's ankle was more of, of like a twist and nobody thought it was broken. Nobody thought it was really that bad. Just keep off of it, tape it up pretty good and felt he'd be okay, ready to go. It is July, my friends, and the temperatures aren't the only thing that's rising this summer. That's right. This episode of Something to Wrestle is sponsored by Blue Chew. Guys, listen up. Confidence can take you far in life, and it can also help you in the bedroom, especially when it comes time to step up to the plate. And well, you know. That's where Blue Chew comes in. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. The process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. And the best part, it is all done online. So no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. I know how much of a pain that can be. We got no time to wait anymore these days. You don't have to do any of that. And Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA and prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet package and with blue chew men everywhere are excited to see the postman because when your package has arrived well your package has actually arrived so if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform blue chew is there to help and we got a special deal for our listeners try blue chew free when you use our promo code wrestle at checkout just pay five dollars shipping that's bluechew.com promo code wrestle to receive your first month free Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And as always, we thank BlueChew for sponsoring this podcast. Well, it's obvious when you watch this pay-per-view, when he drops down from the cage, and then when he comes out later oh, yeah. in the main event with a chair, I mean, he's limping like a sumbitch. Uh, it's something to see. So let's talk about, you know, the backup plan. And I know that you're going to say, oh, no, we knew they'd make it. But I mean, at least you guys have to float an idea. What if Austin's in the fucking hospital? Like what if Austin and or undertaker have to miss the show? Was there a plan B? (laughs) No, there wasn't because you're sitting there going, what is your plan B at that point? What the hell do you do? We really didn't have anything other than going with the king of the ring and making that your, your main match because your top two baby faces and the other two feature matches are, are fucked. Could have put Mick Foley against Kane, perhaps. But at that point, you're just trying to get the match in the ring and do anything you can to at least deliver a semblance of the attraction that you advertise. It comes out around this same time in the month of June that there were reports, especially in Japan, some in America, but a lot in Japan, that the World Wrestling Federation was interested in buying the Minnesota Vikings. And I know we've talked about this a little bit on our XFL episode, which is available in the archives at something to wrestle.com. But what do you remember about this alleged meeting on June 12th, where it's floated through the company that McMahon is considering buying the Vikings? What if I bought the Vikings. And we didn't know what the hell he was talking about really at first, 
But it was more than anything. It was a publicity stunt because they were floating out there that the Vikings were up for sale. And Vince floated it out there that he was interested in it. And I dare say that had the price been right, he might he might have even bought the damn thing for publicity purposes to make it, you know, to say, okay, the WWF just bought the Minnesota Vikings and Vince McMahon is now entering the football arena. So it worked. Got people talking. I love that you suggested he might have bought it for publicity. It cost more than the WWF at the time. I mean, it was it would have sold for hundreds of millions well, of dollars, I'm sure. Yeah, but he could have raised that money easily. He's Vince McMahon, damn it. I'm not doubting him. It is kind of funny to think too, that what if he would have bought the Vikings and like six years later, his champion walks out and then tries out for his other business. God damn it, pal. That'd be ludicrous. All right. Let's talk about why we're here. King of the ring, 1998. It's a sellout crowd here. 17,087 fans on hand, uh, 15,505 were paid and it set an all time city gate record of over 539,000 and they do like another 148 grand in merchandise. You guys are setting the woods on fire, man. Um, we've never really talked about this before. We know that some of the guys get pay-per-view bonuses. You work in the office at the time. Are you, are you getting any sort of bump when the business is doing so well? Well, I had a very unique deal in that Jim Ross and I, when it came time for to negotiate you know, people get in the office, they would get a yearly bump and they would go in and they would have their performance review and they would get their raises and what have you. And Jim and I went in and we essentially negotiate negotiated a decrease in pay, but a participation in the house shows and, and everything else. So we did participate and we, we took less money up front because we did have a hand in what was being presented out there in the house shows and television so that we wanted to be paid on our contributions. And that's what we did. So I, I took less money, guaranteed money up front to participate in the back end. Let's talk a little bit about the actual show itself. Uh, we start off with an interesting match to say the least. What can you tell us about our opener here? Well, I'll talk in the headbangers against damn the, the Kayentai and Dick to go and Funaki. <laughs> what? I was just waiting on you. I mean, I really just threw that opening match to you just to hear you say that one more time. What Dick to go and men's tail and Shoichi Funaki. The only one that's left was <laughs> left out of the whole damn match is Funaki left in the damn company. And he's had a hell of a run. Indeed. Thank you for that. This is an unannounced match. Uh, they say they put it together early in the afternoon here. Um, Meltzer would say solid, fast paced opener, some good moves, but it didn't have time to build. Uh, ultimately though, the finish sees Michinoku, which is Taka go ahead and get the pin on Funaki after the Michinoku driver. And it gets two and a quarter stars. It does feel a little bit like filler, but I don't know when we'll talk about these guys again. What can you tell us about men's Tao and Dick to go? Old Dick to go. Uh, well, you know, actually, when I watch this match and, and I start thinking about it, th this was our version of the WCW cruiserweight car wreck match. And that's exactly how Bischoff would explain it to him and tell those guys to go out and give me a car crash. Didn't give a shit about psychology, didn't give a shit about selling or anything else. This was our version of that where our guys actually sold and did tell a story in the match. But 
Kai and Ty, these were, uh, it was a hell of a group that we got from the Michinoku uh, Sasuke's group in Japan. Those guys wanted to get away from Sasuke so bad. And we also had Wally Yamaguchi, who was their manager, who was a long time higher up in Gong Magazine. And Wally was a great guy. But it was it was a spotlight thing. There was only so much that you could do with with Terry Boy and old Dick to go. And there's only so much you could really do with them, man. And and without having a, a big flourishing light heavyweight division, this was it. And I'd say it was a damn good solid match and a good opener. Let's talk a little bit about, and this is fun. I'm excited about this. Sable comes to the ring. Meltzer would write Sable walks to the ring without tipping over. He just can't help himself. By the way, it's been a while. I'll admit since I've seen any Sable from this era, I know we just did a Sable episode last week, but I just read, I didn't watch any footage. Sable was roll tied here in June of 98. I see why she was getting all these reactions. Well, yeah, but then the, the wrestling observer, uh, editorial paper, um, I can't even call it a newsletter anymore cause it's just an editorial bullshit paper, but good God, she looked beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it was. There you go. She was roll tied, man. She was hot as a firecracker. This, this outfit was painted on, and this is probably a, a scene you're familiar with. You've got Vince McMahon coming out with the stooges, the very early version, Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe. And as Sable turns to leave, Pat Patterson pats her on the ass and Jim Ross has a, an interesting comment. And then she slaps Pat Patterson and they show the replay multiple times. And, um, it does feel a little bit like during McMahon's promo, he's trying to stretch for time. And I'm not saying this as someone who knows what's going on, but it does feel like if you know that Austin's hurt and you know that undertaker's hurt. And you know, this other match wasn't even advertised. And now we've got a Vince McMahon promo in the middle of a pay-per-view. It feels like we're trying to just give the crowd something either entertaining or whatever, but we're trying to just feel for time here. Is that fair to say? Yes and no. And it was more of a line along the lines of Vince was looking at the pay-per-views and saying, why are the pay-per-views just a wrestling show? Why aren't we giving people more on the pay-per-views like they get on Monday night raw when they tune into a pay-per-view, they want the same storylines continued from Monday night raw. And he felt that the pay-per-views should give more of the same shit that we give them on raw, more backstage stuff, more in ring promos. So that's what he was trying to do there. And yes, and also kill time. We also did it later on in the show with, with Paul bear, but some of the comments, I mean, I listening to, to Jim Ross and talk about, you know, my Oklahoma buddies would, would marry her dog just to be a part of that family right there. Talking about Sable when she came to the ring and just going back and listening to some of Lawler. I mean, uh, yeah, Lawler and JR's commentary on this show was, was priceless. It was good shit. You know, science tells us the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering our core body temperature. And if you've ever lived in the South, you know what we're talking about. You've got a ceiling fan in your bedroom, right? And if you're like me, you used to crank down the AC just to get the house nice and cool because you knew you slept better. Well, it turns out we were onto something. Temperature-controlled sleep repairs your muscles after a hard day's work. It improves your cognitive function to strengthen your athletic readiness. Chili Sleep makes customizable, climate-controlled sleep solutions that help you improve your entire well-being. 
These water-based temperature-controlled mattress toppers fit over your existing mattress to provide you your ideal sleep temperature. It's like a smart thermostat for your bed. Their cooling technology leverages water's amazing thermal powers for deep, restorative sleep. They're designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. Now, Chili Sleep has been a game-changer in my life. I don't know how I ever lived without Chili Sleep. I was miserable. Just sleeping the way you do right now without chili sleep. Once I've had this thing, buddy, I am so spoiled. I cannot recommend this enough. I I went from sleeping six hours a night and kind of tossing and turning and fighting with my pillow. to I'm sleeping seven, eight, nine. I even hit 10 hours once. And I I can't tell you what it's like to wake up and not be tired. I know because of chili sleep now. I know I can't go back. Uh, Chili sleep, man, it's changed my life. Sincerely, I cannot recommend this enough. This is an investment in your well-being, and it is so well worth it. I have multiples. Everyone in my family has them now. Head over to chillysleep.com forward slash wrestle to learn more and save 30% off the purchase of any new Cube or Uller sleep system. This offer is available especially for something to wrestle with listeners and only for a limited time. That's chilly, C-H-I-L-I, sleep.com slash wrestle to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up feeling refreshed every day. So, uh, let's talk about, uh, the King of the Rings semifinal, because up next, man, you talk about a tale of two styles here. It's Ken Shamrock and Jeff Jarrett and Meltzer would write. The crowd wasn't into the match at all. And he says they didn't miss any moves. There's nothing wrong with it. They just didn't have enough time to build a match and they had no heat going in. Uh, he would write Shamrock nearly killed himself when he did a running hurricane Rana and in turning over appeared to hit his head on the mat and then clamped on the ankle lock for submission. One star. This is weird to look because you've got Jeff Jarrett and I don't know why, but he still feels a little out of place here to me. And he's got the big entrance with the fireworks and the whole deal. And he's got Tennessee Lee with him. And then you've got Ken Shamrock. He looks like ass kicker extraordinaire. What'd you think of the match when you watched this back? Good God. I thought that they had a pretty damn good match. I mean, it wasn't, uh, 18 star Furnham Snavitz reverse double explanation nation um hurricane rana but it was a damn good match it was solid and it did what it meant to do and that was get ken shamrock over like a damn monster no he was that for sure i guess we should mention that on his way in he beat comma and mark henry to get here and jeff had to beat farouk and mark marrow um shamrock on this bad landing here on the frankensteiner probably been a while since you saw that I mean, he had to have something going on after that. All right. Talk about getting your bell wrong. Yeah. I don't think that you, but th- that's the funny thing about Ken is you can never tell <laughs> if he got his bell rung or not, because he would never sell it. And he always kind of had that crazy look in his eye. Anyway, it looked absolutely brutal and you would have thought, but he came back. No, I'm fine. No, everything's good. What's next. Just kind of bobbing his head, ready to go eat somebody. In the other semifinal, we got Rocky Mavia pinning Dan Severn in four minutes and 25 seconds. Melser would write awful. Also no heat. He was not a fan. And he says Severn's inexperience at selling was killing the match. And he says Maya V's knee was giving him a lot of trouble and made his stomps look weak. In the end, he gave it a negative half star. Maya of course, gets the win here. What'd you think? I mean, Melser takes a hard stand here and he says, This may have been the first pinfall loss Severn has ever taken as a pro wrestler. While there was no other way out of this, the finish does kill Severn as an international pro wrestling attraction 
because all he had to offer was that nobody had ever beaten him. But of course he had to lose here. What'd you think? I thought it was the drizzling shits. It, it was, it was absolutely fucking terrible. It was clash of styles, clash of personalities. And as much as I like Dan Severn personally, it just, the, the WWE wasn't the place to highlight Dan Severn's talents. Dan legit, badass, great in the UFC and all that. But I just, Dan couldn't make that crossover into the mainstream. Uh, there was a spot there where he grabbed rock's knee and falls on rock's knee. And you, you even see rock camera was right in his face where he, he no sold it, but he sold it with a God damn it. And you could tell he was pissed and, and just and hurting. And there's not much, you know, there's not much you can do with Dan Severn if he doesn't want to do it. So that you add that to the, to the issue and the match absolutely sucked. Actually, I have to improve just to suck. Let me ask you, was there ever any consideration to doing a, a shamrock severed main event at King of the ring? You know, those guys had been one and one in the UFC. It feels like somebody somewhere would have said, Hey, what if, and obviously the inexperience on both sides would have probably talked you out of that, but yet you still wound up doing it with, uh, shamrock and Mavia. T- tell me about this. Well, absolutely. We thought, what if, when we had Severn and Shamrock together, however, neither one of them wanted to do it. And they, the reason they didn't want to do it is they felt that there was still money on the table in the MMA world to have that match again. So they didn't want to have a worked match. There was, what the hell do you do with it? Who do you put over? I mean, what, what, what do you do with it? There's nothing to do. Um, I don't think that they liked each other personally. They got along professionally, but okay, great. They're, they're one and one in a real world. Now you get to a worked world. Who do you put over? And then to get the other guy to, to actually want to do it when they both, when they both felt there was money on the table in the MMA world, that's why it never happened on the way here. Rock uh, had to beat Vader and triple H, which pretty interesting. Uh, Severin got here by beating D'Lo and Owen Hart. What do you think of, uh, Dave's comment in the observer here that this essentially kills off Severn's attraction because he's finally lost. And obviously in wrestling, everybody has to lose eventually, but what do you take? What do you, what do you think of Meltzer's assertion here? Well, what the hell do you, again, I asked the same question. What the hell do you do with him? Uh, does he never lose? Is that his attraction? Okay. Dan Severn's attraction is he's undefeated and he's never ever defeated otherwise he loses his (laughs) being a pro wrestling attraction man that's a tough gimmick to have unless you're a a kurt angle or somebody and even kurt angle could lose so in pro wrestling everybody's got to lose eventually and this was dan's time it was the right thing to do and I don't know that Dan was that big of a pro wrestling attraction internationally or domestically that it was really going to hurt him with the places that he would have been an attraction, I guess is what I'm saying. Around this time, Dan did an interview on the internet. And when he asked about the rivalry with Shamrock, he says, quote, let's just say he didn't get his body by just working out. But then again, most of the bigger guys in wrestling did not which I feel like it's probably going to get him some heat with the company. I mean, when you guys hear that he says something like that, 
you're not that far removed from the steroid issue. I mean, you're less than five years out. Is there any recourse on a Severin or was he never really an office favorite anyway? No, it was, it was a, what the fuck are you doing? What, what are you talking about here? And you've got to, you've got to be media savvy. You, you can, if you don't like the guy, okay, then learn how to work and learn how to put somebody over with a backhanded compliment, but don't do that. And that was taken as Shamrock was pissed off about it. Uh, JR was not happy about it. Wasn't a smart thing to say. And especially in, in the context of everything, it just wasn't, wasn't a smart and or nice thing to say and or do. Next up, we've got a fairly interesting match here. Only in the WWF would this happen. Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor are going to take on Al Snow and head. Yeah, that's uh, right. You said that right. Yeah. Mannequin head. Christopher Taylor. That's right. That's my name for him. Christopher Taylor beat snowhead. And the stipulation is snow has to leave the WWF Meltzer would write naturally after Sable lost the loser leaves and came back without even so much as an attempt at a logical explanation. And after Vader lost his mask only to still be wearing it the next day, any WWF stipulation doesn't mean a thing. And I doubt one fan actually cares if snow isn't leaving. What'd you think of this match in the stipulation that if he, if he loses, he's gone forever. Fucking hate it. It's fine. If he's gone forever, but I hated this time of nobody cares about the stipulations. Well, nobody cares about the stipulations. Then don't make the fucking stipulation. If it means nothing, then why do you make it? Oh, well, it means something for the attraction. No, it doesn't. If it does, if you don't fucking carry it out, it means nothing. And it kills all the other stipulations on down the line. So I hated it. Jerry Lawler was the special guest referee here, and he's really playing the, the heel referee. And eventually snow low blows Taylor and throws the head down and covers Taylor and Lawler won't count. So then Brian Christopher gets a bottle of head and shoulder shampoo and put head on the bottle and then covered both with Lawler counting three since the shampoo bottle represented the head's shoulders. Yeah. Head and shoulders. Uh, Meltzer would write, sometimes the comedy works and sometimes it doesn't. And this time it didn't even come close. Even Jim Ross basically admitted it was a travesty on television, which may also be a first negative two stars head and shoulders. Bro, they're gonna love it because they're gonna pop when they say, how can you pin the head? The head got no shoulders. So we put the shoulders on the head, the head and the shoulders. They're going to love it. All right, Bruce, let's talk about something that you and I have uh, talked about for a while here on the show, hair loss. Now I've shared with you that earlier this year, I turned 40 right before that took my parents to the beach for their anniversary. And as I saw my 63 year old dad getting into the pool, I noticed he was, uh, <clears throat> I think Tony Schiavone described Arn Anderson's as a flesh colored yarmulke. And I was a little nervous, Bruce. Hey man, I knew my dad was gray, but he can't be losing his hair too. That's not good for me. 
And then I remembered, Bruce, there's only two FDA approved medications that prevent hair loss. And I knew that because our friends at keeps offer both keeps has a simple stress-free way for you to keep your hair. I started doing it in April. You should too. You've got convenient virtual doctor consultations and medications delivered straight to your door every three months, meaning you don't even have to leave your home. It's also low cost, Bruce. Treatment started just $10 a month and keeps offers generic versions. They've got discreet packaging and proven results. Keeps but, has more five-star reviews than any of their competitors, Bruce. But, but I hate I, having to go to a doctor to get that stuff, man. Now it's showing up at your house. Come on. Doesn't get any better than that. And here's the thing I want to remind everybody. Don't wait until it's too late. Prevention is key. Treatments can take four to six months to see results. So act fast. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash wrestle to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's keeps.com slash wrestle to get your first month for free. That's keeps.com slash wrestle keeps.com slash wrestle. Now let's run through this. I, you know, there are other podcasts that have a meltdown in 2018 when someone wrestles a blow up doll. And I agree. Maybe that's not very old school, but good Lord, 20 years ago, we've got mannequin heads and shampoo bottles, bro. Yeah. Fucking horrible. Embarrassing. It, it was embarrassing. It really and truly was. And for those old school guys, me, Jerry Briscoe, um, it just, you sit there and scratch your head and go, what the fuck? Because it's, those are the things that people would point at and make fun of. And rightfully so. How do you defend that? Well, and what's weird too is as crazy as it sounds, Al Al Snow got this head gimmick over in ECW. I mean, he even main event at an ECW pay-per-view wrestle Palooza back in May for the ECW world title against Shane Douglas. And now that he got it over, you guys call him back up here or so it seems he starts showing up on raw and he's coming over to the commentators table, asking Lawler to get him a meeting with Vince. And that eventually leads to this match. And then here he is with this silly shit. This is probably not what he envisioned when he came up after being over with the head and ECW presented differently. Is that fair to say? I thought that the stuff that they were doing with Al leading up to this was some pretty damn entertaining shit with Al getting in the costumes and trying to sneak in the building and having the conversations with head and being crazy and what have you. To me, this just took all of, all of that and flushed it down the toilet. Um, Cause then that meant nothing. And it, it was just fucking terrible. Terrible is, is the kindest thing that I can say about it. It was, it was just not good. And when you watch this match, it is a perfect example of seeing all of the air just sucked out of an arena and killing a crowd is Jim Cornette would say, get her Kelsey's nuts, motherfucker. They were flatter than a plate full of piss. Terrible. <sighs> All right, let's talk about something that wasn't terrible. X Pac is wrestling Owen Hart. Finally, a good match here. They go eight minutes and 30 seconds. Meltzer would say the match had no heat, but the wrestling was good. X Pac worked as the face, but the crowd didn't take to him at all, uh, nor to Hart. 
So they were just indifferent, even though both guys worked hard. The only pop, and it was small, was X-Pac doing the Bronco ride spot. What did you think of this match? X-Pac gets the win here, and um, there is a moment when there's all sorts of interference here with China and Mark Henry that Owen puts X-Pac in the sharpshooter. The ref's not paying attention. X-Pac's tapping out, and then Vader comes out, does his body block on Henry, which causes <laughs> Vader to take a tumble himself. And while all this is going on, China gets in the ring, gives Owen a DDT. The ref turns around and counts X-Pac for the pin. So even though you've got two world-class performers here and X-Pac and Owen Hart, they got to have all this shit going on. You got China, you got Vader, you got Mark Henry, two and a quarter stars. Why didn't this match get over with the crowd? Is it just the way these characters had been presented? But and, well, and and why was it necessary to have all the the extra shenanigans here? Well, I disagree that it didn't get over with the crowd because I thought that the crowd was going to be happy to see anything after the debacle they had just seen with uh, Head and Too Cool. So the match itself was solid, man. It, it was a good snug match. They told a good little story, but watching it, I can see. I think you know how X Pac has torn his butthole a few times. Well. Okay, that's quite the transition. Well, I was going to say that when you watch this match and he takes the bump off the top rope and straddles that top rope, that may have been the first tearing because that looked like it would have torn a butthole, if you ask me, just going back and watching that match 20 years later. So that might have started the tear. I got to say, Bruce, I don't know where to transition from Xbox butthole tear here. So let's try to move along here. I, I do feel like we should mention... um that during the 94 King of the ring four years prior to this, Owen defeated the then one, two, three kid on his way to winning the tournament. And this is sort of fun because we get a rematch four years later that really, if you're not paying attention, you want to slip on, but these guys had a cool little feud again here, even building this up on raw. There was a, a match where Owen's wrestling and X-Pac comes down and hits Owen in the back of the head, very hard with a chair. And it looks like he busts his head open on the backside and, and their brief feud ends after this. Was there some heat over the chair shot? What can you tell us about the chair shot that busted Owen's head open? Well, Owen was pissed off, but you know, it's accidents, man. It's wrestling and shit's going to happen. So you just chalk it up and you know that a receipt's coming. It was so bad that they actually replayed it, which is funny sometimes when a real bad accident happens like that you replay it and say okay he got seven staples or whatever owen got in the back of his head you look at those chair shots that get seven staples it probably hurt like hell and then you look at some of the other just devastating chair shots and they don't match up because it's like people are going well that one didn't look that bad because from the angle it was it's like wasn't that bad but yeah he caught him on the corner of the chair and owen was was a little pissed off but man they worked through it and it was good for business as the old timers would say that's good for business kid why was the feud dropped here i mean owens in the nation you know you guys are doing the uh the spoofs but it doesn't feel like they continue this momentum very much here and xbox pretty hot i mean this is his first pay-per-view back uh, after coming back to the company the night after wrestlemania 14 he didn't wrestle too often before this i assume he was still hurt and this was one of his first matches back. 
Right. And there wasn't, and frankly, there wasn't a whole lot of thought to continuing a lot of the issues and storylines. It was a week by week, the way that they were writing TV and just going on that they're, okay, we'll have this match and then we'll move on from it. And we'll have this match next week and we'll start a new story here. So there wasn't that thought into where are you going to go in three weeks? Where are you going to go in six weeks? And what story is this going to tell? It was just, let's have matches and let's tell a quick story. And that's the end. Move on. Well, it's not the end because next up, we've got the new age outlaws taking on the midnight express. These guys are going to go almost 10 minutes here. And, uh, Meltzer says midnights were still acknowledged as NWA tag team champions, even though the NWA gimmick is gone and they are basically the lowest level jobber team on the roster. He gives it a star and a half. Uh, of course, you know, what's coming. Jim Cornette hits Billy with one of the NWA tag belts. Of course, Billy kicks out and Cornette does a run in to the second spot. And this time Billy gets up and China as Cornette stalls comes from behind and gives Cornette a low blow. So then both of the outlaws give Bob Holly a double hot shot and Billy pins him star and a half. What'd you think of the match here? And how fucking awful is the Midnight Express in 1998? It was fucking awful. No chemistry whatsoever. And the crazy thing about that is Billy and Bart were tag team partners for a long time. They had chemistry as a tag team against each other. Drizzling shit. The guys just sometimes, man, they just can't, you just can't go. And this was one of those examples of four great workers that couldn't get it together, man. And it was like fucking watching oil and water. It was painful to watch because you know that all four of them are better. And they kept talking about how, you know, bodacious Bart and bombastic Bob, former tag team champions and this, that, and the other thing and road dog and Billy, it just sucked. It just sucked. And even here's how you start off the match. You start off the match with Jim Ross talking about NWA uh, tag team champ, but they're wrestling for the important championship tonight, the WWF tag team champions. So now all of a sudden you've already discounted your tag team in, in the new Midnight Express. They don't mean shit. And it was fucking horrible. No chemistry whatsoever in the drizzling shits. And, and I couldn't help but just sit there and, you know, as you watch this match and staring at Bob Holly and, and his hair where he had the almost the, the kind of skullet like Michael Hayes has now with. Let's talk about Ken Shamrock beating Rocky Maivia 14 minutes and nine seconds. Shamrock becomes your King of the ring tournament winner. And of course, Hunter Hearst Helmsley is there doing ringside commentary. What'd you think of his commentary? What'd you think of the match? And this is really a trilogy because these guys had three matches in 98 on pay-per-view, the rumble WrestleMania. And now this one. Of the three matches, which one did you prefer? God, uh, <laughs> I, I can't pick one, but these guys, Rock and Shamrock, they enjoyed working with each other and as little chemistry as the tag match had before. You had chemistry with Rock and Shamrock. But for me, you know, you asked about Hunter's commentary. I thought it was drizzling shits. I hated Hunter on commentary because it was all that smart ass shit. And it sounded like a 16 year old teenager with all of his one liners and cute little things that they had to get in. 
and it took away from the match and it just it just took away from it and they're trying to do stuff with rock and hunter and all, and I get all that shit but there's a way to get your talent over and get the guys in the ring over get yourself over without burying people with the smart ass shit all the time and to me it was just way too much i can't believe you said something negative i always say negative shit wow i'm proud of you if I can get you to do that on the network sometime. Ask me the question on the network. Oh my God. It's up to me to do everything. I forget. Goddamn right. So the match gets three and a quarter stars. I dug the match. There was something about shamrock and rock that just clicked for me. How did these guys enjoy working with each other? They loved working with each other. And that's why it showed. That's why you enjoyed it. And you enjoyed it because you get lost in it and it felt real. And when they got out there, Everything that Shamrock did, and the one thing I always loved about guys like Ken Shamrock and Kurt Angle was, yes, they had their finish, the same thing they went to, but they always went into it in a unique and different way. So you always saw something new from him, and that's that's what you got here. And it was a great coming out party for Ken Shamrock to try and do something with him and get him over. Oh, Hey, real quick. I want to remind everybody and listen up wrestling fans. It's time to win with Zen get to wrestlingprizes.com right now to register for your chance to win one of four once in a lifetime digital Q and a sessions with wrestling legends like the nature boy himself, Rick flair, Eric Bischoff, the WWE hall of famer, maybe the voice of wrestling, Jim Ross, or what about the hardcore legend, Mick Foley winners will also get an autographed replica title belt and a prize pack from Zen. That's America's number one nicotine pouch register once per day. Now through July 15th at wrestlingprizes.com. Here's a disclaimer for you. There's no purchase necessary to enter or win. It's open to us residents, 21 and over void where prohibited for official rules. Visit wrestlingprizes.com. warning. This product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. I do want to point out here that, um, Shamrock becomes king of the ring. And it looks like he's going to be poised for big things because in this era, that was certainly, you know, what was next. I mean, you saw Hunter level up, you saw Austin level up, you saw Owen and Brett. I mean, everybody who's one King of the ring goes on to do big things for the most part. And he eventually wins the intercontinental title, but then he joins the corporation and it feels like he never really gets to a regular main event spot in hindsight. And I've asked you this before, but we've watched more stuff recently. You changed your opinion on Shamrock. Do you think that Shamrock was a missed opportunity to be in the main events? I think that what happened with Ken Shamrock is timing that if he had been in any other time with not so many top guys, you know, look at, look at the level of top talent we had. There's only so many people that can be in that top spot and had Kenny come in a little bit prior to, or a little bit after it might've been different, but in that time frame that Ken came in, that was as far as he was going to rise. So let's talk about while we're here, it feels like we have, uh, been building to this moment as we're over an hour into the show, the match that changed everything. The undertaker gets a win over mankind. It officially goes about 16 minutes. This hell in a cell match. I don't know. I mean, there's no way for us to really just talk about the match without talking about everything that led up to it. And the memories of the match. And I feel like now is one of those times where I'm just going to let you, I'm going to lay out and I'm going to let you talk about this 
from everything that was happening sort of behind the scenes that week. And then I'll chime in because this is one of those stories that people have been asking about for a long time. I mean, Mick Foley has made this part of his tour all year, the 20 years of hell tour. He's been doing comedy clubs across the nation. And I think he's even going to take it to Australia later. And it's all about this match. Really. It's maybe the most famous match in company history, certainly in this era. I mean, you might could say Andre Hogan was bigger, but that was a little before my time here. This is as big as it was. I mean, people are still making references to it in a way they don't talk about any other match. So let's start from the beginning. When did you first hear that they were going to do hell in a cell and sort of take us through all of this? Well, leading up to it, there was a lot of talk about doing at the time it was mankind and stone cold for the championship. And this would have been, had we gone with that match, it would have been, I believe the third time that Steven Mick Foley would have worked. And I just don't think that in a row on pay-per-view. Yeah. And, and there wasn't a lot. I don't want to say there wasn't any confidence in it, but Vince McMahon didn't feel that that attraction for a third time was, was what we needed. And, and he wanted to do something different. He wanted to shake it up and he wanted to do unpredictable in something nobody would ever call, which is what, what they did with Kane. So leading up to that, then you get, get to the point of, okay, then what the hell do you do with Mick? We built been building Mick with Steve. And then now undertaker really doesn't have a dancing partner. So, <clears throat> I think it was Vince McMahon who was like, why not do, you know, mankind and take her one more time, put him in the cage and put him in the confines of this monstrous cage and and have that epic fucking match. Well, it's also mentioned, you know, fully wrote about this, of course, in his book that Russo breaks the news to him, quote, cactus, we're just concerned. The audience won't buy another match with you and Steve. And originally this was supposed to be the blue off with mankind, Austin in the cage. So mankind sort of assumes, okay, well I'm out of the cell and he gets good news from Russo. Oh no, you're still in the cell. They're just going to do it with the undertaker. But in mankind's mind, Mick Foley's mind at the time, he's got to be not overjoyed with that either because he went from working with the, the tippy top guy who's got a staph infection to now the not as hot guy, but still a major guy, but a guy you've had six pay-per-view matches with. And oh, by the way, he can't walk. He's got a jacked up ankle. Right. And I think that Mick kind of felt, what the hell do I do now? And both guys, you know, Taker felt the same way. Taker kind of felt like, what else do we have to do that we haven't already done? And you put him in the cell and now that raises expectations as, you know, there had been this Shawn Michaels and Undertaker great cell match that everybody is raving about. How do you top that? And that was Mick Foley's mindset is how in the fuck do I top what Undertaker did with Shawn Michaels? So is as, as legend has it, I believe, and I'd always thought it was a lot of Mick Foley, but it was Mick Foley and Terry Funk going back and just talking about what the hell can we do? What can I do to make this match different? How do we take this to the next level? And the funny thing was, was Mick after watching the match was kind of like, 
there's nothing we can do. What the fuck? How, how do you top this match? And as legend has, it was Terry Funk that said to him, start the match on top of the cage. Which, which, which you would think when you hear that, where the fuck do we go from there? You know, if we're starting on top, where do we go from there? Now, if you haven't watched the first hell in the cell, you really should go watch that because undertaker, Shawn Michaels really set a new precedent. I know you hate it, but Meltzer gave it five stars and that match is tremendous. We've covered it in our archive, something to wrestle.com. And even mankind would write in his book that when he watched this match with Terry, that Terry said cactus, that's going to be difficult to beat. And so he suggests starting at the top. And I think everybody naturally thinks, well, where do you go from there? God damn kid. Just get on the top of the fucking cage. Start it up there. Make that big bastard chase you. Well, not, not only where the hell do you go from there? Uh, my first question when I'm hearing is how the fuck do you even get there at the beginning? You, you got to get there at some point. Um, and when I heard, heard what they had laid out, it's kind of like, okay, then what you, you throw him off the cage. He takes this great bump. That should be the end. That's the finish. Where the fuck do you go from there? And when Mick says, we're going to climb back up and go back up to the top. But you just got thrown off through a fucking table. Then what? We're going to go through the cage. Wait a minute. You're starting on top of the cage. You're getting thrown off. Then you're going to climb back on top of the cage. You can completely kill the bump that you just fucking took. Yep. And then you're going to go through the fucking cage. Yep. To the ring. Mm-hmm. I, I I just don't fucking get it. But as they laid it out, and and you start you start talking about it, you, the way when you tell somebody like I just told you, it's like okay, start on top. Bam, we're going to have a fight on top of the cage. I've got a fucking chair. King Cancun, boom, big bump off the fucking top. Boom, go carry him out. You come down off the cage. They think I'm done. I come back, jump up on the fucking top of the cage. We go again. This time, you choke slam me through the fucking cage. It doesn't make sense. However, when you watch how they did it and the time, when Mick Foley took the initial bump, the first bump off the top of the fucking cell, he didn't move. He just laid there like a sack of shit and did not fucking move. Jim Ross's call on that was, oh my God, he's broken in half. Good God, he's broken in half. You believed it. And the way that they shot it and got off of it, shot it and got off of it, because it gave you the impression that, oh my God, He's not moving. He could very well be dead. And that was a scary thing. And Mick took it so damn well that no one really knew other than Terry, when he got down there and made sure he was okay. But Mick separated his fucking shoulder on the bump. 
And he thought that was, oh, well, that's okay. I just, I just separated my shoulder. Then they go through and, and everybody talks about all that, the, you know, the bump, everybody thinks that bump, uh, from the top of the cage through the table, what a horrific bump is the bump, the scary bump, the bad bump was the bump. He took off the top of the cage onto that fucking concrete ring that we used to have. And that wasn't supposed to happen that way either. The initial, the original idea behind the bump in the ring was when they got back up to the top of the cage that they fought on top of the cage until Taker picks Mick up and goes to, to slam him through the cage. And when he choke slams him, a little bit of the cage gives and you see it give. And Taker looks down and Mick's there and he picks Mick back up, takes him back up again and choke slams him a second time. And more of the cage gives. And the people are watching and they're seeing the, the cage start to sink from the top and, and Foley's body weight is starting to come down and shit. And Taker reaches over and fucking on that third time, hopefully. And now he crashes through. But it wouldn't have been the bump from the top of the cage. It would have been probably about the equivalent of maybe right about the top rope of the cage by the time for the third time. And, and the thought was that cage would have broken his fall. Well, everybody saw what happened. First time, the cage was gimmicked, and it didn't break away like they thought it would. It just went. And add on top of that, there's the chair being up on the cage panel that Mick took the bump through and just followed Mick right down and smashed right into his face, knocked his teeth out. Um, it was brutal. And anybody that's taken a bump in those old WWF rings they were the stiffest things. It was, I'd rather take a bump on the concrete than those old rings. So it was a little snug. Man. And Taker standing up there thinking, oh shit. He ain't moving again. So here comes Terry Funk. Here comes the doctors. Here comes the referee. And everybody's trying to talk to Mick. And Mick is out of it completely out of it, but he's going on just pure adrenaline at this point, telling everybody, um, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. And once Taker up on top kind of gets a sign that it's like, okay, he's okay. And Taker jumps down and you see him, he's favoring that ankle pretty good when he jumps down from the top of the cage. But to give Mick even more time to get his bearings, Terry Funk fed in and got choke slammed right out of his shoes. Which, again, thank God for Terry Funk being down there. But a lot of that shit, like Vince coming down to check on Mick, that wasn't that wasn't part of it. Vince was genuinely concerned. Like, is he okay? I have to know. And wanted to be there. It was some scary shit because we didn't, you know, we really didn't know. You see, he's moving. And I'm talking to people and saying, is, is Mick okay? And they're going, yeah, he says he's fine. You can't be fine after that. I don't give a fuck who you are or what you are. But, uh, man, they continued on with the match and went another, another little while, including thumbtacks, which the line of the night, for me after the match was Mick Foley coming up to me and apologizing to me 
for forgetting the thumbtack spot. Oh. Said, I'm so sorry, Bruce. I, I totally forgot the thumbtacks. I'm so sorry. But but other than that, was it okay? Now he's got thumbtacks stuck all over him. I said, Mick, you got the thumbtacks in. He says, I did? I'm like, you got the thumbtacks in, man. He goes, Oh, okay, good. Good. Now the fucked up and the fucked up part, you know, for, for me throughout this whole thing, when all this shit's happening and the the choke slam through the cage. I knew I knew the two big bumps and I knew the finish. But I didn't know what they were gonna do immediately after the the bump into the ring. And I'm screaming in the backstage for Pat Patterson. I'm going fucking nuts. And I'm I'm angry at this point because Pat's the agent for the match. And he's not there at Gorilla to talk me through the thing. And Jerry Briscoe comes up to me and and sits me down and says, "What do you want?" I said, "I've got to know what the hell what what we're doing here. What what was planned here? What can we cut out? What can we do? What's going on? Where the fuck is Pat?" And Jerry just looks at me. He says, "He got a call about Louie, and Louie was Pat's partner for many 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 years, thirty five plus years." And shut me down. I looked at him and said, oh, my God. I says, Louie, okay? And Jerry just looks at him and says, he's dead. Oh, man. And here's Jerry. Here I am, Pat Patterson, best friend in the business. Jerry Briscoe, another best friend in the business. And the two of us, we've got a job to do in front of us. I'm screaming like an asshole and a lunatic for Pat, not knowing what had happened. I think Jerry knew. I, I don't even know if Vince knew at that point. And, uh, just that, you know, that calm comes over you and, and it's, it's a, it's a surreal feeling because all, all this other shit that you think is so important becomes really unimportant and your priorities go just, yeah. it was just, it was fucked up. So like in all of that, Pat's getting, getting a phone call that, that Louie has passed. I'm yelling for Pat. Where the fuck are you to tell to talk me through this wrestling match? And Briscoe gives me the news is, is cool. And as calmly as somebody can do that. And just looked at me and was like, let's just get through this. Because to everybody else, that didn't matter. And we just got through it. And then you're looking at you're looking at guys in the ring that are putting their bodies on the line and risking their life, literally, taking bumps and doing this crazy shit that you wonder, wow, is is it all worth all that? And I wonder sometimes, man, it just, yeah. I said, I said to Mick then I've said to Mick today, you know, a big, I just hated the punishment he put his body through. I really and truly did his, his body, his head, everything. And, um, it was just a crazy night, man. It was a fucked up night. 
I don't know where to go from here, man. You, uh, you just dropped a lot on us. That's a lot to process here. You know, it, it was, it put shit perspective, I guess, because like I said, it, it's for, for the moment you're, you're worried about, you're worried about a wrestling show. And in the, in the, in the midst of this wrestling show, you see a couple of your friends out there putting, risking their, their life and doing this incredible stunt work, I guess you could call it, but stuntmen wouldn't be as crazy to do some of the things that Mick Foley did in the middle of that real life is happening backstage. And you just gotta, you gotta put your smile on and move on and, and keep going and not let anybody know. Um, I, this is another, you know, another night, you know, the, the rock, uh, cause rock and Pat were very close and, and, and thank God he was there to, to, you know, be with Pat and shit. And, and I think Linda McMahon was there, but it was, uh, yeah, man, it was just, it was a lot of shit. You know, that's the untold, that's the untold portion of, the hell in a cell in Pittsburgh that night of everything else going on and, and Pat losing, losing Louie, uh, well, it was just a, a crazy, crazy night. And then, you know, they, 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 they went on and I remember Vince just sitting there thinking, you know, God damn, tell them to go home. You know, what, what else are they going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I know Mick had a had a thumbtack spot in here, but I think they're gonna skip that. And then he goes and gets the fucking thumbtacks. So it was um it was a night to remember. It's a night I will never ever ever forget, just on so many, so many levels. Um craziness. Craziness, man. How'd you know about the thumbtack spot? I knew that the thumbtacks were under there. Mick, Mick had told me about that spot beforehand. I mean, this is the first they'd... time they've been used in the WWE, right? Yes. And they were, they were sterile and, um, how does Richie Posner? How does that huh? work? I mean, does he get it approved through somebody? Does he tell you on Monday, Hey, I need a bag of thumbtacks. And then you guys are thinking of safety and you have somebody sterilize them or what's the process? Yeah, Richie Posner got got a bunch of thumbtacks and got them sterilized just to make it as safe as safe as taking a bump on thumbtacks can be. Um, and got a huge bag of them, and we Mick decided how many he wanted to use and put them underneath the ring. So we we knew that pro probably a few days beforehand. Is there any hesitation? I mean, this it's a major moment in the company to use a weapon like this. You guys have never used anything like thumbtacks before. And you would probably have argued if you heard that, you know, guys were doing it, you know, in combat zone wrestling or something like that. Oh, that's silly horseshit. But yeah, here it's okay. Why the change? Well, I think that it was pitched to Vince Vince. Come on, you're putting us out there to do this hell in a cell match. We've worked six times. We've got to do something different. I promise it won't be too much. And Mick could be pretty convincing in his arguments and selling shit to Vince. 
and he was able to sell it. I didn't like it. Uh, I don't. I don't know that Vince McMahon really liked it, but he approved it, and he let him do it. Did he approve it because he had taken the Austin match away from him, and he felt like he needed to give him something? I think that he felt for the match and for everything that he was feeling their pain of, hey, yeah, this is the seventh time we're working with each other in a big match. It's got to be different. We need to we need to have something different. As if the the two big bumps weren't enough. When did Vince McMahon know about throwing motherfuckers off cages? Um, probably early in that week. But again, you know the 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 one bump going off off the cage onto the announce table. I guess was as safe as you can make something like that. And the second bump was meant to be something else, and that was that was something that just just went wrong. It was supposed to be work at it, work at it, work at it. And then it finally gives and he like is hanging on as it falls, not just breaking right. through. Right. Cause nobody would have wanted, I mean, <laughs> no one in their right mind would ever take that bump, uh, from the top of the cage like that. Well, it is something that people still talk about because a lot of people debated Well, you can see the zip ties clearly it was supposed to break, but you're saying. Not like that. It was supposed to break, but in time, not on the very first contact with it. Correct. It was supposed to gradually give until like about the third choke slam to where he would finally go through, but the cage would be breaking his fall along the way. You know, what's weird is when I watched this match back this week, it's the first time I've watched it in a long time. And I guess I'm just getting older now and it sort of clicked in my brain. Like what if he missed that table? It's not like earlier in the day. You know, I know sometimes before a big pay-per-view, if somebody's like, oh, I want you to do like a reverse power bomb or something, they, they do a walkthrough. There's no walking through throwing yourself off the fucking cage. Like they're, you're just doing it. And it's not, I mean, I know that he had had a lot of experience jumping off the ring apron to the concrete floor. I get it. But the distance you're going, the height you're up, you know, and it's not like you got a spot on the concrete. You're really trying to hit. If you get a little bit of a guy or you get all of a guy, it doesn't matter. I mean, this is different. This is much higher and something he's never done before. What if he missed? What if he hit the people, you know, the Spanish announced team? What if he hit the guardrail? What if he hit the concrete? Mick Foley could very easily be dead from that spot or certainly paralyzed. Well, and Mick was in complete control of the, of the bump the whole way. So at that point you have to look at him and have the confidence in him to either do it or not. And he's the one that's taken the risk and he's the one that, that has looked at it and feels that he can pull this off. Um, you know, we had, we had the table confidence and I get when you're saying he's in control, I understand that. Undertaker's not throwing him off, but I am saying you're leaving it up to a guy's judgment to hope that he's right on something he's never done before. And if he's wrong, you've just had a death on pay-per-view, like a horrific accident on pay-per-view. You can say that about any bump and you can say that about, uh, you can say that about anything. And unfortunately there, there have been horrific accidents that have happened on much simpler bumps. So let me, let me, that that's every day. Those guys take that risk. Let me ask. And this. it was a risk. And I think everybody knew it was a risk. I don't, you know, this is a weird question. I ask 
if the Owen accident had happened before this, there's no chance this bump happens, right? I don't think so. No. It's just weird to think about how so much of everything changes after those two things, you know, this bump and which is obviously scripted and then a very real tragedy, but really a couple of things go differently here. And this could have been totally different in his book. Foley wrote about this, that cactus was sort of pitched this idea jokingly by funk. Maybe you should start on top and just let him throw you off. And he says it jokingly and Foley sort of jokes back. Oh, and then I can climb back up and he can throw me off again. And eventually he decides, wait, I think I can really do this. And he spends the next week or two trying to pitch the undertaker on less starting up top and undertaker shoots it down every time. And then eventually he says to cactus, why are you so intent on killing yourself up there? And Foley wrote that he answered because I'm afraid the match is going to stink. You can't walk and let's face it. I don't have any heat. We've got a heck of a legacy to live up to, and I don't want this match to ruin it. If we start out hot enough, we can make the people think we had one hell of a match. Even if we didn't eventually the undertaker comes around to the idea. Did you have a conversation with undertaker about climbing to the top of the cage with this hurt foot? And then throwing a motherfucker off because even though we understand wrestling and Foley's really gonna, he's going to do it himself. The perception would certainly be different if this went poorly and it would affect the undertaker. And this is somebody he cares about who he's done a lot of business with. Who's doing this. Did you have a conversation before or after the match with undertaker? Well, I had, I had a lot of conversations with both Mick and undertaker before the match. Just and and frankly, after the match, just thinking, <sighs> think about what they were trying to top. They were trying to top Shawn Michaels from the middle of the Hell in a Cell, standing on a crossbeam, taking that bump into the announcer's table, which was absolutely spectacular at the time. And Mick feeling he had to top that so that people wouldn't think the match sucked. And that's the part that, that always would get me. It's like, then what? <laughs> okay. Then how do we top that? And we, and we found ourselves in that position, you know, to where, when, uh, Mick and Hunter were on top of the cage and Mick took the bump again through the top of the cage, but we had the, the ring gimmick so that he went through it and it was completely safe. And we did practice that. And we did make sure that went as planned beforehand. But it, it's, yeah, it's crazy, man. It was a different business. And guys, a lot of times they look at that and like you look at Mick Foley's legacy and that's in so many ways, that's his legacy. That bump, that night. Um, fact that he kept going and he was out of it. And the fact that, you know, when he comes back, he convinces all of us, no, got my bell rung, but I'm okay. I can go out, my shoulder's out, but but the doctor popped it back in. I'm fine. It's an easy spot that I got to go out and do with Steve. I've got it. I'm fine. That wouldn't happen today either. No, we haven't even gotten to that part. It's just crazy to think about that he came back out. He does sort of freestyle in the book that, quote, I had missed the monitors, which was my biggest concern. 
Can you imagine if he'd have hit the fucking monitor? It never even crossed my mind until I read that in the book again this week. Well, the way that the monitors were in there for that, and if the if the top had been off, that would have been an issue. But it was it, that part of it was actually safe because of the way they were positioned. There was no monitor in the middle, and they were on the outside, and they were gimmick to go. And then later on, we just guys would get rid of them, which I always thought was silly. Why would you throw if you're gonna put a guy through a table, why are you throwing the monitors out of the way for a smooth, nice, even flat finish or a flat flat bump? If you want to hurt somebody, leave the monitors there. Um but actually that part of it was really to me the least of the worries. To me, the the worry was he hits that table and slid. You know, and just slid right off the damn thing. And as you say, either went into the barricade, went into the people. Um, there were just a lot of things, a, a lot of what ifs that you knock on wood and you thank God didn't happen. And it's, then the shit that was supposed to happen that did, you know, the, the, the other bump is like, fuck me. That's you, crazy. You know, Foley is critical of the way he took that choke slam, the one that put him through the cage, because he says it's the only time he didn't go high for an undertaker choke slam. Understandably he's hurting here. I mean, he, he, thank had, to, God. he had to climb the cage you know, as you said, with a separated shoulder, which is probably not easy at 300 pounds. And so when he's finally up there, I mean, he just can't get up for him. So he winds up just falling into the cage, but he says that if he had went high, he's worried that he would have over rotated and landed on his head. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, it's to the point that Foley even wrote in his book, he asked the undertaker, Hey, what'd you think when you looked down from the top of the cage and saw me on the mat? And he says, Undertaker didn't skip a beat and said, I thought you were dead. That's just scared shitless. And, and what's weird too is, you know, when the Undertaker finally gets down there, he says, Jack, let's go home. And Foley wrote that he said, No, no, I'm okay. Which is just amazing. All um, right. He's so out of it. He's he's even asking the referee, was I already on the stretcher once tonight? Yes. I mean, obviously we don't know back then what we know now about head injuries. I mean, this would never happen, but it's just unbelievable. And and you even referenced the whole, sorry, I forgot the thumbtacks thing. When he comes to the back, is there like a standing ovation? What's the reaction when he comes through the curtain? I mean, this oh is something like out of a movie. Yeah. You know, Taker and Vince were right there for him and, and just hugged him. And it was definitely a standing ovation because it was an unbelievable performance. And people were concerned, first of all, for his well-being, thinking, how in the hell is he walking? Um, how did, How did he get up? You know, when he had the tooth up his nose. Crazy. Well, we thought it was snot. You know, what's funny. We thought it was a big loogie. I watched this match this week and my person saw it for the first time. And she said, is that his tooth in his nose? Yes. Yeah. We thought it was snot at first. How did it get there? The hard way. It's crazy. Right through his lip. This person's still alive. It's amazing. Yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, I, I like to point <laughs> as much as I love Mick, 
uh, I like to point to some of the things Mick has done to young guys and say, don't, you don't need to do this. And Mick didn't need to do it. He really didn't. You know, when he's in the back and I guess we should talk about him because we have it here. You guys had like a chiropractor that people have asked a lot of questions about over the years who was help adjusting guys. What's his role here in trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again? Francois Petit. And Francois Petit uh, was a, he was a hybrid of a chiropractor, a kinesiologist. He did all these, a lot of different crazy things. But people with, a lot of athletes with unique injuries would often go to Francois and he would put them back together, um, manipulate their joints and their bones and everything. And, um, man, I've never been adjusted by anybody like, like Francois. I mean, he would hurt you. It hurt, but afterwards you felt better. Um, and he liked, you know, we call them Dr. Dr. Petit or Francois. He was sub zero in the, uh, mortal Kombat movie franchise. And he was a stunt coordinator things like that more than anything. He was pretty much a crazy motherfucker, but he would pop guys back into place. I broke my ankle one time. He set my ankle, wrapped it and I was done and I could walk on the damn thing. Um, he was amazing like that. It was hard to explain. There, there were stories about him doing, okay, now don't laugh him doing open heart surgery on people and repairing arteries without obviously opening them up just with his hands. And he would go in and do bypass surgery on people. That's real life. What the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. The, those were the legends of Francois Petit, but, but guys would go and they would spend a couple days at his place in California. And that's how, you know, we came about him because he was putting people back together and we thought, well, instead of having guys go to him, let's bring him to us. And those that want to use him can use him as a chiropractor and to help them with their injuries and help them rehab and different things like that. So, but he could, yeah, he could pop a shoulder back in. He, it was always like, let me reduce it. I can reduce it. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, Vince Russo was a big fan of old Francois. Russo would go out and spend vacation and weeks out with Francois in California and tells a great story about Francois racing Warren Beatty on uh, the Sunset Strip somewhere in California. But he was he was this this crazy, crazy doctor. The real doctor that we had was Dr. Frank Romascavich, and that was the guy with the long hair at the very end of it. And they point him out. That's Dr. Romascavich. He was the real doctor that was there that actually stitched Mick up and 14 stitches in the lip he got. And I assume that's also who's pulling the thumbtacks out of his person. That was Dr. Romascavich and Francois both. Yeah. With, with pliers, little needle nose pliers one by one. Process what we're talking about right here. So there's even footage of. McMahon going to congratulate him and thank him for everything he's done for the company. But he says something like promise me, I'll never see you do anything like that again. Did you have a conversation with Vince 
after the match or do you remember what the interaction was? I mean, it feels like there's some sort of edict that has to come down. Like we've let this shit go too far. No more. Well, not only the, yes, there was. And it was also Vince recalling one of the reasons that he didn't want to hire cactus Jack in the first place was because of the stuff that cactus used to put his body through and that Vince felt was unnecessary. So the fact that Vince let him do that and he's kind of looking at himself in the mirror and says, damn it, we we can't, you know, I mean, he took responsibility for it. He goes, I can't let him do that self to him, do that to himself anymore. So it was brutal. A lot of soul searching. And we're not done as if that's not, as if that's not enough. Uh, Kane's out next and he's taking on Steve Austin in a first blood match. Now this is interesting because it's a first blood match. And one of the guys is completely covered arms, legs, hands, face. It's a first blood match. And the other guy, while he is the hottest star in the business, he's just spent three days in the hospital. Pretty crazy to think about. Vince McMahon is watching this from the owner's box with Sable on his arm. And in the middle of the match, the cage starts coming down and it gives the illusion that McMahon is behind it. And eventually, oh, I guess we should mention here. What is the stipulation? If Kane doesn't win his world title shot here, obviously if Austin loses, Kane becomes world champion. What if Kane loses? What happens? Bro, we're going to cover him in gasoline and set him on fire. And then he's gone forever. It's a good step. You help me understand how Vince McMahon co-signs this. God damn it, pal. We're not going to actually do it. That's how I don't understand. <laughs> We're not going to do it. God damn. It's entertainment. It's unbelievable is what it is. You guys had a set a motherfucker on fire step, which is just crazy. The mask gets three and a quarter stars. There is some, some fun stuff to watch here. One of the times when the cage is going up, Kane is laying, laying across it, teeter tottering, <laughs> yeah. which is kind of fun to see a seven footer do that. Uh, they're brawling everywhere. As we mentioned, Austin's fresh out of the hospital. He's got the elbow wrapped up. He's working with a staff infection here. Eventually, unbelievably mankind runs down to interfere with a chair. Eventually the undertaker shows up too, and he's limping along and they're playing dueling chairs. And mankind ducks a chair shot, which causes the undertaker to hit Austin who also had a chair. And then immediately Austin does the, the gimmick and he is pouring blood like a major, major, I mean, he hit a vein (laughs) and in the middle of all this, the undertaker goes and gets gasoline. This is real (laughs) life folks. The undertaker gets my favorite part and he doesn't pour it on Kane. He says, fuck this. And he poured it on the Hebner's. I don't know if maybe he got the Iggy that the Hebners were making fake merchandise or what, but he poured him full of gasoline and now Austin's bleeding a river and eventually everybody gets a stunner and 
the referee comes to, and you think that Austin's going to win, but he sees Austin pouring blood. It's a first blood match. He calls for the bell. Your winner, new WWE champion, Kane. Yes. God damn it. Good shit. And actually, when you watch, when you watch it back, that was some pretty good shit. When you, you think about the peril that you put your champion in, having a first blood match with a guy that's covered head to toe with a leather mask, his none of his extremities are exposed. Not one. He's, he's talking with a voice box to his throat. Um, we could have cut his throat, maybe. And if he bled there, that no shit, the thing went up his neck too. Forgot about that. Process but, what you just said. We could have cut his throat. He just well, flippantly just threw that out there. Well, it could happen. Dude, dude, dude. So you put your champion in such peril that the odds are astronomical to overcome, but they're not going to put the title on this big red monster. So it was, it was kind of must see. It's a must see event because what, how do you get out of it? And that's how we got out of it. Serious business. It is something nobody saw coming. Austin is the hottest act there is. And we should remember. And this is sort of funny too, that it all sort of surrounds the hell in a cell. Of course, the hell in a cell was first put on the map at bad blood in October of 97. The match is undertaker and Shawn Michaels and Kane interferes. That's where Kane makes his debut. Now fast forward eight months. And what do you know? Undertaker's in a hell in a cell, but now the cell's involved and he interferes in Kane's match and Kane becomes world champion. It's weird the way it all sort of ties together and Paul bear is in the middle of all of it. And we see a shot of Vince McMahon as the pay-per-view goes off the air. And it's sort of interesting because Meltzer sort of freestyles that giving that shot to Vince McMahon at the end of the show sort of gives him the credit for the title instead of take, you know, having all that heat on Kane, Paul bear or the undertaker. Is he overthinking it? Yeah, he's overthinking it, but that's where the heat was, was on Vince. And I think that the, to me, the most amazing thing about the, this match and this night is I'm sitting there watching it was old timer. You go, how in the hell do you follow the hell in a cell match that we just saw? How do you follow that? And not remembering it all. And I'm watching Matt Kane and Austin came out and had that crowd red hot. They were just on fire. No pun intended for stone cold, Steve Austin. They, they were into every single thing they did. There was no air taken out of the building. The crowd was into it from start to finish, and nobody predicted that outcome that night. No, I mean, I don't think anybody did. I mean, it is a pretty big moment. I mean, Kane's only been in the company a handful of months. He's the world champion. He's beat the hottest guy. Austin's bleeding like a stuck pig. It's something else, man. I don't even know how to describe this match. When you think about all the stuff that's going on, the fucking gasoline and everything in between. And as if that wasn't enough, as crazy as it is. Foley came back out. Yeah. Yeah. And took, and, and took a stunner. Unbelievable. Let's get to uh Twitter 
we asked you to ask some questions about King of the Ring 1998. It's one of the most historic shows in history. So we were not at a loss for questions here, Bruce. Are you ready? Ready. John wants to know how far back was the plan for Kane to have a one day title reign? Did they come up with it that day? Or was it always the plan to pop a big rating the next night with Austin winning the title back? Once they, once they booked the match, uh, the way they booked the match, and that was probably about two or three weeks out. That was the plan. Efron wants to know whose idea was it for the sale to come back down during the Austin Kane match? originally I think it was Pat Patterson's idea to, to bring it back down, thinking that you're going to get him get a second cell match. You know, what if, and they did it. Uh, Goolidge wants to know how was Steve Austin supposed to draw first blood with Kane since he had a mask and had his entire body covered. That was the exact question we wanted people to ask. And if anybody could have figured it out, stone cold could have. What are the, um, questions i have conrad from huntsville wants to know first of all shout out and i think we have sort of glossed over this shout out to mick foley whether you agreed with it or not for making sacrifices that nobody before or after ever has for the wrestling business and all for the sake of our entertainment can we agree oh wholeheartedly we can agree i mean it's unbelievable what he's done here's what i want to ask though in a weird way does this match sort of ruin the hell in a cell because it does set an unrealistic expectation. I mean, you go back a handful of years when Charlotte and Sasha were in a hell in a cell and they were bragging that this is the first women's main event and blah, blah, blah. It's awesome. I agree. But there is an expectation where, I mean, even when Shane had this match with the undertaker, you're like, well, he's got to come off it. I mean, it's just not just because he jumps off of stuff, but there's been a precedent set now, right? There has been, and I, I felt that the same. I felt the same way when Sean did. It. It's like, how do you top that? And guys are going to continue to try and top it. But I think that what they've done is they've kind of hit the reset button and gone, okay, we're not going to do that, and let's let's go back. Um, and then Shane comes in, and Shane does the the giant bump off the top. So yeah, it, it's it's a precedent that. I think everybody that steps into a hell in a cell match wants to say, I'm going to outdo that. And that's a scary precedent. You know, I, I think I had a, like, um, a moment watching this show because I haven't watched it in so long. And I had this about a year or two ago with Jericho that maybe without me paying attention quietly, Jericho had become one of my all time favorites. And I would say, oh, he's top 10 for me. And he wasn't even in the conversation a few years ago, but I think I just matured a little bit and had an opportunity to not be so steadfast and know my favorites are this guy, this guy, and this guy. And I feel like I've had, I've sort of turned the corner on cactus too, where now he's like, oh, he's in my top 10. And my question is, cause we get this question a lot, various versions of this. Joshua wrote this one. I'll give you, for instance, Mick Foley minus this match hall of fame career. Yes. I, th- I think so too. Like I think so many times people just look at this match and say, this is it. And they don't really remember the empty arena match, the match with Royal rumble with the rock, the phenomenal matches. He had two Sean match. prior to the, the match with Sean in Philadelphia. Uh, I mean, there's so many, I mean, don't even get me started on all the silliness he did in WCW. His matches with Vader. Oh God, that Halloween oh. Havoc stuff and the stuff he did with Sting. And 
the the stuff he did in Japan with with um, Funk, even the stuff he did with Flair years after this in the company, his promos and stuff, he just continually evolved and showed you. And I think that's what maybe I was missing with Jericho, and I realized maybe I was missing it with Foley. Is there's so many different versions, and he evolved this character and his character so many times, and gave you so many different dimensions of what he could do. I'm not knocking Stone Cold Steve Austin. I know people think I don't like him, but he's the badass. I mean, he's a badass. But at the same time, how many different versions did we see? And with Foley, man, you got ten looks with the dude. You did, and and I'll tell you again. You could just go back to four. For me, when I knew that Mick was a player and the guy was when he first came in and did the stuff with Undertaker right off the bat. When Undertaker came back excited, going, holy shit, man, his stuff looks crazy, but he's safe as fuck. Um, And we went, okay, cool. We got something here. And it was the endorsement from Taker that said, okay, man, I want to do stuff with him. Um, and then the match was Sean in Philadelphia where people thought, how are you going to get something out of this with that gimmick and with Sean? And it was one of the best matches. You know, it's, it's, it's up there in that top five category, you know, of great matches of all time that you can go back and point to and say, that's something to watch because it was unique. Racing Trends wants to know what's up with the off their heads tagline for this show. Off with their heads. That's what the Kings did back in the day, man. They used the guillotine and cut people's heads off. Paul wants to know what was the reaction backstage to Foley's fall? Well, more people, more people were more concerned with with the fall, you know, and again to, I think the wrestling fan <laughs> that never had to take a bump in that ring or, or to know how hard it was for the non giving bump through the cage. That was more of a, Oh my God. Uh, even more so people were in awe and shocked. Um, in the initial bump through the table that was awe inspiring, but the second one was one of more concern and more, like, holy shit, he is broken in half. Yeah. I mean, it makes total sense to me, too. Well, something that didn't make sense, Sergio brings up here. Why does the king always wear his tights to do commentary? That's a great question. Um, I don't know. <laughs> just because he's the king. And I think Jerry just always wants people to know that he was a wrestler. James wants to know, was there ever any blowback from athletic commissions for matches like this or any sort of political fallout? There was in certain places like Baltimore, Maryland, where they had an athletic commission, um, Kentucky, where there was an athletic commission, Oregon, but that's why we didn't do them in those spots. Blake wants to know, was there ever any discussion of the Hell in a Cell match being retired after this night? No. Not that I, I can think of. And, and it was also something that was talked about to be used very sparingly as like a once a year attraction and not just not to use it a lot. Stuart wants to know, why didn't Bruce have a singles run versus Paul Bearer? I, because people would have looked at that and in a shoot world, I'd have killed him within 20 seconds. Because you're a three-time Black Belt Hall of Fame. Hey, let me ask this. 
Uh, we got lots of questions about this. There's a famous line from commentary and you talked about it earlier where JR says they killed him. Who do you think they was? <laughs> a, a lot of people are sort of making assertions that it's a Freudian slip and it's a reference to they being the wrestling business, whether it's the fans or the pressure. Or maybe it's they, the bookers and the guys making the decisions in the back, or maybe it's they, the undertaker. It's they, the undertaker. I don't think that, you know, let's not get so deep here on conspiracy theory. JR was sending a message. No, no, I don't think that I just, you know, it does sort of speak to. I mean, cause Mick even wrote about it. He felt like he had to top the other match. Like he couldn't just go out and have a stinky match. I mean, I'm not saying this to be ugly, but there's a lot of guys who are like, bro, if that's what it takes and I have a bad match, I'm having a fucking bad match. Sorry. See you TV tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, cause it's your job. And so he's like, no, I'm not having a bad match by any means necessary. I'm going to top that other one. People are going to be talking about this. Well, that's kind of professional Mick was. And, and he felt that it was his responsibility to do that. But uh, on JR, that was just, he meant the undertaker. I don't think that there was anything else there. Meltzer gave it four and a half stars. How would you rate it? Uh, you can't rate it. it. It was one of the, it was a defining, it was a defining match and there was nothing to compare it to. So it was just truly one of those moments in time that people are going to look back to. And, and you mentioned it earlier, Andre Hulk, Andre Hulk was an attraction, right? That wasn't, that wasn't a match. You go back and go, Oh my God, you've got to see that spot where right. no, that this was a match where there are so many holy shit moments that they top one another and the match itself is a story and it tells a great story throughout the match of what's going to happen next. And how is this man still standing? Um, so I, I yeah, I'm, you rate it. One of the greatest of all time. Anthony brings up something we sort of glossed over any funny stories about Terry Funk kicking his shoe off after the choke slam. <laughs> Which is kind God of funny. damn. He choke slammed me out of my goddamn shoes. <laughs> they came off because they weren't tied. Because <laughs> when Terry ran down to the ring, his damn shoes weren't tied. And God damn it, that son of a bitch. It was a good visual to me when you go back and you watch at the very end of the match when Terry goes back out there to carry Mick back. You look and he's still just in his socks. Maybe the dumbest thing I've ever seen on one of our questions. Uh, Hey, do you have a question? Sean wrote, JR really didn't need to oversell these bumps in the taker Mick match. We saw them. We know they hurt. (sighs) Okay. I mean, it is, is this the most famous call in wrestling history? I'm being serious. I mean, I thought that. JR's call added so much to it. There was so much emotion there. And I think that the audience at home watching this was having 
pretty damn close to the same reactions that Jr. was having. Jr.'s call was genuine, and you felt it. So, um, yes, I know we saw it, but I think that his call added that much more emotion to that bump and to that match. Chat me up here, though. Most famous call in wrestling history? It's got to be. One of, yeah. What's what's bigger? I'm not saying that to be funny. I'm just saying every year, you know, with hockey and especially football, there's going to be big hits throughout the season. And inevitably, somebody is going to take that footage and put JR's call over the top of it. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know what, maybe for mainstream, it may be, but I, I look at some of the, the Austin matches and stone cold, stone cold, stone cold, which one, um, <laughs> weren't they all like that? That's what I'm saying though. If you can't pinpoint a one, then that's not one. That's not the most, well, I'll, I'll give you one was in Boston, WrestleMania and Steve winning the title for the first time. In addition, Vince calling Shawn Michaels entrance at WrestleMania 12, which is one uh, of my um, most charismatic. Oh, you mean the boyhood dreams come true? The boyhood dreams come true, but also the entrance where he's coming down on the wire. And oh my God, look at him. He's the most electrifying, the most charismatic. He is the one, the only, the heartbreak kid, Sean Michaels. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm good. Cobra commander just telling you well listen man i don't know how else we can really describe this match we've talked about it for a long time here and 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 there's no way we could do a show that even does this thing justice you know they probably should have stopped this they shouldn't have let him come back out he shouldn't have taken the second bump a lot of shoulda woulda couldas but in the end they made history man and nothing like this will ever be seen again i hope not i mean yeah i mean for goodness sake it shouldn't happen but it is one of those deals where, you know, as much as I can say it shouldn't have happened, I sure am glad it did because this was awesome. It was, and it's one of those moments in history that will, like you say, um, I certainly hope that nobody ever, I, I certainly hope no one ever tops it because it deserves to be up on the top of the mountain. Well, I'll tell you what. Somebody who doesn't deserve to be up at the top of the mountain is the subject of our next something to wrestle. And we've talked about him for years now. And it's finally going to happen. July the 6th, set your calendar, boys and girls. We're talking about Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. You know, this week was the best of times. Next week, it's the worst of times. I'm going to be using his book as our source material. Bruce, have you read his book yet? I have not read his book yet. Well, I have, uh, beefer was nice enough to send me a copy and I got to tell you, it's a pretty damn good book and we're going to go ahead and throw you up a link so you can check this out. Uh, so you'll have an idea of what we're going to talk about next week, but it's called strutting and cutting the autobiography. It is available on Kindle as well. You can pick it up on Amazon, but we're going to go ahead and throw a link up. Uh, no, we're not getting paid to do this, but. Listen, if you're looking for source material on Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake, you'll take what you can get. All right. And, and this book is what we can get. So I recommend it. It is a pretty good book. It is what I'm going to be talking about next week here with Bruce. And, um, 
we're up against a really not great anniversary. Of course, this was the anniversary of Mick Foley nearly killing himself. Well, the 4th of July, which goes down next week is when Brutus had his horrible accident. Uh, so we're going to talk about that accident that sort of derailed his career and, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly next week here on something to wrestle. So, and we'll see you next week right here on something to wrestle with the Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake edition. Hey, something to wrestle fans. It's dirty. Doc Hendricks with your something to wrestle slam jam. Yeah, we haven't chatted since Bad Blood 2003. Oh, yeah. But I'm back getting you all set for next week's show about Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake. That's right. It's all about BTFBB. We're going to find out how many times it was DTTTT time for him and HH on STW. It's going to be all the way live. Let me tell you something, Doc. I just want to say right now, brother, that I never once helped Brutus get a job, man. He deserved everything he got, dude. And by the way, if you have something coming up next week, I got a friend who might need some work, brother. But that's another story, Jack. Listen to the power of all the Hulkamaniacs out there. Listen to something to wrestle, brother. You know, something tells me there's going to be an awful lot of Hulkster in next week's episode about old brother Bruda. It's going to be a good one. Make sure to check it out now. And also, check out the ADCs of wrestling if you like the current product and you want to hear a super special spooky appearance from The Undertaker talking about NXT TakeOver and Money in the Bank. You need to check out this week's episode wherever you get your podcasts. It's the ADCs of wrestling. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, Steve Austin trashed his basement, and ADC's not too happy about that. Oh, shit, I might have stopped a few mud holes, but I walked them dry. Tune into the podcast to find out what happens when he gets home and finds my ass living it up in his basement. ADC, ADC. Can kiss my ass and that's the bottom line, cause basement Steve said so. Double cheeseburger, you take the break. Double cheese, well, you know. And then double mayo, you know, it's called chicken salad. Double onion, motherfucker. Oh, you're nothing but an egg sucking dog. Throw it in a Google machine. God damn, kid. God damn it. What the hell show you got there? I need more. Oh, yeah. What say you? Pronoun. Now, something to wrestle with, Con Bruce Pritchard! He could take him off, take him now, and the in the entire world today. Conrad Olsen! What happened when? Huh? What would Vince say about that? Well, hey Vince, tell me, yeah. My shorts look good tonight. Yeah. They're so big. Yeah. Let's go. Welcome to wrestle. Something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, I'm just absolutely wonderful. Kind of good to be back in the saddle. Still got a bunch of loose teeth. So, uh, you know, folks are going to have to work with me here for a little bit while I get used to like just teeth kind of being hung on still by stitches and all that good shit. Well, I'll tell you what, we got great feedback from the show. We dropped earlier this week. It was a surprise release. Nobody expected it, but King of the ring 1994 is now released 
out into the wild. Uh, I got really good feedback from this show. What was the feedback you got from King of the Ring 94? Well, I, I think it was good. <laughs> they were happy to hear us talking again was probably a great response and a really good feeling. I know I was, and, uh, it was a fun show to do. And when we got done with it, I remember, you know, shit, both you and I kind of looking at each other and going, Oh, that was a lot of fun. And it was a fun show and a good show. So positive feedback thus far. Anything else interesting happened this week? Um, yeah, not really. You know, kind of same old, same old, just been working, man. All right. Well, I mean, I guess we should at least address it. The internet blew up on Thursday with the news that SmackDown and raw now have executive directors and, uh, yeah, this doesn't feel like a pair of names you would hear in 2019. It seems a little bit like a fever dream. Paul Heyman is the executive director of raw. And Eric freaking Bischoff is the executive director of SmackDown. You're friends with Couldn't these guys. Be happier for both of them. Great news for our great close personal friend, Mr. Eric Bischoff, to be back in wrestling. How excited do you think Eric is with this news? I think he's ecstatic and I'm proud of him. Very happy for him. And you know what? Time will tell. And I think Eric's going to do a wonderful job. Well, and we hope that we're doing a wonderful job for you here on the show, uh, because if we are, you're going to take our advice and you're going to check out Turo. I've been talking about Turo for a while here. And if you're out of the loop, it's the largest car sharing marketplace in the world where you can book any car you want from a community of trusted hosts from exotic sports cars to pickup trucks. Turo has the widest selection of cars available anywhere for whatever occasion. So download the Turo app. That's T-U-R-O on the App Store or Google Play or visit Turo.com. You'll get $25 off your first trip when you sign up with the promo code WrestleJune at checkout. Terms apply. And you can go and get a Turo car and take somebody out for their birthday so we can wish you a very happy belated birthday as well since your birthday was tomorrow. I thought that's what you were talking about, the big news this week. No, I... Me turning 38 is not nearly as newsworthy as Eric Bischoff being back with WWE. Well, who would have thought it was to me two years ago? Would you have ever predicted that not only you, but Eric Bischoff would both be back with WWE and kind of high profile jobs? There's a lot of things that I wouldn't have predicted two years ago. So, uh, it's you have to keep an open mind and, and I will say this and I, and all you going to say this publicly, I say this to Conrad all the time though, but Conrad Thompson was a person is a person who was able to help me open up my mind and make me think of things in a completely different way and look at life through a completely different lens. So you know what? Any and everything is possible and it's just a pretty damn exciting time to be, to be alive and to be having some fun and doing what we love to do. So that's pretty cool shit. If you ask me, very cool shit. And, uh, we're excited for our friends and excited to see what's happening next, but what we're doing next year on the show, King of the ring 99, it went down 20 years ago yesterday, happening on June 27th, 1999 at the Greensboro Coliseum. 
And the show is a legit sellout, 19,761 fans. And, uh, they're going to announce just over 20,000 on TV. There's 18,574 fans for a huge gate, especially for the time, $574,000 and then another 110 in merchandise. So it's going to fall a little shy of the all-time attendance record, which is 20,268 paid. And that happened a year prior, basically at the uh, unforgiven pay-per-view, which we've talked about before is the one where famously Ric Flair is circling the building, but the, uh, the previous gate record was 380 grand for like Starcade 86. So a huge success. Uh, it does well on pay-per-view as well. Does a 1.13 buy rate and a company gross of 5.41 million. I'm really fascinated by these set of numbers in particular for a few reasons. One, because WCW is on a steep decline at this point. Eric Bischoff is sort of scratching his head, trying to figure out where Nitro went wrong. Um, Vince Russo is just a few months away from jumping ship. Once Eric Bischoff goes home, uh, I don't know, four or five more months. But this show happens essentially in WCW territory. I mean, Greensboro is synonymous with Starcade, And now the WWF comes to town and just sets all kinds of records. And once upon a time, and we've covered this in the archives, if you listen to some of our Hulkamania shows from like Hulkamania 87, Hulkamania 88, you guys didn't always draw super awesome in this territory. How good does it feel to come in and set fucking records? Well, it was, as I've said many times, it was a good time in the business to be able to go anywhere and walk in and have good money drawing houses and be able to walk out of there with a full house. So it it was feeling good and the tide was turning because I think that people had already made their decision. They were jumping off of the WCW boat at the time and they had decided, man, I'm, I'm a WWE guy. I'm going over here. So that's nice. And it's nice when you can go into a stronghold of your competitor at the time, be able to outdraw them and outwork them and do it right there, you know, where, where they had a stronghold. So yes, that does feel good because traditionally in the South, they didn't get a lot of WWF. And what they got was off the cable and and what they got was, you know, that later feed at the time. So it was, it's a good feeling. Okay. You know, who's the, I almost said Sally Struthers, Sally Fields. You know, they like me. They like me. Um, So yes, it's, it's an accomplishment. Business is way up. As you said, you know, 98 is, is famously where you guys sort of turned it all around. You're going to be super profitable in 98 and, uh, set all kinds of company records, but here at 99, you're going to do it again. Your average attendance in June of 98 is 9,568 fans process. What I just said, that was your average in June of 98. Now compare that to what we're hearing these days. I mean, it's, it shows you, you know, the cycles of the business. Well, the average attendance here in June of 99. It's up 27%. We're over 12,216 fans on average. And your gates are up too. Not just 27% though. Try this on. How about we're up 63%. Your average gate in June of 98, 179 grand. 
Now that's average. That includes house shows. That's unbelievable. Unheard of. And a year later, it's 293 grand. It's unbelievable. You're selling out nearly 65% of your house shows and ratings are up. Your average rating in June of 98 is a 4.5, which today would just be crazy. How about it goes up 45%. WCW's on the decline. Those wrestling fans have settled in on raw 6.54 is the average rating. Man, everywhere you look, it's just uh win after win after win here. Is it not? People had, they had the fever and they had the fever. They were into what we were doing. I, I dare say, you know, they were still into WCW trying to see what was going to be going on there. So it was a good time to be a wrestling fan because there was a lot of choice and there was a lot going on. So the McMahon Austin era was running rampant and it was brand new, still fresh. So yeah, it was a good time to be a wrestling fan. There was a lot of shit going on. There is a lot of shit going on, uh, including some not so great stuff. Uh, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but I do want to mention this is the first pay-per-view since we lost Owen Hart. Uh, of course he passed away in May of 99 over the edge, uh, at the very end of the month is when Owen had his funeral in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. What do you remember about Owen's funeral? Well, obviously it was a horrible tragedy and, and an extremely sad, sad time to lose someone so young and someone as vibrant and as great of a human being as Owen Hart was the, uh, God, I think the entire company went because Owen was just that loved and he was that well-respected and, and it was, it was a dark time. It, it was a dark very difficult thing to do. And I remember, um, making the pilgrimage out to Calgary to pay the respects, you know, you're paying your respects to a dear friend, but also, you know, a family that has been a part of this business that uh, I've known for many years as well. And it just was, you had to look inside and you had to, you have to put your head down and you have to barrel through it. And it's not easy, not fun, nothing, nothing good, you know, out of it. Um, but you, you do the right thing and you go and you pay your respects and, and you show your love and you show your support and, and respect to the family and to the human being that contributed so much throughout his entire life. And, uh, to this day is sorely missed. One of the things that comes out of this, um, funeral is the first face to face meeting with Bret Hart and Vince McMahon post Montreal. Do you remember that being discussed or is it just, does it happen? No, it happened. I, I wasn't a part of it. And I think that it was, there was much, it was much more made out of it, you know, from everyone else that Vince it's two human beings. It's two human beings that may have had a disagreement or professional disagreement, but for them to get together, they're getting together over the loss of a loved one and they're getting together over a, a very tragic situation to discuss and to forget about all this other bullshit and share condolences. 
that's what that was. And I think people lose sight of that, that is, oh, my God, you know, Brett and Vince are going to meet together. What's going to happen? And there was that speculation, people going, oh, oh, you know, is Brett going to beat him up? Is are they gonna? No, that, that wasn't even, that's just silly, over-speculating um, fantasy talk. It was, it was human beings getting together to express their condolences. And it happened to be, unfortunately, sometimes the first time that you have those opportunities are in unfortunate situations. Let's talk a little bit about um, the coverage of the passing. Larry King is uh, a subject of a lot of discussion in this era. Martha was on there. And, of course, she has... um, taking issue with the WWE. What's the relationship like with, with Larry King after, you know, some, some pretty famous moments with him in the eighties, it feels like it's maybe there was a falling out or something. And now it's back and it's not necessarily for a good reason. What what, what can you tell us about Larry King? I don't know that there was ever any real, there was never any real working relationship with Larry King. We've been on Larry King shows for various topics and Larry King, no different than the Geraldos of the, of the world and the CNNs of the world that like to sensationalize whatever story is out there for news. We're in a 24 hour news cycle where they had to create programming. So they created controversy and they wanted to create whatever other dynamic that they possibly could. And we made ourselves available to the various media outlets as best that we could. And it wasn't, you know, uh, wasn't comfortable by any stretch of the imagination, but Larry, I don't know that Larry was ever a friend of the WWE where he would go, Hey guys, come on on. We're going to throw you some softballs and make this all good. That's not what those people do, and it certainly isn't what the folks at CNN were looking to do. And they also being associated with Turner Sports, they're they're going to take that other side. And but that's that's what the media does, and they're going to spin it so that they have a story and as much sensationalism as they can. They're going to throw it out there. What do you remember about Martha's claim that? She asked Vince McMahon not to show footage from the funeral. He comes out afterwards and says that he spoke to her no less than five times and she never mentioned not showing it, but I guess somewhere along the way, she says she did, you know, have explicit instructions for Carl DeMarco, who was the president of, uh, you know, the Canadian side of the company. I don't really know. I, I never, I was never privy to any of the meetings that Martha ever had with Vince and, you know, heard that after the fact, but we had cameras there, the media, everyone had cameras there. There was footage of the funeral news footage all over the world, uh, because Owen Hart was a global figure that was loved all over the world. So I, that's hard to speak, speak to having never heard that from her nor had I ever heard it from anyone else. And Owen was a major figure 
on our television show. He was a big part of our TV show. He was a part of the WWE family. So I think that, you know, knowing Vince the way that, uh, you know, I know Vince, I, I think that he would have respected those wishes had they been made directly to him emphatically. But who's to know? Who I, I can't say, yes, I heard, I heard her say it, or no, I didn't hear her say it because I wasn't privy to any of those conversations. Vince writes a letter to the Calgary Sun, sort of defending himself, saying that, hey, I talked to her multiple times. She didn't say anything. And she tried to get our flowers removed uh, from the uh, facility. And the WWF has covered a ton of expenses here that she may not even know about. Limousines, transportation of the body, flowers, service folders, video screens, public address systems, buses, signage for buses, armbands, catering, housekeeping, lawn cleanup, men's and ladies' clothing, sunglasses, hairdressing, uh, obituaries, a Canadian flag. Uh, the WBF also paid $152,200 for transportation expenses for WBF talent and personnel. So he's defending himself in the paper. This happens, you know, in early June. So, I mean, a week later, this is already getting ugly and public. Well, you know, and not, I hate to say it. I mean, but, but not by us. It's at some point when you get hit so many times, at some point you got to put your hands up and, and defend yourself a little bit. And I think that Vince was just trying to say, here's what we have done. And we didn't make any of that public at first. You don't go in and say, okay, Hey, here's this tragedy. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do this, this, that you just do it. And that's what he did. And I don't think that Vince ever looked at it as I'm going to go do this. So everybody come and thank me and tell me how great I am. But I also don't think he, he thought that someone was going to come in and say, oh, what a horrible person. So the, yeah, at some point, man, you gotta, you gotta defend yourself. You gotta, you gotta say, okay, well maybe what you're hearing is only one side. And, and I understand a skewed side. I, I couldn't imagine losing a loved one the way that they did. And you just have to weigh it. Meltzer would write, as mentioned before, the contrast between this funeral where every wrestler and key office personnel were strongly encouraged to attend and the Brian Pillman funeral, which wasn't a media event and exactly zero people working for the WWF attended is just too amazing. Talk to me about the differences, you know, from a company perspective. Well, first of all, there's a huge difference. Owen Hart had spent his entire career at WWE and Brian had not Brian had, you know, not been with WWE for a, a long, long time. I also think that Brian's funeral was scheduled, uh, right around a television taping and what have you, um, you're talking apples and pomegranates, unfortunately. And it wasn't something that, you know, Brian was, was with us. Yes, he was. And I miss Brian's funeral because of, you know, you had to work. Some people had to work. Some people had to go on and, and move on. Um, Owens was scheduled at a time where people could make it. It was also over, I believe, a, a, a holiday weekend or something like that. It was 
but it was scheduled at a time where everyone was available to go. That's it more than anything. It wasn't, oh, we like Owen better and Brian. That, that, that's ludicrous. That's somebody just stirring shit and trying to make something out of nothing. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, the business at the time. It, it's way, way up. Uh, Meltzer's going to say, based on figures that WWF has released in its quest to go public, the company pays about 13% of its income to the performers a figure exceedingly low for any comparably sized sports or entertainment franchise. The profit margin for both WWF and WCW over the past few years was 167% for the WWF and 145% for WCW greater than what the total payroll for the performers were. You can take the most successful franchises in pro sports and none would be able to boast anything remotely close to that. And to me on the surface, I say bravo for the owners because their job is to keep as much as possible of the pie at the end of the year. And if the workers are so gutless to not unionize in this kind of business and fight for their fair share, that's their problem. But the surface is looking at this as nothing but a business. Last week, hopefully brought some reality to everyone involved with the talk of buy rates, gates, six and seven figure contracts, hundreds of millions of dollars in gross revenue and record ratings. The human costs have escalated totally out of control. What do you make of, uh, this report that the company at this point, 13% gets passed down to the boys? Well, I don't know how accurate that that truly is. I I think that when you look at the overall, what the talent was making and overall contributions, I believe it was probably more than that. This is a business. This is a business about uh, touring. This is a business about television. This is a business about merchandising. This is a business about making movies. This is a business that encompasses a lot of other things other than the traditional, hey, we're going to run a wrestling match on Friday night, and we're going to show the television show on Saturday. This is It's a completely different animal, and sometimes when a guy – that doesn't understand the rest of the side of the business will analyze it. They're looking at it the way that it was. Well, when Bill Watts ran it, by God, this is what the guys made different. It it was a completely different model. It was a completely different way of doing business of looking at the business and revenue stream because you didn't have those revenue streams that were available to us at this point even 10 years before that. So that's just kind of, in my opinion, again, ill-informed. Well, there's some more bad news coming the WBF's way. Um, a couple of lawsuits are coming. You know where we're headed here. We've touched on them before. We'll briefly touch on them again. Um, Martha sues and she sues the world wrestling federation. It's done at a press conference or the There's a a press conference held on June 15th in Kansas city. Uh, of course, that's where this is going to be tried the circuit court of Jackson County, Missouri. And, you know, I know we've touched on this before, but it's a 118 page lawsuit. It's going to list 46 counts against 13 different, uh, defendants and, uh, and just, you know, 10 days prior to this or so is when Rena Mero, the former Sable is going to file a $140 million lawsuit against Titan. And 
you know, obviously this is a totally different matter completely. This one's going down in Bridgeport, Connecticut. It's been building for months. Nobody's been happy. And it all comes to a head here. We've talked about Sable suing before. Uh, it was a, a really hot topic in one of our most discussed episodes. If you'd like to check it out, it's something to wrestle.com in the archives. But man, two of the biggest lawsuits in company history coming in within a two week period. Pretty wild timing, huh? Yeah, I think that it was a good time to want to sue the WWE, apparently. And when you're on top, you've, you've got to look at that. And people are always going to be coming after you no matter what. Uh, so that's what was happening, man. You're on top and people want to knock you down and people want to go after and, and knock down the top dog and do whatever it is that they can to discredit and get their peace that they may feel that they're deserved to. And as time tells out, you know, that's the one thing about history. When you look back at it, you can analyze things and go, okay, well at the time, this looked like there was an awful lot of, uh, you know, fire here, but when it all comes down to it, when you get all the way through it, there was not even a whole lot of smoke and, not much came out of them. So it's, it's difficult because you have to defend yourself. You have to stand up and say, you have to say, Hey, now, wait a minute. Um, here's our, here's our side of it. And for many, many years, especially in the wrestling business where it was so secretive anyway, you know, shit, you didn't, you didn't want to have a lawsuit from the standpoint of you didn't want to answer the question. Now think how silly this is. You didn't want to have a lawsuit because you didn't want to answer the question. Um, sir, are the matches predetermined? Right. Promoters didn't want to answer that under oath. Wrestlers didn't want to have to say that. And you would have wrestlers that would, would get on, uh, and lie and say, oh, no, I, you know, <laughs> bless his heart, Bruno San Martino. When Bruno won, it was real. When Bruno lost, it was fake. Um, so th these were the things that now all of a sudden the business is becoming more and more public. Uh, inside is becoming more and more available to the outside where people are going, hey, this, this, this is a business. This isn't just two guys getting in a ring on Friday night and having a match to see who's going to win the gold belt. And that got Wall Street interested. That got, you know, local media, national media, international media. They're all interested. They think they found something out. And you just, you know, you, you do what you can and you fight and, and it was a, it was a different tactic to go in and say, okay, no, you know what? We're a business. No, this is, this is how it works. The, uh, the news with, with Rena takes a turn. You can hear all about the lawsuit. We cover it in great detail in the archives and there's a ton to cover here timeline wise, but we already did it on that show. So. I'm just going to leave most of that discussion there, but something I just recently talked about with Eric. So I want to bring up to you. Rena appears on nitro on June 14th. Now, of course she's still under contract to the WWF, but she's not walking down the ramp. She's just seated in the front row and there's tons of camera close-ups, 
and they're going to be reacting to her and they're getting shots of, you know, a sign in the crowd that says Sable one, Vince McMahon zero. Eric Bischoff, of course, is going to, you know, claim, oh, I don't know what's going on. And of course, on our show, he admits that, you know, knowing what I know now, she probably uh, paid cash and got a receipt for that ticket. And that was our workaround for having her appear. You guys are in the middle of this lawsuit. You're at raw and bam, there is uh, Sable front and center on nitro. What's Vince's reaction? Pissed. <laughs> you know what else? Here's one of your contractually obligated stars is on your competitor's show and, and sitting there. So I say hats off, you know, hats off to Eric for being able to pull that one off. And regardless of whether she paid cash for a ticket and sat there and on her own volition or, or whatever, uh, great publicity stunt. I love it. Um, they did it. Didn't love it at the time. Pretty damn pissed off at the time and angry, but, um, you still got, you still got to tip the hat to the balls that it took to do it on everyone's part. And that got people talking that got people talking, you know, for the momentum in their eyes, hopefully, man, that might shift the other way now. Oh my God. Look now, now Sable showing up over on nitro. Well, who's next? Oh God, shit is, is, is the invasion happening again? So good job on their part. I applaud them for that one. Um, I'm not sure Eric will probably, you know, skirt some of those legal issues as far as contact, who made contact, how, and who knew what, and what they were going to do. But, uh, kudos for pulling it off. Something else we should talk about is the fact that, uh, while it may be pulled off, Jerry McDevitt has something to say about it. Just two days later, uh, he's going to be threatening WCW with a lawsuit and WCW of course replies a handful of days later and says that, Hey, she doesn't work here. <laughs> um, of course, lots of people are speculating. Does that mean she was paid to appear and, um, lots of interesting stuff. But one thing that he digs his heels on is uh the name quote she can sue us till the cows come home and she's not going to get it talking about the name sable she can make all the allegations she wants and it won't get her anywhere when do you remember the first like in the in your tenure going back to 87 when was like the first fight you remember about a name who owns a name who can keep a name who wants to leave and continue to call themselves that, but Vince or Jerry says, ah, not so fast. Wow. About a name. That's you know, the, the big one. I remember, I always remember is the ultimate warrior. And, and that was one that was, you know, contested over and over in court. And that was something that, that I was specifically involved in. And that was one that Vince was going to dig in because, you know, I, I distinctively remember coming up with the name, the ultimate warrior in an agent meeting or in a production meeting and how, and how that whole process for that particular name, 
worked and how Vince didn't even want to use the name Warrior uh, to debut Warrior on a national level. Uh, so an, an independent, uh, an independent, an intellectual property, you know, that, that IP is very important. When you invest in that and you've got all your money tied up into that and you create something, you have to protect it. And Vince was going to protect his IPs. He was definitely going to protect those intellectual properties at any cost because once you, you give that up, now there's certain people that he's given concessions to that he's allowed for them to go on and continue to use the intellectual property, but they're still tied and still owned by the company. So yeah, Vince took that one very seriously and wasn't about to let somebody go out and, and trade off of his investment to go make money for another company or another company to make money off of his investment in his IP without paying him. Let's, uh, let's talk about somebody who's trying to get paid here. Meltzer right. Negotiations with Shane Douglas fell apart and were told far more was made of them than was ever really a story. They had one meeting and the WWF made an offer and wanted him to take a physical and a drug test because a lot of people advised him he was damaged goods. His agent came back with a demand in the $350,000 per year range and the WWF pulled their offer. I think most people listening to this know that Shane had a couple of stops with you guys, but probably most notoriously in 95 is Dean Douglas. Then he goes to ECW, becomes one of their top guys, eventually finds himself working for WCW. And I was sort of shocked to see how quickly these discussions disbanded. Uh, is did, did Shane leave a bad taste in Vince's mouth? It feels like over the years, if you leave and you're critical, sometimes that actually works in your favor and, uh, he eventually brings everybody back, but not Shane Douglas. What do you remember about that? Yeah, I don't think that Shane ever really helped himself with some of the things that he used to say about the company and the performers in it and, and people in it. Shane would always be very outspoken, but that worked for him on on the independence. That worked for him elsewhere to be that bad boy and to be outspoken and to have those opinions. So that made him cool. The during this time. Again, you know, it's kind of much ado about nothing from the standpoint of did Shane reach out and have an interest in coming in? And we said, yeah, hey, let's let's talk to Shane Douglas, find out where his head is and maybe bring him in. That's that's the story. (laughs) You know, there was there was no more really beyond that. There wasn't at the time. I don't know. There was anyone that Shane had any baggage with. I don't know that there was anybody that you know, was vehemently, oh God, we don't need to bring Shane Douglas in here at all. It just was, Hey, Shane would like to come in. Is there any interest? Possibly feel him out, see where his head's at, see what he's looking for. Maybe he was looking for too much. Maybe his head wasn't in the right place. Wasn't really into the creative and thank you very much, man. Nice to see you. Wish you the best of luck. It wasn't an adversarial deal. It wasn't Oh my God, there's this big play for Shane Douglas. We've got to have him. It was one of many telephone calls and or meetings where, what are you doing? Would you like to come in? What can we do? Let's talk. 
Well, one of the things people are talking about here is Bruce Pritchard. Meltzer would write, there has to be a reason Bruce Pritchard has these cameo sightings on TV from time to time. At one point, he was scheduled for an on-air role as Glenn Ruth's manager and a revised heel clown gimmick, but that hasn't been talked about much of late. And these kinds of plans change almost daily. Uh, you got some splaining to do. Why were there just random Bruce Pritchard cameos here? Well, we've talked about it before as far as me coming back in as, as a manager and doing the DTK Doink the Clown. Uh, DTK Enterprises, Doink the Clown Enterprises, and managing Glenn Ruth. That was kind of the germ of the original idea. It evolved, and it evolved into, you ever see uh, Bassomatic from the skit from Saturday Night Live yes. with Dan Aykroyd? Well, essentially, I was going to be that guy, the Bassomatic guy. You know, look, you could, you, you could take two fish, three fish, four fish, five fish more. And look at this all mouthwatering concoction, blah, blah, blah. But do it with, we were doing a lot of the hardcore matches and, and different things and, and using a lot of props and a lot of different shit. This was during the time of the auction on the internet. Everything was being auctioned off. I, I, I don't even know if eBay was really as big as it got to be you know, a little bit later on, but it was, there were a lot of auction sites out there and people putting unique items up for bid. So we thought, well, shit, what if we had an auction site, part of WWF.com where we auctioned off the moose head that Al Snow hit Pierre with? Or we auctioned off the car that he rode down to the ring, or the basketball, um, the the pan that so and so got hit over the head with. These unique items that I would go down and collect, and then I would take them and I would auction them off. That was the idea. That was the the germ of that idea. But do it in a in a style very similar to that of the Dan Aykroyd Bassmatic guy, and over the top had my hair brown and, and just doing, uh, having a little fun with it and making it a part of the show and a part of WWF.com. But it was a, it was a revenue deal to just try and another way to sell unique merchandise. Let's, uh, let's talk about a couple of cameo appearances that Vince makes on TV. Um, we've mentioned that there was a Larry King situation. Well, how about Matt Lauer? having him on the today show and it's supposed to be here to promote King of the ring. But of course that's not what they want to talk about. They're going to spend the entire time talking about Owen Hart. And later that same day, he films an appearance on Conan O'Brien again to plug the pay-per-view and here, you know, they don't bring up Sable or, uh, Martha Hart or Owen Hart or anything like that, but there are logical questions asked about illogical storylines like hey if you run the wrestling show why don't you just make yourself champion and hey if you hate steve austin so much why don't you just fire him what did you think of these two totally different interviews that the company clearly set up was vince in a bad spot was he the right guy for the spot were you surprised when today's show wanted to discuss king of the ring exactly zero huh 
No, never surprised that because that's what they do. They'll bring you in for one thing and try and do the gotcha on the other side of it. And, you know, it's, it's funny when they run that gambit, like you just said, where, oh, this is all bullshit. We know it's fake. Well, okay, Vince, if you're the boss, then why don't you just fire Steve Austin if you have that problem with him? It becomes, it insults the intelligence of their viewers because their viewers, hopefully a lot more intelligent than, than that to, to believe that kind of shit. So it was, there was a lot of that coming in. Somebody had to field it. Um, Vince owner of the company. And although a lot of times he didn't always like being put in that, in that role, um, Vince likes to kind of be forgotten about. I know that's crazy for people to think of, but, he would go out there and do it if there was no one else to do it. Sometimes he was the best face for the company. Sometimes maybe not, but, uh, if they requested him specifically for a vehicle, like an NBC and a today show, that's someplace where you'd probably want to put, put him out there to address some of that shit to handle whatever it is they're going to throw his way. So there was a lot of that, man, during that time, just that it's in the mainstream. People are looking out and people are, are seemingly for the first time realizing that there's professional wrestling in the WWF out there and it's this huge business. So it's, it's new. Oh my God. Can you believe people go to this? So yeah, get out there and get in front of it as best you can. Let's talk about the build to the actual pay-per-view. Uh, the Druids are going to carry the undertaker symbol to the ring on the May 31st raw. And then the corporate ministry is going to come out and follow the Druids to the ring. And he's going to start talking about, uh, a greater power. You've got Shane McMahon and Paul bear and the undertaker. And they're all talking about the greater power. And then Vince comes out on the rampway and says, you screwed Steve Austin. And now I'm going to screw you. And Vince orders the undertaker to defend his world title against Steve Austin later in the show. And Shane remind Vince that he only controls half of the WWF and the title won't be on the line. Vince said title or no title in the words of Steve Austin, Austin's going to kick your ass. And of course, later in the show, we see Vince McMahon beat the undertaker by DQ in two minutes and 12 seconds. Um, you can imagine what's happening here. Later in the show, Steve Austin is going to beat the undertaker by DQ seven minutes and 13 seconds. And there's going to be a hooded figure wearing black walk to the ring as chanting music is playing. And this is after Austin's tied up in the ropes. Lawler and Ross are, are going to assume it's Shane. And then the greater power, the higher power got into the ring and revealed himself to Austin, but not to the cameras. And the show goes off the air with Jr. asking, who in the hell is the greater power? Did you already know where you were going with this at this, or are you still figuring it out? Even though, I mean, you're, you're sort of teasing that you've got a direction, but sometimes plans change, pal. Shit. Well, Russo is getting credit for this one, folks. Um, you know, this is, this is the one where you go back to the old Christopher Daniels or Vince Russo had the idea of using Christopher Daniels as the fallen angel to be the higher power until 
I think Vince actually, you know, saw him and it was like, what the hell, how is he going to work with undertaker? How's he going to do this? And all this other shit. Um, and you're saying that based on size, based on size. Yeah. Cause Chris is a hell of a talent, a hell of a worker, but it, it was just based on everything else. Um, didn't really match up. So they got stuck. And this, this is my synopsis now that they got stuck to go, okay, what do we do now? And I don't think that they really had an answer for a while as to who the hell are we going to use as the higher power. Then we're in this story about a higher power. Everything's revolving around is it's like the black scorpion in WCW. Uh, That's exactly what I compared it to here. You had, you know, originally it was going to be, um, God, it was going to be Dave Sheldon uh, or Al Perez. All these different guys were going to be the Black Scorpion. And they had different guys go all over the country. And Russell is the Black Scorpion against Sting for a period of time. But it ends up, oh, it's Ric Flair because they had nothing else. And they realized, well, you know, Al Perez isn't going to work. Dave Sheldon's not going to work. This guy's not going to work. That guy's not going to work. And that's what happened to us here. It got to the point where you have a McMahon Austin storyline that is so strong. Whatever that character is better be stronger than that. Mr. McMahon character that was created. And I think it just came down to, it can't be, it's, it's a swerve, bro. It's a swerve. We'll swerve them. It's been you all along. But then, and the problem with that swerve shit a lot of times is, is you have to go back now and rationalize some of the shit you did. Because even if it is a swerve, there's certain things you wouldn't have done if you were really in power. And, and that was, it just got really, really, really convoluted. But it just ended up being... Okay, it's Vince. He's higher power. He's pulled another one over on Austin. He pulled Austin into the fold and, and he he duped him by God. And you're you're now it's next chapter instead of a new book. For the June seventh episode of Raw, the Undertaker comes to the ring with the corporate ministry and he starts off by saying, you know, the day of reckoning is at hand and The greater power walks to the ring, holds the mic to his face. Shane's voice then comes over the PA system and Shane walks out to the ring, revealing that he wasn't the greater power. Uh, and before revealing the identity, he wanted Vince McMahon to witness it. So Vince is on the Titan Tron and he says he's close enough where he's standing in the back and wouldn't walk to the ring, but vowed later to end the reign of evil, reign of evil. And then of course the greater power removes the hood. Reveals himself to be Vince McMahon and very famous call. It was me, Austin. It's been me all along. You bought it hook, line, and sinker. And you hear you hear Jr. say something like, "Oh shit," or yeah, or whatever. It's hilarious. His, oh, his... Damn, it, it, it's him. I, I didn't see that one coming. Damn it, Professor Fryer. Well, what do you think of the execution? You know, I mean, we're poking holes in the creativity saying, 
well, goddamn, there's no continuity in that, but it is a surprise, but it doesn't really check all the boxes. But there was a reaction. What'd you think of the reaction? Well, goddamn, it's a surprise when I get fucking uh, pad tie instead of pad CU from DoorDash. But um, <laughs> I don't know if it's a good surprise. It, it just, to me, uh, my reaction was a groan. My reaction was, because uh, it was time for something new. It was, it was time for a turn. It was time for uh, introducing a new, a new character and, and moving on and trying to come up with something different at the time. So it was done as well as it absolutely possibly could have been done, in my opinion, because you were stuck. You were sitting there. You had promised a reveal. You gave them a reveal, but it was maybe not the reveal that they were really looking for. And to some people, I think that that may have disgusted them a little bit to say, that's it. That's the reveal. And that was the reveal. So he's going to thank Shane undertaker, triple H and the rest of the ministry. And then Stephanie and Linda McMahon walk out of the rampway. Stephanie's asking Vince, why Vince is saying, I love you both. It's just business. And Linda says, Vince, I love you too, but this has nothing to do with business. And in fact, Vince has been lying all along about the 50, 50 split. There are four owner, four owners of the company, each of whom own 25%. She says that she and Stephanie were part of the corporate meeting earlier today, and they've made some changes around the office, including a new dress code that allows cut off jeans. Swearing is now allowed and you can even drink on the job. And she announced that earlier in the day, she stepped down as CEO of the company, but not before picking a successor stone cold, Steve Austin, who steps out in a t-shirt jeans and a red tie around his neck. He's holding a clipboard and he announces a King of the ring. He's going to face both Vince and Shane at the same time in a two on one match. And later in this same show, Vince would beat Ken Shamrock in 42 seconds in a lion's den match. I can't believe this was a real thing. Vince wrapped a chain around the door to the cage and wouldn't let Shamrock inside. He finally unwrapped the chain, but held it as a weapon. Jarrett gave Shamrock a chair shot to the head, then threw him in the ring. And McMahon applied the ankle lock and the ref immediately called for the bell because Shamrock is knocked out. What an interesting show here. Uh, Austin is the CEO. McMahon is the higher power. And although with a lot of help from his friends, Ken Shamrock got beat by Vince McMahon in a lion's den match. That reads like a, a, a crazy bit of news. Does it not? It does. But I got to tell you too, that was some fun stuff. And that was really interesting because it was what, what, when you think about ludicrous things for Vince to do, that was pretty damn ludicrous. And to put Kenny in that environment, most dangerous man in the world and all that other shit. And then do that to him with Vince. I thought it was that part very creative and the shit that we did with Steve at the office God, that was a lot of fun, and to me, still holds up today. Sitting around the boardroom, giving everybody beer, and oh, damn son, you drink too slow, and uh, the manure in the office, all that shit was just very entertaining. 
I, I enjoyed, and we're talking about the June 14th raw where highlights are airing from earlier in the day. This is Austin's first day as CEO at Titan tower. He's wearing his ring vest, a pair of shorts and boots, and he goes to the, the secretary up front and he tells her, you're not answering the phones, right? Here's how you do it. And the next time the call comes in, he answers, who the hell is this? And what the hell do you want? And then the, the secretary answers the next call exactly like that. So lots of fun little skits. Did you produce these? I did, uh, some of them. I, I helped out on some of them. I didn't produce them all. No. And, but I was there for all of them and just kind of gave input. We laid all that stuff out. It was, that was during the time where it could be so, so much fun. Vince would walk in. This is what we're going to do. And let's just start shooting. And you have the talent of Steve Austin that could just go out and go, yeah, got it. All right, let's go. And it'd be so fucking entertaining. You you didn't, you didn't have scripts. You didn't have all this other shit to go back and go, no, you didn't say this word, right? You didn't do that. You need to turn three quarters of a turn to the left and raise your right eyebrow. It was just, here's what we want to do. Let's go do it. And they did it. And to me, that's why they came across as genuine and fun because it was fun for everybody. Well, it's fun to uh, save some money this summer too. start paying less interest on your credit card balances by refinancing with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. It's an easy way to save hundreds to thousands of dollars and lower your interest rate. Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.95% APR with auto pay. And that's far lower than the average credit card interest rate of over 19% APR. Plus there are absolutely no fees and you can even get your money as soon as the day you apply because Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience. Now, just for our listeners, apply now and get a special interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Russell. That's L I G H T S T R E A M.com slash Russell. Now this is subject to credit approval. The rate's going to include a half a percent auto pay discount terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash wrestle for more information. And, uh, we can't thank Lightstream enough. They've been a great sponsor for us for a real long time. And, uh, I think I've shared before my great experience that I've had with Lightstream. Uh, I can't recommend this process enough. These guys have it down pat and they'll help you save some cash. Absolutely. My baby girl is looking to get in her next car using lightstream.com. So, Hey, we use it. You should too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's talk about, uh, the manure stunt, you know, you, you mentioned it in passing, but one of the things that happens at Titan towers is, uh, Austin, the CEO orders a bunch of manure to be dumped into Vince's office. And he says, Hey, let's reassign. Shane McMahon's salary and put it in the company beer fund and lots of funny skits like that. The manure in Vince's office. Talk me through it. Well, Conrad, first you got to make a phone call and you got to go to manure R us. And it's right over there off of high Ridge road in Sanford, Connecticut. And they will deliver some really fine, fine fertilized manure on over to the office. It was all that good shit that you would think that you would always want to do to your boss. And some of it 
and I, I don't know if I've ever told the story here before about Pat Patterson and I one time. Vince used to go to Florida for Christmas and, and the holidays and like, like Christmas and New Year's and shit. And they would stay at, at their place in Florida and they would leave uh, the house in Connecticut. Well, on the way to work, there was this g- place that had these giant cement statues. When I say giant cement statues, they had the things, you know, like the, the, the bird baths and things that you see in people's front yards and stuff like that. You know, and the lady with the vase and the water poured out of it and shit like that. But they also had like these 15, 20, 30 foot big, huge statues of like chickens and, and, uh, farmers maids and just different shit all over this, this big, I guess was a nursery type place. And Pat and I used to drive by it practically every day. And, and we got to laughing one day. Wouldn't it be funny if Vincent and Linda and the kids and everybody went to Florida for the holidays. And when they came home the day before they came home, we'd loaded up their front yard and their front foyer in the, in the front of their house with a bunch of these statues and shit, just rent them for a day. And we thought that was the funniest damn thing. And we actually went and looked into it and started, you know, we, we started the process and we were going to do like three or four, Those bastards double-crossed us and called the office to find out how to get into to where they needed to deliver this shit. And then it got sent down, you know, and of course somebody called Vince and Florida, Vince, did you order all these statues? What the hell? God damn it. Patrick, Bruce. Somehow we got blamed for that. So long story short, we, we never actually got it to take place. We did do all of our research. We did do our due diligence. We were ready to make the down payment and have everything done. And they double crossed us and called the office cause they knew who Vince was and they just needed more information. But I thought that would have been hilarious as shit. Go in and go in this nice little neighborhood in Greenwich and have giant chicken statues all over the place that you couldn't move without a, you know, major apparatus to move that shit, big backhoe and everything. Let's talk all about, the things that could have happened. Let's talk about GTV. This, uh, episode of raw features a skit where a woman is shaving Billy Gunn's ass in a locker room. And Gunn is talking about how wonderful and majestic his ass is. Uh, the woman finds a zit and Billy told her if she tells anyone, he wouldn't allow her the privilege of shaving his ass anymore. Talk to me about, uh, ass zits, shaving ass, majestic ass, GTV. What do you got? You want anybody talking about your ass zits? So this is where you draw in real life, Conrad. 
this is where you go and you look and sometimes you know how like you get that little bump on your butt and you're feeling it and, and at first it just is, a, is an annoyance then after a while it gets red and ripe and all pussy and ready to protrude and just pop well that's that's what this was just because mr ass being mr ass of course always has to have the nicest ass and nobody wants anybody knowing you got zits on your ass for fuck's sake i mean that'd be like a sunny poot film or something all righty king of the ring round one matches uh billy gunn gets a win over viscera shamrock gets a win over jeff jarrett Big Show over Draws, Kane over Test, Road Dog over Godfather, China gets a win over Valvanus, Bob Holly picks up a win over Al Snow, X Pac beats the Big Boss Man, and let's get to the King of the Ring. You watched this show for the first time in like what twenty years? Overall, is this the show you remember, or not so much? Not so much. You know, this is one of those is we talk about sometimes you, you almost block it out of your memory right. and forget about it because there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot. There wasn't a whole lot of new, there wasn't a whole lot of monumental, you know, the, the most monumental obviously is, you know, we'll talk about the, the, the main match, which was basically counterproductive monumental. <laughs> when you go back and you look at it, it was, it was a card is what it was. It was just I don't sort know of, that it was a show. Of, it was a card. Explain that. It was matches. Yeah. It, it, it was matches for matches sake. And granted, you know, like we talked about last week with the King of the ring being a pay-per-view that it was going to be that wrestling pay-per-view based on wrestling matches, based on a tournament to crown a new king of the ring. And by design, that's going to be matches. That's going to be people qualifying. That's going to be people advancing and what have you. But we had entered into an era at this point of story dictating everything. And in this case, matches dictated the story. So it was kind of forgettable. Is the best way to put it. Let's talk about, uh, King of the ring for a minute here. Bret Hart wins in 93. The next year it's Owen Hart. 95 is Mabel. 96 is Uncle Cold Steve Austin. 97 Hunter Hearst Helmsley. 98 Ken Shamrock. And of course this year is going to be the year Billy Gunn wins here. At King of the ring 99. But how about the next three? 2000 is Kurt Angle. 2001 is edge. 2002 is Brock Lesnar. When I run through some of those King of the Rings that you guys ran pretty consistently pay-per-views for from 93 to 02 before taking a little bit of a break and then reviving it in 2006, I run through all those names. Obviously, Mabel sticks out like a sore thumb. Who's next on that list? Who who was next after Brock? No, after Mabel. So like, like the idea being if Mabel was the worst King of the Ring in this bunch, I mean, it's Brett, Owen, Austin, Helmsley, Shamrock, Gunn, Angle, Edge, Lesnar. Is Billy Gunn the next worst king of the Yeah, I'd probably go Gunn and then Kenny. I mean, it's just... But but you know what? When you say that, think about that. Yeah. When When Billy Gunn is your second worst, that's not bad. 
No, no, that that was my point. That you know, you yeah. gave it to top guys, whether it was Edge or Brock Lesnar or Kurt Angle or Hunter or Brett or Austin. And then I, no one's ever going to complain that Owen was King of the Ring. I mean, that was an excellent story and obviously very well deserved by a great wrestler. But then there's the Shamrock Experiment, which we've talked about ad nauseum here on the show, and uh, and now. This is Billy Gunn's year. In hindsight, maybe this singles push for Billy Gunn didn't wind up like everybody hoped. And we've talked about that on our New Age Outlaws episode, which is available in the archives. Could you have made a different call here? At the time, no. At the time, because we were really looking for somebody to break out, and we were looking for that for that next heel. We were looking for somebody for Steve to work with. And who's someone that can talk looks good and go out and have good matches and has some personality. Billy checked all those boxes. So we needed to try, we needed to see if he could actually carry the ball and take it to the next level with his promos and his matches and deliver in the, in the big game, if you will, Sassafras. And, and it just, you, you got to try sometimes. So as far as the candidates that we had and looking at the future, I think that Billy Gunn was the right choice in, in this particular situation to do something new and find out what you got on the roster. Let's talk a little bit about why Billy was selected here. I think one of the things that maybe is lost on people is first of all, Billy's like your age. He's like 55, maybe I think he'll be 56 this year. And I don't know that just, uh, it seems like you would be older than Billy, but also too, I think people sleep on Billy Gunn's size. I know he was billed at different times as being six, three. He's not, this is one of those rare instances where he's actually taller than what he's billed at. He's probably six, five. I mean, this is someone who, and I'm not saying this to be funny, Hulk Hogan size. And I don't think people sort of compute the two. But Vince had to be enamored with Billy just based on the look and presentation of this guy looks like a top guy. Well, he was a top guy. And he, as far as athleticism, shit, I'll put Billy Gunn up against anybody that there is. Incredible athlete. Like you said, people look at him and go, oh, yeah, he's a big guy. He's probably 6'2. No, he is. He's big. He's probably 6'4, 6'5, and built like a brick shit house but can do anything, uh, physically gifted, unlike just absolutely amazing, great smile, great look, great personality. Sometimes that personality was difficult to get on camera and to be able to have him relate to the audience and get me to that, to that story, to care about him, whether love him or hate him, because it was almost indifferent in the back. It was easy to love or hate him because he was just kept sop and he was, he would go out and he would be, he's funny. He was a cut up. He was that way. And he could be a miserable prick too sometimes, but it was, it was a guy with a good look. You look at the upside and you say, God damn, man, there's a lot of upside over here. Um, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd go with Billy Gunn again. I would, I would make, I would make the same choice again. 
But I mean, even you would admit this didn't work out the way everybody hoped. No, it didn't. And it didn't work out for a variety of reasons. And, and I, I will say, you know, we've talked about it before on the new age outlaws that when we split them up, when you take a tag team, a lot of times Billy had asthma. Billy's great tag team wrestler. Billy could go and Billy could get in the ring. And when it was his time to shine, man, he shined. However, for him to go out and have to have a, um, 15, 20 minute match, that was difficult for him because, because of his wind and he couldn't, he couldn't go. He had, uh, he had asthma and just couldn't maintain it breathing wise. So that hampered his in-ring work. So you take that away, maybe, but we didn't know that. We didn't know to the extent that would affect him uh, in a singles run because he was such a good athlete. He could do things in short spurts, but to try and do that over a long haul, he would get gassed and he would be sucking for wind. I do want to mention something that, well, it was reported in the, in the sheets, so I need to, but I, I find that these type of little tidbits fascinating. As last week went on, suddenly word came out there was a video box cover for the upcoming King of the Ring tape with Big Show on the cover of the box with the caption stating, see Big Show go through eight men en route to winning the King of the Ring. Since word spreads fast these days, which in hindsight appears to have been a plant, this made Paul White something of a favorite going in. Chat me up here, Bruce. Big Show winning King of the Ring, was it discussed? Was this an accidental release do you guys have to change it did you put this out as subterfuge what do you remember yeah i don't really remember what the hell that was other than that may have been something a lot of times when you do mock-ups and you're coming up with posters or what have you there'll be a lot of different guys you'll see shit you know like right now probably with somebody else wearing the WWE championship. You'll see Kevin Owens with the, with the title. It's a mock-up and this is what it could look like. This is what could happen. Um, place anybody in here. You know, okay. I can place Billy there. I can place Austin there. I can place gold dust there, whoever it is you want to place in there. So I think that's what happened. I think somebody might've seen that and went, Oh, I know what they're going to do now. Uh, it's big show. He's going to be King of the ring. Cause I don't ever really remember. And that's not saying that it wasn't discussed. I don't ever remember big show being discussed to be King of the ring. He didn't need it. It was something that, you know, is that attraction and as new as he was at the time that that was, that wasn't someplace we wanted to go with him. The King of the ring was often a tool that was used try and get somebody maybe been there for a while. Let's take him to the next level. And that didn't fit that big show story in any way. So the live show opens up with a dark match with meat pinning Kurt angle. It's pretty crazy. Uh, of course, angle is going to beat Stasiak in his pay-per-view debut a few months later at survivor series. But what, uh, what a little footnote here that meat got to win over Kurt angle. 
meat. Uh, the first match on Sunday Night Heat, it's the uh, Hardy Boys going to a no contest with Edge and Christian because the Acolytes are going to come in and attack both teams. And after the match, Bradshaw's going to challenge Mr. Ass on Raw the next night for possession of the other tag team title. Uh, Midian and Viscera are going to beat Big Boss Man in one minute and 47 seconds. Midian came to the ring wearing the European title belt and then hits Bossman with the belt and pins him. And then Viscera splashes Bossman after the match. and He's double teamed until Mark Henry and D'Lo make the save. And then Road Dog does an interview for his King of the Ring match with China. And of course, that brings China and Hunter out. And China's going to slap Dog. And after Triple H distracts him, gives him a low blow. X Pac runs in. And, uh, well, DX is having problems. Prince Albert gets a win over Val Venus in just a couple of minutes. Uh, Draws is going to show up here and shove Venus off the top rope. And uh, Ken Shamrock is going to get a win over Shane McMahon in 43 seconds uh, by DQ, of course. Shawn Michaels earlier in the show announced that Shamrock versus Vince is the match, but Vince wants a suitable replacement, which winds up being Shane. Uh, They finished the show with Steve Blackman interfering with a kendo stick and, and delivers what is described as a zillion kendo stick shots on Shamrock. And they start coughing up blood here and they showed lots of replays of this to start the pay-per-view. So you could sort of get a recap of what happened. Some of these, uh, kendo stick shots, man, these are pretty legit right to the midsection of Ken Shamrock. Oh yeah. Steve Blackman wasn't afraid to, uh, throw a kendo shot here and there throw a kick or anything else for that matter. So yeah, I like to lay him in, but speaking of laying them in, I'm just, as you're going through this man, and this was again during the Russo era. And I don't know what, what significance this has, but it just, I, I just started chuckling at the names. You got meat in, in a match. And then you've got Prince Albert and Val Venus all just tied to one phallic symbol. And you know what? If you'd like to fashion your dick hair in a certain way to really showcase, because, you know, your name might be Bruce or Charlie. You get a regular name. You don't have like a cool Val Venus name, but if you want like a cool dick hair design. Like Connie. There you go. You could do that and support something to wrestle when you check out Manscaped. And they're number one in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped is going to offer precision engineered tools for your family jewels. And, uh, Bruce, I know recently you were telling me that you fashioned, you gave your, your dick a new do, and it was a hit around the office. Well, not actually it. It was around it. It's the manscaping <laughs> around it. Okay. Cause they, they've got a really nice redesigned electric trimmer. Wait, wait, hang on now. How would macho man describe this? I don't know if I can do macho man because the teeth are pretty bad because the lawnmower 2.0 is kind of proprietary skin safe technology. It's not going to nick or snag your nuts if you know <laughs> what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Huh? Yeah, manscaping accidents are a thing in the past and you don't need to use the same trimmer on your face, even though I do. That's just nasty. Uh-uh, not going to happen. No. <laughs> And Manscaped also has a crop preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant, and moisturizer. (laughs) 
You get them clean and moisturized all at the same time. Hey, you already put deodorant on your armpits. You know you do and you should. But why not on the smelliest part of your body? Always use the right tools for the right jobs and your balls are going to thank you. Oh, yeah, dig it. Freak out, huh? Tell them what they get. Get 20% off plus free shipping and a free travel bag when you use the code wrestle at manscaped.com. And I want to spell that for you. It's M A N S C A P E D.com. And that's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use our promo code wrestle and take care of your dick hair, son. I got to tell you, Conrad too. This is, this is kind of funny. I'm going to embarrass the shit out of him because I know he listens to it loud at work is my son was so excited when he saw the manscaped box arrive. Really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I didn't get it out of the package. It's his. So, oh, well, but you know what? He gets it. It's okay, man. It's good. You got to take care of your shit down there, man. He's probably showing his off a little more than you're showing yours off. Anyway, he's got more to show off. You want to explain what that means? No. Okay. In the first King of the Ring match, X-Pac gets a win over Bob Holly by DQ. Three minutes and two seconds. He gets a dud rating in the Observer. Eh, not that great of a match. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God damn, my teeth hurt so fucking bad. That was about that. You, you, did, you, did, my whole, you did my whole fucking review right there. Eh. 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 It was fucking dud. Eh. Eh, it was and Bob. Okay. Eh. Fuck. Okay, that one's done. Kane and Big <laughs> Show go six minutes and thirty six seconds. Negative one star. This one gets in the Observer. Um. Yeah. Meltzer would say in a spot right out of an Ernest Miller nitro match, both guys went for high kicks at the same time, which would have been tricky with good wrestlers. And anyway, both missed by about a foot and both fell down. Even the fans who wanted to love everything were having a hard time figuring out how to react to this. Uh, what'd you think of the match? And what'd you think of the, uh, both guys falling over? At least it was slow. <laughs> um, yeah, like I said, man, I, I, I realized when you get into it, why it was erased from my memory in so many ways, you got two big monsters. You're, you're putting them in there trying to go, okay, goddamn, these two big monsters are going to collide. Sometimes that's really cool. Sometimes it's not because even when big monsters beat the shit out of each other, it is not as exciting to watch as someone of, of, of a smaller size or an equal size, I guess when they're matched up that way, but, um, kind of slow and plotting, not real fucking good. Next up, Mr. Ass is going to get a win over Shamrock in three minutes, and 37 seconds. The match actually ends though, when Teddy long stops it, because there's just a ton of blood coming out of Shamrock's mouth. Uh, it gets uh, half a star. I thought it was telling a really cool story as to how you explain, you know, and, and have some rationale and reasoning for last year's champion of the King of the ring, the tournament winner being eliminated here. what do you think? 
I, I thought it was okay. I, I want you to read the rest of, of, of the notes there, though. Read all, all the way from the, from the back about the FMW Stadium show and all that shit. This finish was apparently taken from the Shamrock Vader match at the FMW Stadium in 1997 when, legit, when Shamrock had legit internal injuries and was powerbombed by Vader about halfway into the match and started coughing up blood. Parentheses, this was legit, and they stopped the match. Of course, it's fucking not legit. Yeah, that comes from the expert in Japan and all, but because it happened in Japan, he felt it was legit. Why did you? Want, just, why did you? What? Why did that stick out? I mean, I know. You know why? Because he's so full of shit. He thinks, oh well, it happened in Japan. They, it's legit if it's in Japan. Bull fucking shit. It's just no. It was a work. It was a finish, folks. I, I listen. I can't believe. This is, I can't believe I'm going to ask this, but. uh you want to comment on the, uh, the whole best in the world conversation that Seth Rollins has been having on Twitter. I haven't kept up with it. Well, he's contending that WWE is the best wrestling in the world and he's the most consistent and, uh, therefore he's the best in the world. Well, good for him. I mean, that's sort of the confidence every guy, every top guy should have you right? should, every, every, every single look. Here's the thing, Steve Austin. And I used to say this all the time. If you don't want to be the champion and you don't want to be the best in the world, then what the fuck are you doing in the business? What are you doing? Don't you want to be the best mortgage company in the world? First family mortgage, best mortgage company in the world. Yes or no? Yeah, we're working on it. Okay. So great. I, I applaud everybody that wants to do that and that believes that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why everybody sort of got up in arms about it. Like, what's he supposed to say? Hey, I'm just glad to be here. Appreciate y'all allowing me. No, I mean, you want to be the guy. So, and especially when you have been the guy, uh, somebody who it looks like you guys are trying to get ready to be the guy's road dog here. He's going to pin China in 13 minutes and 19 seconds. And check out this line from the observer. This was actually the best match of the entire tournament, which speaks volumes for this tournament. Hey, at least when it was over, Mabel didn't win. This is a, actually a pretty good match. And I think. You know, the expectation for an intergender match is not always that it's going to be very good. Uh, this one actually isn't that bad. Star in three quarters. What'd you think? I actually thought it was good. And I thought that it was a testament to, to road dog. And this is where, you know, when we were talking about splitting guys up and making singles and you go, okay, well, road dog can hang road dog can go. And he proved it here by being able to go out and have a match with China who wasn't a seasoned worker and have a damn good match and a believable match. So, you know, hats off there to, to road dog because he made it damn good. And it was a pretty fun match to watch. Yeah. Uh, triple H comes down. looks like he's going to interfere. Shawn Michaels is going to come out, stopping from interfering. So. There's our DX angle here. Next up, we've got the Hardy boys. They're going to get a win over edge and Christian in four minutes and 49 seconds. The winners are going to get a title shot at the acolytes. Meltzer would say it was a fast paced, good match, but way too short. And considering the show ended early, it's hard to understand why Uh, the highlight was edge spearing Jeff off the middle ropes before the finish. And of course, Jr. selling it like it's the greatest spear on earth. And they show multiple angles of it. Uh, two and a quarter stars. Uh, what'd you think? I thought, actually, I thought it was a hell of a match. And again, when you go back and you look at what 
all those matches became and how great, you know, the, the memories of all the great matchups that they had to me, that was like, all right, man. Um, this was early on. This was four guys going out there and saying, pick me coach. I, I want to play and proving that they could play. And it was a nice, refreshing match with new talent that hadn't been featured in this big prominent role. So I enjoyed the hell out of it. Next Even up, Michael Hayes. Next up, we got um, Mr. Ass beating Kane. Five minutes and 25 seconds. It's the King of the Ring semifinal. Meltzer would say it had no heat. The finish would see Big Show come out and aim a chair shot at Ass, but then swings the chair about a foot higher and hits Kane in the face, and Ass pins him half a star. This is one of those, it's just sort of there matches for me. What say you? Yeah, this is one of those, it's just sort of their cards. Yes, it was okay. Well, okay, shit, man. We got to get through the, the Mr. Ass Kane match. Um, well, how about we just do this? And okay, great. And I don't even think that from that vantage point that anybody wanted to debate it because it's like, well, what else are you going to do? Just move on. And that was in a lot of ways, a bit of the philosophy at that time in the business. Ah, nobody cares about the finish. Nobody cares. Um, and when, and when you, when you who are writing it and you who are creating it don't care, then the audience won't care either. And you're right. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Next up, X-Pac is in there with road dog. X-Pac gets the win in three minutes and eight seconds. Meltzer said on paper, it looked to be the best match on the card. As it was, the interviews were longer than the matches. And the idea here is, uh, X-Pac still has a neck injury from the neck breaker spot after the Bob Holly match a little earlier. And, uh, he's going to get out of the pump handle slam from road dog and turn it into an X factor. And that's your pin three quarters of a star. You're telling a, a cool DX story here, but they don't really get enough time. And I find that fascinating that China and road dog gets 13 minutes. X-Pac and road dog gets three minutes. Is that, and I know you're going to just blow up at this, but Hunter and China have at different times said that Hunter would involve himself in all of China's business at this time and try to fight for her. That, that match becomes the backdrop for triple H and Shawn Michaels coming in. Meanwhile, two more capable workers get a fourth of the time. Is that Hunter lobbying? For China? I think that, well, no, I, that was the underlying story of DX and it was a big overall story. It wasn't just about those individuals. And I think when people look at it on paper and what you think would be a better match may have been a better match, the better story may have been what we did. But unfortunately the better story of the whole DX, uh, undercurrent in my opinion, was too secondary, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I felt I felt that that should have been more, that that should have been a lot more of the focus, and that would have helped me with story throughout the tournament. Because then it's not just about, 
the King of the Ring. It's about you know the, the, this this DX eruption and all the machinations that are happening amongst DX, and then you know the 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 B story almost is the King of the Ring. That would have helped me a lot on this whole show. Instead, it was the opposite. Yeah, that makes total sense. Next up, we've got The Undertaker working with The Rock. They go 19 minutes and 10 seconds. The Undertaker gets the pin. Star and a half. Um, this is definitely an era where you can expect lots of shenanigans. Uh, Mike Kyoto gets decked by The Undertaker before the bell, and The Rock uses a rock bottom, but there's no ref. And the storyline idea here is The Rock has three pins on The Undertaker, but all three times there's no referee. What did you think of this one? I thought it was good. It was a lot of gaga and it became, there was a period I remember where every match you know, you'd have something advertised and you would have a, a big match for the championship or whatever. And you'd get there and you start listening to how the match is being laid out and you're hearing everything that's going to go on and go, well, wouldn't that be a disqualification? Wouldn't that be a count out? Wouldn't that be this? Wouldn't that be that? Oh, fuck it. We'll throw it out. You know, we'll, 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 it'll be no DQ. Okay. Well, they don't make it no count out. And they built so much Gaga into the matches that the matches became, the finish became an afterthought, not the match. Um, it was a good, it was exciting. It was good. It was Gaga. It was big stars, but it wasn't anything that you go back and go, God damn it. You remember fucking undertaker rock. It's kind of like, oh yeah, they were on that car too. And that was your championship match. So it was, yeah, this was that era of, of Gaga, uh, you know, a lot of Gaga for Gaga's sake. Sometimes I, I, I'm a Gaga guy. I like Gaga, but I don't just like it just for Gaga's sake. Triple H does a run in, gives the rock a pedigree, sort of puts the undertaker on top. Kato comes to rock kicks out. Then taker gets the tombstone and the pin. And now it's time for our tournament finale. Mr. Ass is going to pin X-Pac in five minutes and 33 seconds. Of course, Waltman selling his neck from the very beginning. And uh, he's going to use a famouser off the middle rope for the pin. No big ceremony afterwards. And Meltzer would say, or anything much on this show to put over like Gunn had really done anything big. Uh, star in a quarter. Do you think that, you know, he would have done better with some sort of coronation ceremony? The show's going to go off the air early. Why wasn't there some sort of celebration or crowning or whatever plan for Billy? I don't know. And that's where I come back to the lack of story. It was, it was about matches instead of the inner turmoil of DX to get to King of the ring. If you had had that and then you had a big ceremony afterwards and you had truly anointed him. And actually I take it back on the, I don't know. I believe the, the, idea was well whatever we do we'll do a big deal on tv i don't think we ever got there either um but it was i just think it was ass backwards 
I think that the the matches dictated the story instead of the story dictating the matches. And when you got there, it was like, okay, Billy. Billy's king of the ring. All right, Mr. Ass. All right, thank you. Next. And that's what people were waiting for. They weren't at this point in the card. Man, they weren't waiting for king of the ring. They're waiting for the fucking ladder match. They want to see Austin. They're hungry, man. Now they're, 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 they want their guy. And we've given them a lot of shit up until this point. Um, hindsight being 2020, I might've flipped the WWE championship match and, and the, uh, king of the ring match and just built with the, the, those, you know, the, the king of the ring match, the championship match, and then the ladder match. But, um, didn't do it. It just was kind of a ill, it was an ill paced show. There you go. It was, it was the pacing was off in storyline. Steve Austin got the opportunity to pick the stipulations for this main event. He made it a ladder match by defeating the big boss man on June 21st. And during the match, events would come to ringside, climb the ladder and yell at Austin as he's brawling with boss man in the crowd. Austin would knock the ladder over, sending Vince flying back first on an announcing table at ringside, and the table didn't break. Um, but either way, we've got a ladder match now. And again, this is for 100% of the stock. So you're going to have controlling interest in the WWE. And Vince and Shane are going to win this handicap ladder match in 17 minutes and 11 seconds. And they've been doing a storyline throughout the show. The Shane was injured. And that Vince is going to bring out a surprise partner and the surprise partner is Steve Blackman. Of course they get a camera and show Shane backstage just fine. And Shawn Michaels orders Shane to do the match. And it's mostly brawling and there's a, the entrance structure for this show was a bunch of ladders. So obviously you have to destroy that. Austin's going to whip Vince and Shane into one ladder after another. And then he pulls a cord and they all fall on Vince and Shane and Shane takes a really cool bump backwards over the announcer's table. And Austin took a controlled bump from the halfway point up the ladder onto Shane through the Spanish table and climbed that ladder again. And Vince would shove the ladder over. So Austin slammed into the English table and he's going to cut his, uh, his back open here and the table doesn't break. And then Austin would slam McMahon off the ladder. And at one point, Shane got on Vince's shoulders to try to grab the briefcase, which is kind of funny. Uh, a couple of stunners climbs the ladder. It looks like Austin's got this one in control and magically someone pulls the briefcase too high for Austin to reach. So Austin goes after, um, Mark Eaton, the timekeeper. And then, uh, finally Austin and Vince are both climbing the ladder. Shane shoves the ladder over, climbs up, grabs the briefcase, runs off. And after the show goes off the air, it's in the live crowd home. Happy triple H comes to the ring and Austin stuns him like a dozen times, two and a half stars. So before we get to the obvious, what'd you think of the match? I was a shits. Um, and I only say it was a shits story. Uh, the match was okay. It was a good ladder match. It was logical. It made sense until yeah and the you know the whole idea behind this thing was 
and originally we talked about it being boss man and, and some different people, but the idea was it would be someone back there, whether it be Linda or Stephanie or boss man or whoever. And you had an isolated camera of them hidden and them actually working the controls so that when Austin would, would go up, the, the briefcase would raise. And then when Vince would walk up, the briefcase would go down. Um, by the time we got there, it was like, ah, nobody cares about that. Just when Austin goes up, raise it, and then we'll bring it down later on. And the entire story was dropped to, to just nothingness. And it was, well, we fucked him. Nobody needs to know. And to me, that was, I felt we did need to know. I, I felt that that was a good part of the story especially if it were Linda because Linda was the one that brought Steve, you know, into the fold and did the whole stock divide and all that shit. So when we didn't do it, it just kind of was flat. It, the first time someone got into the cage, Ole Anderson and them, I think they did a war games or some kind of bullshit and, and only Anderson and them had the cage raised and a bunch of guys got in and then they lowered the cage and nobody else could get in. When that seal was broken, it destroyed the cage match. And for every cage match since then, I think that I grew up in Texas where the cage match was the blow off. Nobody in, nobody out. That was the finale. And we, we bastardized it many, many times over the years in some, so many different ways it's hard to even comprehend. But in this particular instance, the story was there. And you could have got another layer to the story. Instead, it was just, okay, they stole the company back and we're back where we were. And it was a reset. It just was anticlimactic as shit. You're you're a viewer and you're waiting for the payoff, and your payoff is well, nothing's changed. So it, it was underwhelming to me, and it was it just um, I don't know if it's a lack of planning or just a lack of not really knowing where the hell they wanted to go. So to set the record straight. The original idea for raising and lowering the briefcase was Linda or boss man. Some, it was someone like that. Uh, the original, the original like germ of the idea was what if it was like a Linda or a Stephanie or someone like that, that had been on Austin's side prior to that. And then it was, well, then boss man had taken over. It, there were a lot of different things that were bandied about but the original germ of the idea was, was for someone to double cross Austin. The next night on raw, Austin's going to beat the undertaker to win the world title. I guess it's interesting to note because he lost the world title of King of the ring 98, but won it back the very next night on the Monday night raw following King of the ring. A year later, he wins the world title. Once again, one night after King of the ring, why was uh, the next night the right time to take the belt off of Undertaker and put it on Austin? And was there ever any consideration to putting the belt back on the rock here and having the rock be the guy to beat the Undertaker? 
the reason for putting it back on Austin was to make Austin whole again, based off of what had been done the night before, you know, Steve hundred percent control of the company. He didn't get it. He got screwed out of it. Well now how, how does he keep anything? And the way for him to still keep power and for him to still be that relative top guy, you needed to put the championship back on him so that he still had something to hang over the McMahons. That was why. And do it on TV, a larger audience, but now bring that story whole and hopefully let people forget what the hell they had witnessed the night before. At least I hope the hell that was, you know, the rationale for that because it did, it helped. And just the, in general, it was to make Steve whole. Let's, um, let's talk a little bit about what we're going to be doing next here on the show. But before we do, I want you to rank this King of the ring. We just, we just covered King of the ring, 1994, which was not a great show. 1995, probably not the best show, but a lot of folks point to this one as so, sort of, eh, where do you fall on King of the Ring 99? Where does it rank? Well, see, having just gone back and watched him recently, I, this one has to be the second worst to me. Because, I, again, I watched 94 last week and now watching this one and, and just being completely underwhelmed and thinking, God, and we were red fucking hot, man. We could do no wrong. And this one was not right. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm excited about doing what we're doing next week. We haven't done a watch along for WCW ever, and it's finally happening. We're going to watch the July 6th, 1998 Nitro. Of course, that's the famous one from the Georgia Dome where Bill Goldberg would beat Hulk Hogan to become the WCW world champ. When was the last time you saw that show or have you ever seen it start to finish that you know of? I've never seen it start to finish. Well, I'm looking forward to it next week. Don't go watch it this week, or I mean, I guess you can, but watch it again with us next week. Uh, this is a, a fun little experiment. We'll take a look at what's happening on the other side of this channel and of course, famously that night on Monday night, raw, we had brawl for all and the DX parody of the nation of domination. So, uh, we talked a little 99 today. We'll go back a year older for 1998 next week. When we talk about that nitro, we'd love to have your follow on social media at Pritchard show is where you can find us on Twitter and Instagram or forward slash something to wrestle on Facebook. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we'll see you next week, next Friday and every Friday at noon, this time covering nitro from July 6th, 1998. Bruce hit it. Khan. Hey, and your new teeth sound good. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Welcome there's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared. I ain't scared to shock you, Bruce.
Hello and welcome to Something to Wrestle. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, how you doing this week, man? Who in the blue hell are you? <laughs> I'm sure that's a question that's on a lot of people's minds. I'm Paul Bromwell. I'm filling in for Conrad. He turned 40 this past week, man. Paul Brom, that's your name? Paul Bromwell. That's B-R. Okay, answer the first question. Who in the hell are you? I, I help Conrad out on ad-free shows. He's been tagging me in, and I've been helping him out for the last year or so, and he uh, he needed to tag me in for today's show. I hope that's okay, Bruce. Is, will that work this week or what? Actually, uh, probably not. Okay. Well, this I, has been I, something I, to wrestle. Can we keep going or no? Are you sure? Uh, no, I'm really not. But, um, you know, why, and why is, why is, um, the regular guy that does this, the, the mortgage guy, well, yeah, he turned 40 years old this past week. And, uh, I think, I believe he's celebrating with a couple of buddies. They're all out and, uh, having a good time. And he said, listen, I know that we need an, uh, more Bruce Pritchard. We, do, we don't get enough of them. The audience needs their weekly fix. And, uh, so I'd like to tag you in Paul. So here, here I am. So in the 30 minutes of spare time that I actually have available, um, I'm doing this with you. Okay. Right. Interesting. I mean, have you ever worked with anybody else in the business? You ever done this before, kid? What's, what's your history? I mean, you know, that you, you have to understand you're, you're, you're speaking to an entirely brand new audience right now that has no idea what it is they're listening. They're saying, thank God I hear the melodic voice of Bruce Pritchard right now because now I know, well, at least I know he's here. Not sure about what the hell the other guy is. So, so at least our audience, my audience, it's not our audience, by the way. Right. It's, it's my audience. At least let them know who the hell and why? Okay, we have, we've established that Conrad obviously has something better to do that he's unable to do this um, because he's forty years old now. He finally reached puberty and manhood. <laughs> but aside from that, explain to people what. what sure. Uh, you know, I've been I've been a friend of Conrad's for the last few years. I've dabbled in. So that means you can just jump on a microphone, call me. Yeah. Why he gave you my number? Uh, that's. Problem number one, we'll address that. But but then why you have a microphone and are allowed to do this? You know what? I, I, I don't know. I'm not worthy, Bruce. That's the bottom line. I'm not worthy to be here. This is the two-time sports podcast of the year. And all I know is that the big guy called me up and said, I want you to work with Bruce so that the people can get what they want. And that's Bruce Pritchard stories. So, Well, folks, I apologize in advance. I have no idea who the hell this guy is. But uh, he's got a bunch of notes, and I have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. So uh, at least that part will be the same, and uh, we'll just see what what the hell goes on. And and I hope that you'll. Oh God, I hope you don't leave forever. But um, okay, okay, Palmrell. Um, can we just call you Joe? You can call me whatever you want, Bruce. Joe works. All right, Joe. all right. Okay. All right. Then then let's. Okay, Joe. It, it's it's all yours. Go ahead. All right. Here we go. Here Dave go. Meltzer's name is mentioned one time. Oh, there will shit. be hell to pay. All right. Well, here we go. We have Joe and uh, and Bruce. I'm honored to be here. This is good stuff already. I uh, this is going to be fun. So listen. Let's start the show. And of course, we're going back in time as promised last week on something to wrestle to King of the Ring 2001. And uh, this was the 20th. 20-year anniversary of one of the most talked-about pay-per-views in WWF history. 
And uh, I'm going to set the stage for you, Bruce. Is that okay? Sure. You guys purchased WCW at this point and are in the process of trying to get the company up and running. You've lost The Rock to the movies. You've lost Steve Austin as far as he's not the babyface anymore. He's now a heel. And so you're light on babyfaces. And uh, let's talk about Judgment Day building up to this. It features Steve Austin defeating The Undertaker to retain the WWF world title. Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit win a tag team turmoil match to become the number one contenders for the WWF world tag team titles. And Kane wins the Intercontinental title from Triple H. And uh, China would retain the, the, the women's title over Lita. So there's a lot going on. And that's where we're going to start, Bruce. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about China here. It is China's last match ever in the WWF. What happened coming out of that pay-per-view that just blew up the relationship with China? Well, okay. First of all, let's, let's go back. I mean, I didn't personally purchase WCW. The corporation, WWE, actually. Actually purchased uh. WCW, and uh, the the Rock uh, has never been lost. I mean, if if he was, then he's obviously been found. But um, you know, it, it's it's an interesting time in the business because it, it's some uncharted waters in that we at this period have no competition that well not that we had competition with WCW at that time hmm. uh, they had they had long fallen off kind of the the competition route but uh, even even so there was there was really nothing else out there uh, at that time and we had retained what we chose to retain of talent from WCW that didn't want to sit out, didn't want to take their contracts. And and for those that did good for them, um, I, I probably would have done the same thing in the same situation with the amount of money that they were guaranteed to sit at home. There were a few like Booker T, uh, DDP that actually, you know, wanted to work and they wanted to continue honing their craft and doing what they, what they did. So it, it's an interesting time. And I think there were a lot of eyeballs on us from that aspect of, okay, what you going to do now? And while the armchair quarterbacks that would sit back and go, Oh man, you totally screwed up because you didn't have Hoagie, you didn't have Hall and Nash and Sting and Goldberg and all that. Those guys were being paid to stay home. Those guys were being paid lucrative contracts that were guaranteed by AOL, Time Warner, and they had no desire to come over. They weren't part of the deal. That's not what we purchased. We we purchased the assets of, of WCW, and that included their tape library, some rings, and um, a few other things, but but not a whole lot because um, there wasn't a whole there wasn't a whole lot to purchase, and uh, that's that's where we were. And and at this time, you know, China's last match. I just think that it was a decision by China at that point where she felt that uh, she didn't want to be in the in the same place where her ex was, and she had the choice. She was made an offer to to remain with the company, and she made a choice. She made a choice to go somewhere else and do something on her own. And her decision to to do that that was her own. But I, you know, I don't know other than not wanting to work in the company where her ex was at the time. I think that probably influenced her decision, but only she knows that, and she's not with us anymore. But um, that's where we were on, on the China bit. Yeah, for those of you that maybe didn't get to see it, recently Vice did a, uh, a documentary on China. I highly recommend going out of your way to check that out. 
Uh, so, Bruce, uh, coming out of that, we're headed into the Raw circuit. We're going into a historical Raw's war. What's the state of the company at this point in terms of creative? Well, I don't know. You mean Raw the show? Yeah, oh. Raw's war, right, the television show. <laughs> What's the state of the company? I thought you were going to war with somebody. I'm so confused. Maybe Conrad. So Conrad after this knows done. not to read on notes sometimes. <laughs> like, oh, no. Anyway, feel free to put them in your own words. It's okay. Um, you know, it's it's at a time that the business in, in itself is in flux, and, and frankly, uh, even creative in WWE is in flux. Uh, Paul Heyman was in the process of uh, coming on to the creative team. Stephanie McMahon headed up the creative team at that time. I had just moved over or back over to creative on a full-time basis, I think, kind of right in this era as well. But uh, I was still doing a little bit of talent relations but just moved back over to creative, uh, devoting a lot more of my time. I was spending a lot more time over in the writer's room in the studio at that time. So it was, uh, it was an interesting, it was an interesting time. And it was the first time that I'd ever really interacted with that large of a group on creative with, uh, all the different things going on. Yeah. And for whatever reason, at this point, uh, Bruce, Chris Benoit at this raw here and Chris Jericho, they take on triple H and stone cold. You would think, Man, big time match at this point, but in terms of ratings, where we're at, it's a it's a four point two rating, and and in this moment in history, it tied for the lowest rating since nineteen ninety nine. Uh, the last time that would have happened, then it was a four point two. Uh, is this a reality check? I guess at this point for the creative team, for Vince, for for the team in general. No, I think it's more of a reality check from the standpoint of when you look at those ratings. Conrad and I talked about this last week. When you look at those ratings from the past and look at some of the astronomical numbers there there is a theory i don't know how true it is i think that when you want to brag go oh my god we had 10 million people you know that were watching us at one time uh but when you you start to dig a little bit deeper you realize hmm is this actually 10 million or is this maybe five duplicated somewhere not sneezing at five um but there there that begged a question that was more of the reality check of there weren't six million fans that just went away or five million fans or four million fans or whatever the hell anybody wants to claim and it was it just was that dichotomy of trying to figure it out and i think that we were all still trying to figure it out yeah i mean and think about it ratings have continued to evolve even now uh the big changes and streaming and everything that happens in today's world so a lot of different ways to measure it so let's get back here it's been long rumored that the push you mentioned paul Heyman getting involved in creative around this time that there was a push for benoit and jericho and that that came from paul what say you on this topic well i think paul you know definitely voiced his opinion and Paul was a big fan of Benoit and Jericho both. I think that uh, you know there was a new voice and somebody to you know listen and say okay what, what's happening over here uh, one way or another you know the, the, the end result was still going to be you know creative as it was from 1987 to what it was now in 2001 still you know went through events and was still pitched events and yay or nay on it but 
was Paul a fan of them? Yes, he was. Yeah, he had worked with them both uh, in ECW uh, for a little time there, too. So he was definitely familiar with both those guys as well there. Yeah, hundreds of people saw that. So this role not only featured Benoit and Jericho taking on Triple H and Steve Austin, but also Big Show beating Rhino for the hardcore title and the epic scene of Shane McMahon talking shit as WCW owner uh, there, Kurt Angle, had his medal ceremony and Angle slams him off the stand to a huge pop. A couple things here. Uh, Rhino was gaining big time momentum, it felt like, and the show beating him just stopped. Do, do you agree here that it just seemed to stop it for him? I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I agree that there was big time momentum for Rhino at that point. I think that, you know, Rhino was one of those guys, great unbelievable talent um, but I think that you know he had as much momentum as he had losing doesn't stop your momentum folks it, it's what you do after you lose is what stops momentum and the audience can stop your momentum losing doesn't do that and this was an opportunity to do something big in a big way with a big show and that's the reason we went that way so how was a uh, question here WCW ever going to get over when it's leader here it's Shane O'Mac he's talking shit to Kurt angle gets his ass beat starts tapping out to the ankle lock making kurt the baby face and and shane the heel isn't that ass backwards compared um, to who who says you think that's ass backwards I'm just asking because I know a lot well, of... You said it. Shane's obviously in control here. You want to push WCW. They're ready to come on board. You have the buzz around that. And then all of a sudden, kick the shit out of them on live TV. So you want him to kick the shit out of the Olympic gold medalist who is the, the, the top guy well, representing the other side? Not necessarily kick the shit, but, but not... Then you'd be saying, but no, 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 hang on. Man. Then you'd be saying the same thing. Oh, this doesn't make any sense. Shane, the new up and coming, and is taking the guy that is up front and center and the, the stalwart in the company. Look, again, it's... <laughs> you know, you have heels and you have baby faces. You have protagonists and you have antagonists. And in this particular situation in this storyline, Shane was the antagonist. What do antagonists do? What do people want to see? They want to see the antagonist get their ass kicked. That's what we did. All right. Well, let's hear from one of your favorite writers of all time. We're going to the Observer for their thoughts. I thought you said you're going to hear from one of my favorite writers. And you're, you're, you're now going to say, now we're going to hear from the rumor mongering <laughs> bullshit artist uh, from the dirt rag that makes shit up. Okay, now you may proceed. Okay, so we're going to hear from that guy, and he would say Benoit and Jericho won the tag titles from Austin and Triple H in 13 minutes, 55 seconds. Great match by any standard of a great match. Great moves, great build during the match, and even before the match, as they tried to sell it as the biggest match of Benoit and Jericho's career, this match was a real slap in the face to anyone who thinks winning and losing doesn't matter or shouldn't matter to the fans. The reason this got over was not because of any silly gimmick, but because they sold the idea that the most important thing was the win and the quest for the win was real. Finally, Jericho made the hot tag. He blocked the Thez press and got the walls on. Triple H in for the save and the run-in. His thigh muscle tore. Still, he limped outside the ring to do the blocked pedigree into the wall spot on the American table. Benoit did a diving headbutt on Austin. Austin came back with a stunner on Benoit, but Jericho pulled the ref out of the ring at the last second. Jericho got in and went for the line 
lion salt, but Austin got his knees up. Jericho blocked the stunner and hit the lion salt on Austin. Triple H got the sledgehammer and went to break up the pin, but Jericho moved and Triple H hit Austin and Jericho scored the pin. Show ended with Benoit and Jericho celebrating. It's such a match with such a horrible ending here for Triple H. You were there that night, Bruce. What was it like when you see Triple H go down and the severity of that injury? Well, it was absolutely terrible because, again, you're watching it and I don't think that anybody in the moment had any idea how bad Triple H really was. And it's it's not just, oh, he tore his thigh. No, folks. It ripped from the bone and curled up. He should not have been able to even walk. Really, couldn't walk, but did. And you know, a testament to pulling through and uh, finishing the match. I don't know that, you know, many people, A, would have been able to do that. That was one of those, like, holy shit moments. Once you realized, even more so after the fact, he couldn't put any weight on his leg at all mm. and still went in, mm. still went in, finished the match, did his spots, limping badly and not really being able to do much of any anything at all so it was yeah it was an incredible match and it was a a turning point in so many different ways because it was a point that we had lost triple h in there and realizing oh wow everything that we had planned for the summer going forward that included triple h on that side now goes away and now you go to plan really b or c because we were already on plan b and it's it's like, okay, um, this is going to be interesting to say the least. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, like you said, not only the injury, the impact, the severity of that, but as you mentioned, all the creative plans, everything that you had. He's a big time, you know, member of the, of, of the squad here, if you will. And he goes down massive injury and the show must go on. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, you know, rocks and movies and Austin's a heel. So it's kind of like, where do we go from here? So uh, again, big time impact all the way around for not only him, but also uh, for the WWE and creative direction. So we move on the next night at SmackDown. It's a TLC match uh, for the world tag team titles. You have Benoit and Jericho, uh, the Dudleys, Edge and Christian and the Hardys taking place. No build to it at all. And all these guys go out and kill each other. Uh, Benoit and Jericho retain. But man, matches like this, they take years off of careers. So why do it with no hyper build here, Bruce? Well, Fred, um, you watch TV? I do. I do. Here, you do. Here. Okay, that's good. That's good. Um, <laughs> do you know everything that's going to happen on, on the television show that, that you're going to watch? Or do you just like to – do you like to know every single thing that's going to happen on the television show before you watch it? No, no, I don't, I don't like spoilers. I want to be able to watch it and enjoy it. So you like want to sit down. You want to be surprised. Yeah, you yeah. want to watch something. Oh, fuck, I didn't expect that. You're right. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Blow my mind. Yeah. yeah. All right. So the, the deal is, Sam, is you, you take the greatest tag teams, you have an impromptu match that is incredible, and you, you do something that, you know, again, isn't – hopefully is a cookie cutter um, in a perfect world sometimes. Would you like to have promoted that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that what you're saying is not everything needs a story. Is that what you're trying to say? Just, just... I'm saying hey, there was a story to it. Was oh, there not? Okay. Well, was there not a story about the tag team championships? I mean, well, you, don't think you know, they asked a bunch of story. I didn't mean shit. I mean, they told a story in the ring, but in terms of a build story, I don't know that that was there this night. 
Okay, Raul, and this is coming from your how many years of experience of writing and producing television? Uh, Zilch, this is just 35 years of fandom. That's all I got behind me. So Okay, so you hated it. No, I'm not saying I hated it. I'm just questioning the, the, the thought behind it. Like, was there a lot of it or... It just, just yeah, the thought was to deliver a really great match. All right. Okay. Well, they did. They tore the house down. They tore their bodies down in literal fashion, as they always did. Great matches from those guys. Uh, then we would also have Tajiri debuting on TV here as well. He was William Regal's assistant. How good was Tajiri in this role, Bruce? Boy, uh, Tajiri was absolutely fabulous. And he was the kind of guy, you know, it's funny that uh, Tajiri would not let on to everybody that Tajiri spoke English. So, and it is hilarious. Even Paul Heyman was like, Tajiri does not speak English. It's very little English. <laughs> and I'm looking at him going, um, man, Tajiri was my translator mm. in Mexico. So he was speaking Spanish and then translating back in English to me. Great English. So it was, you know, that kind of, you know, the kind of funny thing that, that you get sometimes <laughs> and when people don't realize, well, I'm, I'm never, never going to work there. Um, and it just kind of goes, you know, goes goes from there. But, yeah, Tajiri was absolutely great because he could convey his emotions with without having to say a word. And, and he could do it with his facials and, and everything else. So next question, Oliver. We're moving on. We're talking about Raw. It's the next week. It's in Calgary. And somehow the Hart family and the WWF get themselves into a mess. Imagine that. Stu Hart and some of the Hart family make their first appearance at a WWF show since the death of Owen. And the Raw main event that night is Chris Benoit versus Steve Austin. Vince screws Benoit, but this time Jericho helps even the odds and puts Austin in the walls while Benoit puts Vince in the crossface to end the show. Bruce, what did you think of all this drama and was it all necessary? Sure was necessary, Lucas. I mean, you you have all these e e talents. You're telling stories, and it's emotional, and it's it's unpredictable. So yeah, you want to get out there and and have fun with it. Why wasn't it necessary? Well, I'm just saying, with everything that had gone on there in the past, and just the screw job deal, and, and oh god. Okay. Moving on, after the show, Brian Lawler is fired after being stopped at the border for possession. How about a shape was Brian in at this point? Um, you know, it was just really, it was really kind of sad, man. And it was, I, I think that there was a lot of denial going on at the time. And, you know, Brian was, was still trying to convince everyone that, no, man, it was a mistake. It was, it was a mistake that they found all those drugs in my bag in three different places or whatever it was. Mm. But it was unfortunate. And, and I think it was, in a lot of ways, a cry for help at that time. Lance Storm would make his debut as the first WCW wrestler on WWF TV, and he would super kick Saturn to a big pop. Why Lance here? Why not Lance there? Well, I, I mean, yeah, he is one of the yeah, few that came over, right, to help. So. Exactly, and and he was he was from Canada, so nice place to debut him where you know that they're going to be happy to see him. At least somewhere they would be happy to see him. If anywhere, it would be Calgary. Right. Am I right, Henry? Yeah. Talk so Henry's following. Were you a Lance Storm fan in general? Since we're here talking about him, just your thoughts on on Lance Storm 
overall as a performer? I think that Lance was a hell of a performer. I think that Lance was one of those guys that could go in and have a great match with anybody. Did he have a lot of personality? I don't think so. However, I think that, you know, he was one of those talent that if you wanted to make someone look great, you put him in the ring with Lance and Lance could make that happen because of his ability in the ring. Did he always connect with the audience? In my opinion, no. Um, However, in a tag team with Chris Jericho and is a guy that you can put in the ring and actually make somebody larger than life. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Lance could do that. You know, right now, I don't know that Conrad's going to be too happy with you, Logan, but um, go ahead. <laughs> uh, Jericho would defeat Big Show for the hardcore title, then get gored by Rhino and pinned. Why use Jericho as a transition guy when he's about the main event at pay-per-view against Austin and Chris Benoit? A transition guy is what? He defeats the Big show here and then all of a sudden you have him getting taken out by a rhino just not really sure why we do that creatively if he's going into the biggest match here in the main event at this pay-per-view we're about to talk about well the idea was unpredictability and the anything can happen aspect and with that you're telling people hey anything can happen holy shit i didn't call that but i guess if you and Dave Meltzer were booking, everything would be logical and perfect, makes sense, and you would sell out every single fucking night and, and do 18 billion people on, on pay-per-view, even though the, the audience, the universe was only three or something like that. Some of the best. That's the confidence that, listen, 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 Sebastian, that is the confidence I have in you. Thank you, Bruce. That means so much to me Uh, Uh and whoever I am right now. Sebastian. Okay. So we have the Sarah Undertaker stalker. So uh, that angle begins. Who came up with this and thought it was a great idea? Well, I did. Okay. I did. I thought it was a a completely great idea. In hindsight, it was fucking horrible. Not one of, you know, not one of the stellar moments, but looking at different ways and looking at different things. uh, I'm a big true crime Mm. uh, aficionado. And, you know, I like to, 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 to read about different things and creepy shit like that. And stalkers are creepy. And when you read about some of the things that stalkers would do, and how they would stalk their prey in becoming there's great great book I, I recommend everyone get it's called The Last Victim and it was written by a guy who wanted to be an FBI profiler and he would write letters to convicted serial killers in the character what he thought that they would respond to of the, of the type of people that they would be attracted to like John Wayne Gacy mm. the people that, that were attracted to Gacy Jeffrey Dahmer, Richard Ramirez. And you know, I, I just study that kind of stuff, and I really I enjoy that. And the, the stalker gimmick was a creepy thing where we had seen Taker's wife, and, and if you were really going to get to someone and this – Someone is is in your home. They're there. They have evidence of being in your home. That's a sick, creepy feeling that they were right there and you didn't know it. And that was the idea behind it. I don't know that we did the best job of portraying that. Obviously not. I think in hindsight, going back, um, didn't work by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know if it was the talent involved or the story or the idea in general. Um, But 
that one was a flop. That was all mine. Yeah, but, you know, like you said, it's popular. Think of true crime as far as how that goes. The story, it's creative. And you don't know unless you try, Bruce. So I get you there. Well, thank you, Aiden. And you're trying right now. I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm swinging for the fences, man. The next night in Edmonton for SmackDown, it's Benoit and Austin headlining again. They go 23 minutes, 45 seconds in what Meltzer calls a four and a half star match. Was this what you envisioned for Chris Benoit when you signed him? You know, I, I don't know. I think that Chris Benoit, um, I don't do star ratings, you know, 18,000 and one half stars in the Tokyo Dome. Who the? Benoit was a great worker, and Benoit was someone that w- would always deliver when he was in the ring and would tell a story. He, he used the mat, much like, like Bret Hart. He used the mat as his canvas to paint a picture and tell us a story. So, yeah, man, I expected that every time that Benoit got in the ring. Yeah, and what better place to have him go against Austin here than Edmonton? One, Dave Meltzer really got excited about it, and so I know that excites you. Know, you. He sure gets excited about all kinds of things with his favorite guys in the ring. Jericho, we're on to him. He needs help to pin Kurt Angle after Shane O'Mac interferes. Why do you think Jericho isn't booked in a similar fashion as Benoit in the run-up? Because they're different people with different styles. One has a personality, the other one doesn't. Fair enough. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, there's talk with various WCW wrestlers happening at this time. You mentioned it at the top of the show. Uh, the whole invasion, the buyout, all that stuff's going on. You guys actually have covered it. It's in the archives, you and Conrad. But to your knowledge, what were the contract negotiations like with people like Goldberg, Scott Steiner, or Rey Mysterio? Goldberg and Steiner, there really weren't any because they had time left on their Time Warner deals that, that they wanted to play out. Ray was the same way, but I think that Ray's was probably one of the closest ones that was going to be coming up. And uh, so we were we were actively talking to Ray, and JR was was definitely, you know, had, had his thumb on exactly where everybody's contracts, when they were coming up, and when to start hitting them up. Trying to hit some guy up that's got a year and a half left on a, a payout of many, many, many dollars that we weren't about to match nonsensical. You call, you say, hello, how you doing? Hey, when your contract comes up, you want to come back and work, give us a call. No, it makes sense. Otherwise, other than staying relevant, but what's the point when you're getting paid that big of dollars? And they all had opportunities after the fact. So it worked out for everyone. Uh, let's talk about the build here to Angle versus Shane. That's obviously the huge match we're going to talk about when we get into the card. Angle qualifies for the King of the Ring tournament and uh, Angle worked three matches at that pay-per-view that we're uh, going to touch on here. Here. You guys had the strongest talent roster right around this time, many would say. Why Angle working three matches at this pay-per-view? Why not? Uh, Kurt was a stud, and it was a story. And, and it was a story talking about the different hoops that Kurt had to go through. So that was a big part of the story. And it was how many times, you know, what what obstacle are you going to throw in front of Kurt Angle before you can finally drop him? Let's talk about someone who was not at King of the Ring, and this would be the the only king of the ring this person was not out in some form or fashion it's jerry lawler and around this time he's meeting with kevin dunn and jr about a possible return what do you remember about the talk of bringing jerry back well you know look uh jerry quit <laughs> so jerry quit and claimed that he had a three hundred thousand uh, dollar contract with wcw waiting for him on his desk at home and he quit and he walked out um Jerry said a lot of things about a lot of people while Jerry was not working at the company, me included. And that happens every day. I I don't, 
I don't take that stuff personal at all. Um, I don't read that. I don't, I don't read it. I don't buy into it. It's okay, great. Just say what you want to say. Do what you want to do. It's. We live in America. Now, Levi, I hope you live in America. I don't know because we're, we're over this Skypey thing. So you could be coming from Afghanistan. I don't know. And if you are, hey, great. Um, but again, that was, that was his freedom to do so. I wasn't involved in those negotiations. I know that Jerry thought that I was um, trying to prevent him coming back 100% not true in any way shape or form uh, I had my own shit going on at the time and I really didn't care what Jerry Lawler was doing at that point in my life and or his and I thought Jerry was excellent at what he did great play by play one of the best in the business and I always I always got along with Jerry and I always liked Jerry but I wasn't involved and didn't hold him back and he called me and said, man, I really feel, you know, I got to talk to you. And I said, no, you really don't. (laughs) It's your choice, man. Um, You want to come back? Would I like to have you come back? Would I love to have your talent? Yes, I'd love to. Well, I said some really horrible things. Okay, great. Next. And uh, every time that I see Jerry, I am extremely happy to see Jerry. Got a lot of respect for him, for what he's done in the business and for his talent. So consider Jerry one of the greatest ever, ever been in the commentary booth ever been in the ring and uh believe it or that i was i was for jerry coming back certainly a talent him and jr together were money on the mics and uh i'm glad it all worked out and he was able uh, to to be brought back so so there you what, go your name's mike Sure, we'll go with Mike now. I think that's one of the ones we haven't well, just, used yet. I thought you said, hey, I'm Mike. We go back to the Observer here, talking of Eddie Guerrero at this point. He was sent home because of the belief he was no in no condition to perform on Raw. The descriptions of his condition were really bad. He was scheduled to wrestle Matt Hardy. Jeff replaced him in a King of the Ring qualifier. You've talked about this in the past, but what do you remember of this day in Minneapolis? It's uh, just really sad, and it was um, a situation that you know you don't you don't see at work every day. So that made it even worse. It was it was just sad. It was sad to see Eddie in that shape, and he was in no condition to work and needed to not just go home. Eddie needed to go to school. Eddie needed some help, and Chris Benoit was one of the people that actually came and got us and, and went and got Eddie. And, you know, wanted to slap some reality into Eddie and said, Ben, we got to get him some help. Mm. So it was not a good day. It was not a good day. How, how weird is it when you think about it, Bruce, that the show he's originally sent from home from is in Minneapolis. And then just five years later, that's where that's where he would pass. Yeah, not good. All right. Well, Jesse Ventura is featured here on an episode of Raw, overruling Vince McMahon and making a main event match of uh, Jericho versus Austin. I'm sure Jesse enjoyed this creative. What was Jesse like to work with at this time when he's still governor? I, Jesse, to me, Jesse was always fun to work with. I enjoyed working with, with Jesse. I enjoyed um, just shooting the shit with Jesse. He extremely opinionated guy that I know that comes as a shock to you let me think okay did I call you Levi yet Levi's been used Levi I'm sure that I'm sure that yeah, we'll go back to that you okay yeah. Yeah, it, it worked it worked the first Levi. time it worked Levi, yeah, okay, yeah, we're gonna stick with Levi yeah okay I'll be Levi here we go 
Calling Levi. Calling Levi. There you go. So anyway, John, um, we, <laughs> you know, we did this with Jesse. Jesse was just, you know, Jesse was fun. Jesse was was a lot of fun to work with, man, especially when things were going Jesse's way. Was this uh, was this a last minute deal? I mean, obviously, he's never promoted into a, into the role here. So was this just something to throw together since we're in, in Minnesota? Yeah. And one of those last minute deals that the governor is very busy. So <laughs> for the governor to be able to have a Monday night off, but he was in town, he was there. He came down to say, hello, Hey, you want to do something great? There you go. And it all worked out. I'll tell you what, I, you know, look, I think that what you're looking for is you're looking for us to just say everything we're going to do for the next nine months. <laughs> that would have made you happy in 2001, wouldn't it? <laughs> no, There's not necessarily. It was going to happen. And Dave Meltzer, we'd give the finishes away. Just tell everybody what's going to happen. Just, yeah, just write the dirt sheets for us. Let us all know right up front. Yeah, there you go. No, not at all, Bruce. I don't want to know what's going to happen. That's, I honestly, that's what I hate about social media now is everybody has an opinion about what's going to happen or they got the story and then it's leaked and then nothing surprises you as a fan. That's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. So I like to be surprised. Gabriel, that's how you and I are going to get along. Ah, all right. Let's talk about what people weren't enjoying. Well, some of the fans, and that was Spike Dudley and Molly Holly. They're flirting with each other all over the shows at this point. Were you a fan of this? Yes. Okay, tell me why. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, uh, there's relationships and everything. I, I would hope, I would hope that you would be able to relate to relationships. <laughs> Boy meets girl, girl meets boy, boy and girl fall in love, and they, you know, maybe they have a wonderful life, have children, whatever. Boy meets boy, girl meets girl. Whatever it is you're into, it's okay. You can understand relationships, hopefully. You know, there's some people, maybe a guy out in California that writes gossip and shit, doesn't have relationships or doesn't do well in relationships, can't understand why someone would flirt on a television show and tell relationship stories that really happen in real life. Maybe when you go based on your own experiences, but I think most people can relate to that because most people have a mother and a father. Right. That they were created out of a relationship. Mm. This is like, right. Yeah. You're doing the gesture here. I, I, yeah. It's all coming together for me. I got reminded last week. This is not a, we don't, we don't it's not on video, but I like that we could draw pictures next. Nobody will see them. Oh, wow. I saw that. Okay. We're good to go. I got it covered. I understand the relationship first. Levi's good here. Uh, okay, right. so you were a fan of Spike Dudley and Molly Holly. Got it. Uh, Meltzer wasn't understood. The WWF is reportedly signing talent coming out of WCW and ECW. And you mentioned Booker T, Buff Bagwell, Rob Van Dam, and Tommy Dreamer. Uh, are these all welcome additions to your roster at this point, Bruce? Yes. Uh, you know, I, every one of them were welcome additions to the roster. And, you know, ECW recently closed its doors as well. Yes. Um, you know, they, they had their run, and the people in uh, South Philly were, were upset when they closed that door. Um, I'm just but, waiting for you. Know, Tommy, what? I was just waiting for you to say something about the hundreds of people that enjoyed that product. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. G19. <laughs> there it is. N42. Yeah. So, um, but it, it was, you know, Rob, Rob coming in was, was a welcome addition as was, well, dreamer. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, look, Booker and, and Buff, uh, there, there were high expectations for them. Absolutely. 
Yeah, no, honestly, Booker T, a lot of a lot of steam behind him, and we'll talk about what he did with it as we get into the end of this uh, episode. Johnny Ace is officially hired around this time. What was Johnny's role, uh, Bruce, when he was first brought on? Oh, I could help. I like to do finishes in Japan. You know, Johnny was come. Johnny came on, and Johnny came on kind of as a, a producer at the time, or as we called him then, agent. But Johnny was a liaison that really helped a lot in the WCW transition. John was someone that had worked in Japan and booked Japan for many years. Johnny was a respected name and had been, you know, most recently working for WCW with the talent, helping them out with finishes. So. You know, having Johnny on board, it was another fresh guy with fresh ideas and a different way of looking at the business. As time, you know, started to roll on, um, Johnny was looked at as the, you know, heir apparent to JR's talent relations role. And I think that, um, you know, as as years would go on, when I made the move back to Texas and JR was like, well, trash or fresh, uh, I can go to Oklahoma. Um, Our, you know, our, our, our situations were a lot different, but, uh, you know, I don't think Jr. was as keen living in Connecticut. It's a hail hole. I was or hoping I'd get a sassa for us the show. It's just, yeah. It's all in fun, folks. It's, Jesus Christ. He, he would, knows what I'm talking about. He was doing a happy birthday to Conrad the other day, and he was like, and that word, that word you and your buddy made up about me. What's that word? I can't think of it right now. But anyway... Actually, no, no. See, we didn't make that up, okay? That came from me. That came from Brian Gwertz that just every time that Jr. was something, that Brian just kind of felt that Jr. would say, Shasha Fryash, and we'll throw it in there. So that was something that I took to the to the billions and um, went on. It's just, just Shasha Fryash. There you have it. The, the, the beginning of Sassafras, for those that may have forgotten. All right, let's move on. Kurt Angle versus Chris Benoit and a cage match here on Raw and uh, as it go, as we're leading up to King of the Ring and man what a freaking match here go out of your way to find it on Peacock Austin's doing commentary and he helps Angle win why is Angle winning here when Benoit is scheduled to face Austin who helped him win they they helped who helped him win who helped him it's a simple fucking Austin. goddamn oh, oh. question <laughs> Mike answer the question they Austin, they went out there Austin, Austin he helps him yes who's, yes who's Benoit working with austin yeah. it's called storytelling 101 gabriel if you're not gonna listen then where the, how long has this been going on where are where, where are we at what's the damn counter on this thing we're, we're about 45 minutes in bruce and you're already done That's with levi time for folks sorry i'm <laughs> Yeah, change the tips on my shoelaces. <laughs> uh, is the creative all over the place because you're talking about launching WCW as much as keeping the product on current television the best it can be? I don't think creative was all over the place. You think creative was all over the place. Well, I'm just saying at this point, you know, you, you have to figure out what to do. You're talking about the invasion. This is all happening rather quickly. Uh, you, you have to have a little bit of a scramble to be figuring out what we're doing here. No? Well, okay. When you, when you consider, you know, the decision that was made at, at a very late date and everything acted upon that, yes, you know, you have plans. And in the midst of your plans, you realize that, okay, hey, we've got this new thing going on over here. Well, maybe it's not as much as what some people were led to believe or, you know, the, the, the smart, 
people out there that looked at it and thought, well, God, they have all of this talent they have access to. No, we didn't. So they were already fantasy booking in their in their minds is mm. what we should have done, not understanding the business side of what it was that we had actually done, trying to create something. In addition to that, having one of the pillars and main people in your story be pulled out right in the middle of it. Um, yeah, it's called live television. It's called dealing with, with real human beings. And it's not an animated series that well, we can just we can just draw them and they'll be all right. And some people like to look at, well, hey, bro, it's a work, you know. It doesn't hurt. You don't get hurt for real. Well, guess what, folks? It hurts. It hurts for real. Yeah. That's why we use athletes. They're athletes. <laughs> well, and too, like you said, everything happens so quickly. And that's why listening to these shows and understanding kind of what was going on, hopefully as wrestling fans, we can see the bigger picture. It does seem easy when we're sitting at home in the recliners to just question everything. But you're right. There's a lot of other stuff and shit going on that we're not aware of as to why maybe it couldn't have worked out perfectly like it, we had hoped. It to be clear, uh, we greatly appreciate everyone sitting home in the recliner and watching, and and that's your prerogative to do that. It's just I, I look at it, and if you don't enjoy it, turn it off. If you're enjoying it, man, just sit back and enjoy it. If you want to overanalyze it, overanalyze it. Do whatever the hell you want to do. Have fun. Yeah. It just helps, though, to have all the facts. It definitely helps tell uh, people, fan, well, understand then, Okay, it. then ask me. Don't read it on a dirt sheet of someone that has never been there, that isn't there, that doesn't know what the hell is actually going on, that gets hearsay from disgruntled people, and or just says, well, I bet this is what happened. Right. Because of their years of extensive just research and experience in the business and actually investing their own money and being so successful. Understood. Got it. Levi's in. I'm in, I'm in on the, I understand what you're, where you're going here, Bruce. Yeah, it was Levi. Okay. Everyone seems to be working hurt as Benoit's neck is giving him issues. Jericho's shoulder is giving him issues. Is this just everything bad that can happen happening at this point? I think sometimes you, you get into a, uh, I don't want to say a rut, but yeah, you, you get into a, a point where unfortunately you, you get snake bit and that injury bug goes around. <laughs> kind of sucks. Yeah. But as I said, they're not, not animated characters. They're human beings. Well, and to your point earlier, not only do you have these injuries, then you have the Triple H injury that, you know, ends up occurring as well. So it's just one after the other uh, at this point in time. Yeah, it is. And it adds up. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, the Spike and Molly angle. And all of a sudden now it includes Steve Austin. It leads to Austin stunning Molly Holly, which gets a gigantic pop, by the way. Is this around the time everyone was saying maybe this Austin heel turn isn't working? Well, I think there were some of us that were saying this isn't going to work. It isn't working. Um, all the above from kind of day one. But, uh, you know, uh, we've been over that a gazillion times as, as well with, with, with my friend Tom. What's his name? The other guy does the show. Oh, Conrad Thompson. I, you, you're confusing me because of the beard thing and all that yeah, shit. Yeah, right. It's, it's, I look kind of alike. Um, but uh, what? <laughs> That's you, that's you and Conrad. What, yeah. what shirt are you wearing? This says ad-free shows. Have you ever heard of it? Have you ever heard of ad-free shows? Serious question. <laughs> anyway. All right. So 
DDP reveals himself to be the stalker. You and Conrad, that guy we were just talking about, have covered this in the archives. But Bruce, is this the shits or what? I already told you what it was. See, okay, you're you're reading the notes. You're not listening to me. Okay. I am wait, listening, but wait, I'm also going wait, in chronological order as as we're building the story. Shit, I already answered, Connie. Come on. <laughs> oh man, if I survive this, yeah. it's going to be a miracle. Shit. I said it was my idea. Shit all over my own idea. Uh, all right. Well, we're just trying to, to build this story up chronologically here, so let's keep it moving. Uh, the Dudleys would defeat Benoit and Jericho to win the tag team titles. Was it important to get the titles off of them due to their injuries, or is it just to make Benoit and Jericho lose again in this build? Yeah, I want them to lose again and look like shit, so no one would buy anything. I wanted it to suck. I'll go back to my friend Jerry Lawler that uh, gave me this this analogy that that I always saw in my head, and he just you know put it into words where I just had never actually put it into words before. And he's talking about you know he's laying out television to somebody, and and they look at him and say, God, Jerry, do you really think this? You, you really think this is going to work? You, I mean, you really think this is going to get over? And Jerry just looks at him back and says, No, that's why I want to waste all this television time on it and all this investment because every single second of television time is worth a great deal of money. So we want to just waste it because we think it is the shits and that it sucks. And it's not going to get over at all, but let's go ahead and go out here and give 10 minutes of really bad television. You want to rephrase your question, Leo? No, I think I'm good. I think I got it. I think we're ready. We're finally ready, Are Bruce, finally to jump into the King of the Ring 2001. Yes, we're. it's from East Rutherford, New Jersey. The show draws 16024 which is a sellout paying $1.1 million and gets 445,000 buys. It's only down slightly from the King of the Ring 2000, which, by the way, had 475,000 buys, which The Rock was teaming with Kane and Undertaker versus Triple H, Shane, and Vince McMahon in a match where the WWF world title was on the line. So here we go. Yeah, and I'm sure Dave Meltzer probably has a different figure that probably he got from Josiah, who bought a third-row ticket and uh, counted the house. <laughs> There were only 4,309 people there that I actually counted. And the, the game was actually only $219 because they gave all of those people made this kind of tickets. And it was buy four to get three feet. Yeah. So now that we've solidified the number there, it's the show would start with DDP coming out. And yeah, I know we've covered his background mainly to cheers. He claimed he had hot personal footage of Sarah for his private collection that he couldn't show on TV. He had a ticket for the front row and said he'd stay there until Undertaker showed up. Up. As the show went on, they on the screen aired footage of Paige eating at a restaurant, getting out of his car. The idea was that because DDP didn't get the big heel reaction they expected, they were going to present the idea that DDP would complain about what's being done to him, which is what he was doing, thereby making him a crybaby. It came out uh, Sarah was now stalking him, and as it turned out, people still weren't buying it. Bruce, was this really what DDP left his Time Warner contract and took 50 cents on the dollar for i don't know what he took on the dollar for do you know that that's what he took did you see this i, I did not see that's, his pay you statements. Saw this transaction i didn't take place no direct deposit state i saw none of it oh, okay. but that's what rumor and innuendo is well, Let's uh, here's, that here's, a here's a tidbit we we covered in the ddp thing is is the excellent footage of ddp was actually shot by yours truly huh Okay. Yeah. 
That's right. I shot it. I took the camera. I ripped the camera from uh, Bubba Dean Blau's shoulder. Um, actually, it's Herbert Dean Blau's real name, but we call him Bubba. Great handheld camera guy. All of our guys are uh, absolutely awesome, but Bubba's the one I worked with most. And I told him that his footage wasn't shitty enough. Hmm. Well, I said, you want to see some shitty footage? I'll show you how to shoot shitty footage. And it was shitty enough. That's and, weird. And you did a great job with it there. Yeah, right. Yeah. All right. Knocked yeah. it out of the park. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Well, let's get into the card here. We have Kurt Angle. He pins Christian uh, in the King of the Ring semifinal match, 8 minutes, 17 seconds. They were pushing Angle's quest to win back-to-back King of the Rings with the idea that nobody had ever won back-to-backs and that not even stars like Bret Hart, Triple H, or Steve Austin were able to repeat. Angle got good heat here. He suplexed Christian all over the place. Shane comes out. Nice sequence where Angle missed a moonsault and Christian got a near fall. Angle went for the slam, but Christian countered, going for the unprettier but Angle countered with an ankle lock and Christian made the ropes. Christian countered the slam and hit the unprettier, but Shane broke up the pin, helping Angle. Angle then got the pin with the Angle slam. The storyline was that Shane was helping Angle to advance to tire him out before his match. This got three stars in the Observer. Really a solid match. Angle is just... That's a shame because I liked it. (laughs) It's so good. Uh, With just under eight months on TV here, Bruce. Angle, only eight months on TV. Just a machine. This is a lot to put on someone this quickly in the business to carry a lot of the pay-per-view. We talked about it, three matches. Why could Kurt handle it? Because he was an Olympic gold medalist. He won the Olympic gold medal with a broken freaking neck, for God's sakes. That's why. He was a natural. He was a stud, man. He could do it. Yeah. Now, a great performance here and the night would carry on for Kurt. Up next, though, we'd move into Edge, pinning Rhino, eight minutes, 52 seconds. Uh, this, again, is a semi-main uh, event for King of the Ring. Rhino undid the padding on a turnbuckle when Edge went sternum first into the exposed metal, selling it to make him the face, theoretically. Good spot where both guys went for the spear at the same time and collided. Finish saw Rhino miss the gore, and Edge put him away with the implant DDT. Two and a half stars. Kind of funny to watch this match back now, knowing Edge has made the spear into this thing while Rhino's gore has gone by the wayside. These two click in the ring, and they worked well together here. What do you think about it, Bruce? Well, it was a really good match between two really good friends who had worked together for years, and, and it definitely showed at this point. And you know, said earlier, man, Rhino was a hell of a talent. And I think that being able to work with someone like Edge, they were friends personally, and had worked together many times, you know, coming up in the business. So yeah, it was uh, it was a damn good match. I've told a good story. Alright, we move on. Next up, it's Bubba Ray and Devon Dudley. They kept the tag titles over Spike Dudley and Kane. This one won 8 minutes, 32 seconds. The big screw-up when Kane used a power slam on Bubba, and apparently Devon was supposed to break up the pin, but he didn't. The ref counted two. Bubba didn't kick out, and everyone booed when the ref just stopped counting. Kane threw Spike over the top, and he did a crossbody on both his brothers. Some near falls and saves. Dudley's did the wazap spot without saying wazap, since they're now heels. They really should just drop the spot. Anyway, finish was Bubba scoring the, the pin here on Spike after a 3D. After the match, Kane powerbombed Devon and then choke slam Bubba through the table. 
two and a quarter stars here. The Dudleys doing babyface spots as heels doesn't really make sense. No one wanted to boo the Dudleys, and what a drop for Kane teaming with Spike here uh, compared to last month beating Triple H for the Intercontinental title. What were your thoughts on this one? I thought it was an interesting team. Let's talk about next up. It's Edge. It's the, the finals here against Kurt Angle. It's 10 minutes, 21 seconds. He wins the whole deal. Uh, again, thoughts on this one from the Observer was the buildup was lousy. Finals were put in the middle of the show like they were just Angle's prelim test for his real match. No real emphasis put on Edge winning the rest of the show. Angle took a dangerous flapjack early, nearly landing on his head. Angle suplexed Edge all over the place, including one over the top rope. Angle got a busted lip. Edge catapulted Angle into the barricades for a near fall. Ref bump and Angle got in the ankle lock. Edge tapped, but no ref to see it. Shane comes back again and he spears Angle, leading to Edge scoring the pin after the Impaler DDT. Our buddy gave it three stars, but uh, hard to argue with Dave here on this one. It makes sense why it's here considering the match Kurt is about to have with Shane, but it really didn't do much for Edge to be crowned here. It just didn't feel, it felt a little flat. <laughs> just the audience, the fan, people in the crowd that didn't feel flat to you. It did. It felt like, uh, especially because King of the Ring was such a big deal, but yet it really just wasn't as far as the one of the main matches, one of the main focuses of the event wasn't really talked about much after he won it. Well, because it was over. He had already won it. Yeah, but it's King of the Ring, Bruce. This oh. is a big deal. It's the name of the pay-per-view. Well, we had other big matches. Well, I want to. I want. I want there to be emphasis. I want pomp and circumstance. I want it, it to yeah, be a huge deal. There was emphasis. I'm talking about that main it just event wasn't style. In the place that you wanted it. Yeah. You ever have that problem where the emphasis isn't in the place that you wanted it, Ryan? I mean, I'm sure that's happened before at times in my life, Bruce. Okay, just checking. All right, so we can agree to uh, disagree on the emphasis of that one, but I, you know, it is what it is. There were some big-time matches left in this card here, King of the Ring. This, I don't know, was, I don't know if it was one of them, but we'll talk about it. It's Jeff Hardy pinning X-Pac in 7-11 to keep the light heavyweight title. X-Pac used the X-Factor, but Hardy got his feet on the ropes. He went for a second time, but Hardy countered and scored the pin after a swanton. Two and a quarter stars on this one. It's just squeezing these two onto the card is kind of what it felt like. And where was uh, Waltman's head at this point? Spend my days working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I can't wait for Caleb to be done with the show. Oh. The non the non matchup next is Undertaker versus Page. People popped for the first punch, and it was pretty much it. Page's Terry Funk comedy bumps in a serious heat program just seemed out of place. As far as the first physical confrontation between WWF and WCW, which this was, it couldn't have been planned out any worse. Page got very little offense in and just got bumped. Page's offense was just brief spots after low blows or chairs. They ended up brawling all over the U.S. announcer table in the ring taker hit page with a high kick and page ran off for five minutes and 40 seconds shouldn't the first confrontation end with all the wcw guys swarming undertaker and beating his ass building heat rather than a finish which made someone who needs to be a star right now with the lack of star power and multitude of non-stars under contract look bad which is exactly the opposite of what needed to be done at this point i was sure it was wcw that had bought wwf and hired their writing staff half a star are are those fair criticisms Again, no one can defend it as good here, but there's just nothing redeeming about this for anybody. When did you know this was already dead? Well, I th- I th- look, here's, 
here's the bottom line is, again, give me the history of the two major companies in the world, in the business, and one absorbing the other and purchasing the other, and, you know, give give me the, the counter to it. And, again, on the other side of that coin, you are looking at an audience, and you've got to look at it through the WWE audience eyes because the WWE audience, for the most part, okay, they didn't know a lot of these WCW guys. Okay, whether you want to admit that or not, because you follow everything, that that's a, a much smaller audience. So the WWE audience, these were also rands in in many many respects. And frankly, we you know we didn't get the big stars and and Paige, you know, coming in. I don't know that it was first of all the the storyline wasn't great, but you're coming in on top with the Undertaker, so it doesn't get any bigger than that. So one guy coming in on top working a program with the undertaker it's it's not going to get any bigger than that but instead the the idea is why not have everybody jump the undertaker a bunch of guys that nobody knows does that doesn't make sense to me at all and for the audience looking at ddp and again when you, when you matched them up it was like okay well who do you think's going to win that fight right the guy you thought was going to win that fight is going to win that fight the first time now when Page comes back and does something else to The Undertaker. It's not one and done here. This is to continue on to tell a story. And it's it just astonishes me, the, the, the feeling sometimes of, oh, my God, this, this just doesn't make any sense. To who? To who? To a guy that watches a bunch of Japanese wrestling and loves the moves and names the Japanese commentators as the best play-by-play and color guy because of the way they sound? Think about that. Think no, 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 think about that. That's that's where this is coming from. Great. Yes, I'd take nothing away from the Japanese wrestling and their athleticism and their work and their spots they're able to do. Telling stories, I would argue that. And I and I was I was listening to you talking more about from the WWE fan only perspective that they wouldn't know who those guys are. But I, I think at this point, uh, the large majority and you know the ratings told the story before WCW was bought out you still had a lot of crossover fans that were aware of both companies and would have been familiar with some of those names. Yes, you still have your WWE fans only and contingent there, but I think for the most part, the large majority of fans would have recognized some of those guys. That still happens to this day. I mean, think about it when AJ Styles made his debut. Majority, yeah, may remember him. Let's move on, Bruce. Good stuff. Angle, he would pin Shane McMahon in an all-time classic match. Twenty-six minutes. It's a street fight. Angle suplexed Shane all over the freaking place and did some tremendously smooth mat work. Shane would potato Angle with his first punch, busting him open over the right eye. Very stiff. Excellent, but. Far too dangerous match, particularly when WWF can ill afford to lose another top guy, uh, which we've talked about a few times here. And then we put Angle in a position where the risks were pretty high. Shane killed Angle with a garbage can lid, then went up for a shooting star press, but ended up landing on landing on the garbage can. They brawled backstage. The big sequence started when he went 
to uh, the belly-to-belly Shane through a thick glass stage setup. Glass didn't break, Bruce, and Shane went down almost head first on the ground. That was dangerous enough, so they did it again. And both, as planned, went through the glass. The idea is they would do it again to come back to the other side. Angle twice uh, suplex Shane and twice the glass didn't break. Finally, he whipped him through it. This was total insanity and not in a good way. You had broken glass everywhere. The crowd was going crazy. And you had Angle, who's being counted on uh, so highly in the plane being put in a situation where he could have been seriously injured because you just can't predict how broken glass will break. As it was, he was just scraped up a little bit. His back was all bloody and there was broken glass all over the floor and they were reduced to putting the best worker the company had for the summer himself way in a bunch of risk that might not have necessarily been necessary. Uh, either doing spots like combat zone wrestling in New Jersey, no less. Uh, Angle wheeled a prone Shane back to the ring and put him in the ring to pin him, but Shane kicked out. McMahon came back with a low blow and three hard garbage can lid shots, then did the angle slam on Angle for a near fall. Angle catapulted Shane into the corner. Shane was supposed to hit the post, but it looked bad. Angle got a board and hit Shane with it, and the finish saw him use the board as a platform and used it to stand up while on top of the rope, delivering the angle slam. Shane got a huge ovation after the match from the crowd. This one got four stars, and it's just an amazingly brutal match. Uh, New Jersey, by the way. How many would have gotten if it was in Japan? (laughs) That would have been at least a six or seven. I mean, that's um, I can't believe it just got four stars. One of the most insane, intense matches we've ever seen wrestling you think is you think a king of the ring 2001 and everybody that's what everybody talks about uh so there you go new jersey had recently passed a law outlawing extreme wrestling and then you guys uh you know you have this match you've talked about it in the archives before how vince was ready to fire you during this match what's going on backstage how worried were you about these two and was it all worth it well vince wasn't ready to fire me he was just ready to strangle me um only because i was the the only communication to, to the referee at that point and I was trying to get them to move on and they weren't listening and they weren't doing it and it wasn't you know that definitely wasn't my fault it was it was a situation where you have two guys that are great performers and feel that their performance must involve a lot of risks you know as, as far as putting angle out there in this kind of match and oh my god the risk every single time that a performer goes to the ring and is involved in any kind of match, they are at risk. That is inherent in this business. So um, there are calculated risks, and this was a calculated risk. Some things didn't go right, and that's unfortunate. And again, the naivete of someone that that's never never done it and or uh, actually had their their own investment on the line. Uh, you, you know, those criticisms. I don't take. It was a crazy match. I thought it was way too much. Uh, I don't think I could ever watch that match and enjoy it. I think I could. I, I, I don't think I've ever watched it since, frankly. Um, can't watch it. It was it was too much and it was emotional from that vantage point as well. Um so you tie all that into it and um yeah, it's most talked about and all that shit. It's kind of like the the hell in a cell with Mick Foley. That's right. Um, you saw it and it was holy shit, but you never want to see it again. 
So I saw it. Um, not interested in ever seeing it again because I, I love Kurt and I love Shane and, and don't want to have a stupid, silly accident. Um, make it so that they're they're unable to hug their kids. Yeah, I mean, to every and every time you think about that match or I think about it or fans talk about it too, you think about that, that glass panel that just would not break and finally Shane being so committed to it. Do it again. Whatever it takes, uh, we're going to make this work. Just very intense. Yeah, and, and sometimes that's a judgment call, and and that's I'm not sure that the best judgment was used in that regard. All right. Well, Bruce, we finally made it. It's the main event match. It's Steve Austin retaining the WWF title in a three-way over Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit. This one went 27 uh, minutes, 52 seconds. Again, very hard work from all three performers. They did several spots where one person would be injured to make it one-on-one for several minutes, and then just as somebody was beaten, the third guy would revive the Make a save. Jericho got Austin in the walls, but Benoit saved. Benoit then suplexed Jericho over the top to the floor. Earl Hebner got bumped, and Benoit hit Austin with a stunner, but again, no ref. Benoit hit Austin with the title belt, but Jericho recovered for the save. Jericho posted Benoit here. This left Austin versus Jericho, and they struggled for Boston Crabs. Benoit sold being injured, leading to Austin versus Jericho. Benoit ended up recovering and went to hit Austin with a chair, but he ducked, and Jericho got hit. Isn't that screw-up spot a heel spot? Guess not. That depends on how you look at it. Who's the heel? There you go. Austin gave Benoit a stunner to injure him again. Austin gave Jericho two superplexes off the top rope. Benoit recovered and then gave Austin five German suplexes before Austin delivered a low blow. Jericho put the walls on Austin in the middle of the ring. Instead of Benoit saving, he put the cross face on and Austin tapped. Being that a precedent had been set when Undertaker and Kane both beat Austin in a similar three-way on pay-per-view a few years ago, this was stunning, but not so fast. Even though that was an acceptable finish on pay-per-view a few years ago and on TV as recently as Monday, it was an illegal double team so Hebner ordered the match to continue. Then we see the big run in here. Booker T shows up out of the crowd, throws Austin through a table. Booker got excited and threw him too far and Austin tried to protect himself since part of his body overshot the table and in doing so injured his hand. Jericho got the walls on Benoit but a rope break. Jericho slipped on the ropes and screwed up a lion salt spot on Benoit. Jericho and Benoit then screwed up a second spot due to communication. Jericho attacked Austin with wood and Austin sold like he was knocked out. Jericho gave Austin a moonsault, but Benoit saved. Benoit did the diving headbutt on Austin, but Jericho pulled Hebner out. Benoit then gave Jericho a backward superplex. All three guys laid on the mat and uh, in dramatic face fashion with all the odds against them, two wrestlers, all of WCW and even Vince McMahon deserting him, draped his arm over Benoit for the pin. With Benoit being injured and out of action all summer, the only logical finish was for him to be the one pinned the rating on this one three and three quarter stars a lot going on with this one bruce booker t debuts and hurts steve benoit goes through the match with an injury but disappears right after jericho doesn't win and right after this is where we are right into the wcw launch what did you think of this match and do you think it made sense yeah it made a shitload of sense um you know booker coming out was a great debut for booker unfortunately steve got hurt in that whole exchange um again accidental and a lot was made of, of nothing in that and that's where you know 
people, the rumor and innuendo and, and bullshit starts. Um, but as far as Steve going over, I think that by this point, here you are, you don't have Triple H, and you're looking at, all right, is this thing going to work? And realizing when you're counting sides, well, we're going to need some help on the other side. Somebody's got to jump ship. Somebody's got to do something. You, you've got to give them something they're used to on the other side for it to even have any hope of succeeding. So really and truly, it was the only finish. It was the only thing you could do. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought it was great. I thought it was an excellent match. Those three, I mean, brought it. And um, that's kind of where, where we ended up. Yeah. Now, again, a big-time show here. Again, that's going to always be remembered for that uh, that match between Kurt Angle and Shane. What was your overall opinion of this uh, this card, Bruce? Thumbs up, thumbs in the middle, thumbs down. Where, where do you land on I thought this? it was great. I thought it was a hell of a show. A little brutal for my taste in the middle with Shane O'Mac. Um, but I thought overall, I thought it was very good, especially when you kind of reflect back on where we were, where we wanted to be, and the cards we were dealt. It was a tough pill to swallow. Well, and you get Edge, right? He wins King of the Ring. And, you know, some of that stuff types goes on to propel him and what he's going to do in his career. So you talk about building future stars. That's certainly something that someone wants to have you know is nice to have i guess in their background as they move forward in their career angle proves after seven months he's a stud uh three big time matches all on this card and then just the story that we all talk about and that's the broken hand with austin and booker t's first debut and kind of what, what that lent him to in, in the back with the folks so lots of interesting matches stories and i guess it's just the way that you look at that card it, it, it to me it was a very enjoyable uh pay-per-view yeah yeah that was great I'm, I'm glad you agree cooper all right there we go well let's get to some fan questions before we wrap this one up bruce uh, ryan austin writes in and says if i'm not mistaken, bruce said vince was so hot he was ready to fire bruce over the shane and kurt match by the time by this time how many times was bruce almost fired at this point okay it's funny you bring that first of all he wasn't uh almost gonna fire me just wanted to kill me um <laughs> but the, the the funny thing is is that you know there were often times where I'd only been fired one time at the time at, 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 uh, at this time and Vince would, would always get confused sometimes oh god damn how many times have you been fired because he was actually referring because Jim Ross had been hired and fired and refired and hired and refired like four or five times however I really don't know what the count is so people said JR was fired four times it was whatever it was <laughs> contract wasn't renewed he was brought back he was fired he was brought back he was fired I don't know what the hell happened but I, I used to say um, when I was, I'd say no 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 I'm I'm the only I'm I'm the other guy I've only been fired one time Vince and then I would say I said it doesn't count the number of times that you wanted to fire me so then that would have been into double digits and shit like that but yeah all right well Steve Foley would write in and he has another question we I feel like we've uh, talked about this a little bit already here but were there any ideas other ideas to bring DDP in besides this storyline let's start there was there anything else creative wise that you had for him or was this just let's this is what we like and this is what we're going with well I, i'm sure there were i don't think that anything was as big i know ddp always talks about how he wanted to be the people's champion against whatever the hell yes with rock and and that wasn't going to happen um but uh 
you know, coming in on top with takers, it's just kind of like, how do you get any higher than that? And so um, that, that is what it is. Okay. And uh, he also wants to know, what was the deal between Taker and DDP? Was there real heat between these two? No. Okay. Not that I know of. All right. And... It's his- not, I, I, I don't know. I, maybe he does. I don't know, man. But I, I think it'd be kind of hard to find anybody that's got heat with DDP. I like, and I'm sure there's somebody... Um, but you know, shit, Dallas is a, just a real super positive, good guy. His final comment here from Steve Foley said his WWE run was basically get a fucking make comments and questions. You get one question. Okay. <laughs> Carson, Carson, one question. <laughs> That's all they get. One That's question. Get. Steve, we're Steve. sorry. Thanks for checking in this week. Yeah. We're moving on to just. <laughs> We're moving on to just because it was a final statement. We're good. Just Chris asks, why does Shane McMahon get so much hate for not being a wrestler? When he endured this punishment, he paid all his dues in this match with Angle. Well, Shane also paid all of his dues by working his ass off for I don't know how long before, during, and after to hone his skills every single night in the warehouse with my brother training him and beating the shit out of him and coming back for more every single day, Sometimes two and three times a day. So to those who say, oh, Shane's not a wrestler, Shane busted his ass to train and to get in there and to actually do what he did and perform at a level that not many people could perform at. So to those people that say, oh, well, if you don't wrestle 10 or 15 years and you haven't paid your dues, I say bullshit. Yeah, I don't get the Shane hate either. I mean, every time the guy does perform, it's next level. I mean, he goes way out of his way and does things no one and his position should ever have to do for a wrestling match. So I'm I'm full agreement there. Luke from Eastern Iowa. He checks in and said, was with Benoit's neck injury following the match, leaving him out for a year. Do you remember any plans for Benoit in the invasion? Could have been a really strong addition to either side, according to Luke. So was there any plans for that? Uh, there weren't because of the injury. So it's kind of hard when you know that they're going away to make plans for him. And, and it was an unknown with Chris. Okay. Makes sense. We have two more fan questions left here. Bruce uh, first ask Bruce why humanize the undertaker having his wife there and being referred to as Mark really killed it for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just guess I, I, why is Lindsay listening to the show? If it killed it for him. Uh, I don't know. Lindsay, we're I'm sorry. sorry Lindsay. I, I'm yeah. sorry. We killed it for you. Well, Lindsay, there you go. He apologized live on air. I don't know what else you could ask more from, from Bruce Pritchard for that whole deal. I don't mean it. Yeah. Adams, our final question, Bruce. Where did you guys get the glass that didn't break? Glass don't break fucking shit and I are us. That's where. And there you have it. Exactly what we expected. Glass didn't break are us. And shit. And shit. Okay. Bruce, we made it through. I made it through, I think. Probably my last show I'll ever record for Conrad Thompson. But thank you for giving me 25 names today. This has been an absolute honor for me to be able to sit in this chair and, and talk with you for the last hour and a half uh, and, and doing uh, King of the Ring 2001. And Jose, it's uh, an hour and a half of my life. I'll never get back. And that's, you ever heard the story about Pancho Villa? Oh, I've, I've heard the story. I've seen the cartoon that was done based off that story. Okay. Yeah. True story. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, guys, next week, Conrad Thompson will be back where he belongs with his tag team partner, Bruce Pritchard, for another fantastic episode of Something to Wrestle. We certainly hope you enjoyed this week's edition. Lots of good ground that we covered in terms of King of the Ring 2001, classic wrestling matches. Bruce, thank you so much for being a part of this today. 
Pablo, thank you. All right. It was what it was. Yeah, well. Okay. Well, hey, with that, that's going to wrap us up this week. <laughs> Go ahead. You have something else to say. I can no, see I it. I, I ain't got shit. Go ahead. <laughs> you got nothing. He's done. We're going to wrap us up. That's it for Something to Wrestle. We'll be back next week, regular time. Conrad and Bruce, thank you so much for joining us this week. Rock on. Really, Ken, that was the drizzling shits. I mean, I don't know that we can ever fucking air any of this. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on a sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.